Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 381. I'm your host, Chris Elner, joined as always by my co host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, we're finally free from 1997, <laughs> at least for now, on the main show. We still got Patreon shows coming up, but we're finally free. Yes, only on the main shows, at least, because we also have to get most of the Patreon recording done this week. Yeah, but at least we got a little respite here. Still a 90, though. Yes. But uh, we got a little respite here. And uh, this is a Patreon requested show as well. Yes. Just like last week's was. And although it's not 1997, it does have Sting versus Hulk Hogan. Yes. Uh, yes, as our patron Sean Doherty popped the $25 down for us to talk about this show. And you can do that by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash between the sheets. And uh, $25, you put that down and uh, you get all the perks of the Patreon. Plus, you have the opportunity to pick a show for the week that for us to do. Now, if you're doing that, have two shows in your mind just in case it could be the show that you want us to do. It could be something we've already done in some form or fashion early in the game or whatever. Any reason why, if you got any questions about it, you know, ask me or Bix, follow the protocol on the Patreon website and get that information to us. As far as, uh, you know, you got the 10 year rules in effect, 30 day rule, we'll get that information for 30 days of your show. And uh, yeah. We'll get it set up on the calendar. Except the calendar is another thing that could be a hold of. Somebody could have the week you wanted. So uh, do all that, and you should be able to have your show talked about it, the week that you want us to talk about on patreon.com slash between the sheets and on the main show here. So he wants us to go back to 1995, and we've done a lot of uh, shows around this particular set of days because it's not really a full week. It's six days, and it's not in our week specific time here but it fits in as we're going to discuss the almost full week of november 15th to the 20th of 1995 now we've done previous shows like i said surrounding this so if you want to listen to those then you'll go to show number 121 that being november 8th to the 14th and then show number 175 will be the 21st to the 27th in fact, we're the straight. We did the. Obviously, we did October twenty fourth to the thirtieth on two seventy four, thirty first to the seventh on one seventy two. So, we got a little stretch here going. We pretty much got the whole a uh, whole month lined up in a row here. So, uh, yeah, you got a lot to listen to if you want to listen to chronologically. But anyway, all right. So let's go to November fifteenth to twentieth of nineteen ninety five, and we start with an all encompassing week that was from Dave Meltzer here. Brent Hart catches the WF title from Diesel, the headline Survivor Series, pay-per-view on November 19th from the USA Arena in Landover, Maryland. The title change is more noteworthy in the midst of report, reports of outside the ring turmoil in WF stemming from the strong power base of The Click, Diesel, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, 123 Kid, and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and the apparent marketing switch within the WF to switch gears from aiming to a children's audience to an adult audience. The title change, however, fading to the background in less than 24 hours due to the most important and most daring Monday night battle in less in the less than three-month history of the two groups going head-to-head. A battle in which WCW scored the ratings win, but in reality, both sides came out as losers because each side threw everything out at once and both ratings were disappointing. WCW put what should have been on paper as ultimate never-seen-before match, Hulk Hogan versus Sting. The kind of WF going live during sweeps, one day after pay-per-view show, in which it was going to switch the title. Uh... 
Shall I? Yeah. Yeah. Sweeps is not for cable. <laughs> you think that uh well I, do you think that twenty twenty two Dave Meltzer will look back at this and go, why did I do that? Here's the thing, and I've talked to him about this and we've had disagreements about it. They are still needing to counter program against Sweep's programming on the networks. But the networks, correct. Sweeps sweeps though are specifically for the local markets. It's not even about the national rating. It's about it's the not local national, it's rating. local. That's why your local news would always do like it's your salad killing you stories like that. You know, they would break those out during sweeps period. Right. Sweep stunts on the network shows are to boost the local ratings, both directly for the local rating for a given network show and to boost the local news. And see the difference is and with wrestling in history, wrestling was syndicated on the local channels, so that would that would count. Right. So there was sweeps booking more directly on syndicated shows at times. Yes. But WCW and WF going head to head on cable against each other does not <laughs> warrant sweeps. <laughs> they're competing against, you know, Fox and ABC and CBS and stuff, but they're not competing against each other in that matter. Right. They're competing against a stronger slate of programming. But the deal with sweeps is that it is slash was for really to get a more complete data set, you know, in well, not more complete, but you know where I'm going with this, to get more dialed in information from the smaller markets that didn't necessarily have as reliable week-to-week data outside of sweeps. I forget if it's that they get more diaries or only during sweeps they used, like, like the computerized measurement or whatever, but it's... It's about getting, you know, it's about that's what you're setting your ad dollars on in the local markets is based on the sweeps. The general belief was the impact of Hogan versus Sting was lessened by the week buildup before the match the previous week and on the weekend shows. WF Counter was most daring and in some eyes, it's most, it's most galling angle in years. Playing off Shawn Michaels' legit injury a few weeks back after being pulled out of a car and assaulted outside of Syracuse nightclub. The WF had Michael simply collapsed in the ring in the midst of a hot main event match with Owen Hart and stayed there the remainder of the show, teasing either a stroke or brain aneurysm. Their personnel and ENTs looked concerned and gave him oxygen for the last seven minutes of the show. The angle was convincing enough that from our reports, the majority who attended the show live believed it wasn't an angle. Initially, those live believed it was an angle, but as it got played up stronger, most seemed to believe it was real. Most phone calls here that viewed on television knew it was an angle, but many didn't. Um, we'll talk about Sean later because that's what that being the section. I want to talk about Hogan and Sting though, real quick, as far as uh, Dave talking about the you know weak build up everything. It's the second time they've done this in two, in three months. Because look what they did with Hogan and Luger. Hogan they and took Luger two was bi- understandable to a point though. Yeah, but it's two major first time money matches. <laughs> that you do on very short term notice and with no build, really. Just to try to pop a TV rating. And Hogan and Luger was done because that's the night that Raw came back live. And here you're wasting it on a match with the dark side of Hulkamania Hogan. And the fact that, I mean, 
yeah, it's Raw Live and Survivor Series, but you're doing this the Monday going into a pay per view. Yep. Well, yeah, it's granted, it's good. not a particularly angled up pay per view outside of Sting and Flair, but yeah. Even though they had overall by far the superior show, as is usually the case. WCW won the night with Hogan and Sting's match by drawing a 2.5 rating and 3.6 share. Fidelia's 2.3 rating and 3.3 share. Neither figure can be considered successful. The Hogan-Sting dream match drew a lower number than Rick, the Ric Flair-Arn Anderson cage match, which shows even with the best match possible, Hogan has no juice left to have a major impact on ratings. Nevertheless, WCW's Nitro is geared more towards beating WF, and as long as that happens, it doesn't really matter what the numbers are. It's a cause for celebration. The WF come off the pay-per-view with a world title change and a diesel turn tease at the end. Doing a 2.3 for a live show is outright disastrous. WCW replay did a 0.9 rating. Yeah, I mean, considering what the ratings have been for other shows right before this, the fact that both these shows went out there with guns blazing and both of them did, as Dave says, basic disastrous numbers, it's pretty wild. Do you chalk that up to the sweeps competition? <laughs> Excuse me. What was that? You chalk that up to the sweeps competition. Um, I'm looking to see what the Monday Night Football game was that night. Let me see who who was playing that night. All right, ninety five, November twentieth. Oh, uh, San Francisco Forty ers Super Bowl defending Super Bowl champions at the Miami Dolphins. So it's them against Dan Marino. Um, I wonder if there's any note on the ratings. Uh, I can't find anything as far as uh, TV ratings for that. I found a New York Times article about who won sweeps from the 30th. Okay. It says Ask NBC and ABC. Uh, let's see. NBC had the most viewers overall in November, was the only network to show growth from last year in every demographic category. Isn't the phrase demographic category a little redundant? (laughs) But ABC's show finished first in their time periods more often. NBC had the top five regular series all appear on Thursday night. Okay, I I got the ratings. Well, just let me finish. Oh, go ahead, read. Go, yeah. yeah, go ahead and finish your ratings. Topped off by the number one show, ER, but ABC had five of the next six. CBS's News Magazine, 60 Minutes, finished ninth. So this is early season two ER, which uh, I, yeah, I'm guessing means one of the sweeps episodes was George Clooney saving the drowning kid, right? Which I think yes. did something like a 40 share. So anyway. What was the rating for Monday Night Football on the 20th? All right, so Nitro and Raw was Nitro was nine to ten, Raw was nine to eleven. No, both nine to ten. Both nine to ten. That's right. It's like ninety-five. Chris. All right. Um. So Monday Night Football won the night. They did an eighteen point five rating and a thirty share. Okay. Not bad. Second place. S- second place was a movie on NBC. Remember when they would actually do those? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a uh, miniseries, Dead by Sunset, starring Ken Olin, the great Ken Olin. Uh, that did a 14.9 rating and a 23 share. 
Murphy Brown was third on CBS. Did a 12.4 and an 18 share. Okay, so I just <laughs> looked up on Wikipedia, Hell or High Water, that episode of ER, which aired on the 9th. 27.8 rating, 45 share, 48 million viewers. Yeah, folks used to watch TV, folks. And then uh, Fox, they had partners. Remember that show? Did a 4.8 rating with a seven share. And Nowhere Man on UPN did a 2.8 rating, no share listed. And uh, one ratings point at this point for network equals 959,000 homes. So you look at the share. So ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, that was a seven. They combined for 78% of that. And for the average across sweeps, let's see, so 11.3 for ABC. No, excuse me, I started wrong. So NBC had the average highest household rating for across sweeps with an 11.9. ABC had an 11.3. CBS had a 10. Uh, Fox had a 7.5. So ratings point-wise... 40.7. 40.7. So 40.7, the average across sweeps, times 9.50. So 38 uh, points, basically 38 and two-third million households were watching TV on average in prime time throughout November. On, on the networks alone. Yeah. I'd love to see a total, like what the total for something like that would be today. Not Not to that. Yeah. Because of the way ratings are figured, the Michaels angle could not have had any effect on the ratings. So to make any conclusion about the angle not working because they have lost tonight is faulty logic. However, if it, if it doesn't spike the ratings next week, for those curious to see how the cliffhanger ends, the angle's legs were non-existent, and at best it would be a great topic of conversation for a few days. Let's see what they did on November 27, 1995. Uh, where's the rating at? Raw rating history. Let's see here. They did 2.3, the same exact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the giveaway to most that Mike, the Michaels deals and angles either that they had aired the fall, the fall instant replay and the timing of the angle during the Hogan Steam match. And most of Derek was going to pull some major out on the show to steal the spotlight for the match. Most believe the majority of people watching on television would initially buy it. About 6% of the calls here, here felt the angle was in the worst taste. With many drawn on the comparison to Fritz von Erich's faking a heart attack, playing out the real-life deaths of his own sons in Dallas. An angle that was temporarily very successful in reviving attendance of what ultimately was a dying promotion. Others brought up the timing, being the angle took place just a few hours after gold medal skater Sergei Grinkoff dropped dead of an apparent heart attack out of nowhere during practice in Lake Placid, New York, which was the lead story in the news just as this angle was taking place. Dave was told this thing was playing well in advance of that, and when everyone's so busy at television, at television that day, there's a chance that those in charge may not even know about the Grand Cough situation, or that would be the worst taste possible to do an angle that would appear to be many appear to many being playing off of it. <sighs> what can you do in that situation? You know, I mean yeah. that's that's something that they had in their minds to do, and then Greg Koff drops dead that day. I mean, that's kind of tough. 
tough timing, you know? Yeah. Others thought the angle was positively brilliant. Some thought it was a little above. People called WF offices the next day were assured that what they saw on television was totally real and not part of the script, and that Michaels was under doctor's care for post-concussion syndrome, which pretty much closed the door of an argument over whether or not the angle can be justified as not being sleazy. Michaels does have that problem, and this angle is a guy to keep him out of action because the injury suffering in Syracuse were worse than originally anticipated. Obviously, as business, we'll all have a better idea of what, whether it's good or bad over the next few weeks for future ratings and crowd figures for Michaels' return. Dave gets to hold him out until Royal Rumble, which he may then win again since the initial plan was to go with Brett versus Sean at WrestleMania. And it happened. We've come in. But it was the most talked about angle of wrestling in years. Whether that carries over to gain interest is something we'll only need a week to find out because if there's any impact for this angle, it should show immediately in the television's ratings for the weekend. Boy, no, it didn't affect Raw's ratings. It's an interesting twist because there was no heat put on any heel for what happened. According to one story, when this angle was first concocted, the idea was to involve someone like Jeff Jarrett, who wasn't at the show, and have him attack Michaels into the angle so it's put heat on someone for future grudge matches. But the feeling was that it would make it too obvious it was just another wrestling angle. As far as taste goes, if they knew about Grinkoff and still did it, they're really sick. But this is a sick business, and it wouldn't shot Dave either way. If not, it didn't strike him as tasteless immediately, but it's hard to rationalize it not being tasteless if the binary deal was accept times then taste change. And as time has gone on, nobody takes wrestling seriously. Standards have changed, and it really didn't go as far as so to tease a death as they did with the Prince Von Eric angle, nor were they playing off of deaths, only teasing a stroke or an aneurysm, playing off of mugging. In other words, same basic thing, only not nearly as bad, but how many angles have been done where the babyface is left for dead or even blinded for life? They thought it was great execution. Nobody tried to, to tease he could have died on commentary while it was going on, which would have crossed the line. Any defense for this angle being no different than what you see on any television soap opera or drama was taken away by the WF itself. There's an illness or near death on soap opera, and you call the network. They won't try to pretend the illness or death wasn't part of the script. No, no, they won't do that. <laughs> because here's the difference. People know that's fake. You know, in 1995, there are still people that were believing wrestling was real. And we'll get into that later in the WS action on this. So we'll save our thoughts on that. The angle totally overshadowed the Hogan's team match as far as next day interest. Hogan, who dressed all in black and played heel, was booted out of the Megan Coliseum but they largely papered full house of 6,000. Imagine having the paper heavily a Hogan steam match and doing a $13,000 house. Let me tell you this. I pay for my tickets. <laughs> How much did you pay but, and uh, where did you sit? We sat ringside. Uh, I was about... Did you buy ringside tickets or were you given yes. ringside uh, upgraded? No, we, okay. We bought, we bought ringside tickets. Uh... Probably about ten ten rows deep, on the on the on the opposite side of the entrance. One of the greatest seats in the house, but that way, in the Coliseum. Um, I had much better seats different other times, but um, it was still ringside. So, but um, oh yeah, it it was it was as crowded as I've seen the Coliseum in a while. But yeah, it was still. You know, you definitely knew that there, that that there were a lot of people that did not pay for their tickets. So that was being talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite the atmosphere, that's for sure. And yes, Hulk Hogan was hated that night. 
The match went 9-32 with Hogan Power now staying Scorpion, making a Superman comeback. Hogan missed a leg drop, son, a hamstring injury, and was put in the Scorpion. This appeared he was going to submit as he was screaming on camera that he couldn't take the pain. The Dungeon of Doom all ran out to tap both men for the no-contest decision. We all love that finish. Hogan is staying goodbye for the save until Giant ran in. Giant was about to choke slam both simultaneously until Randy Savage and ringside arm and sling. The arm injury having been played up much stronger this week than last week, which makes Dave think he's going to have surgery after all, hit the Giant with a chair shot that he didn't sell. Hogan staying in combined not the Giant from the ring. Match itself was largely flat live and had a weak finish. Star and a half. Hit mute button on my TV by mistake. Um, WCW is going to have a difficult time popping a rating again when they play something so big and deliver so little. Hey, they didn't even pop a rating with Hogan and Sting. It didn't come off as anything more than a usual match in regards to heat. The crowd was almost totally pro Sting. They were totally pro Sting. Hogan was expecting this as he played heel and seemed to work in a manner to egg on the booze, even though Savage was in his corner during the match. And the announcers never acknowledged him being booed so heavily. We'll get into it in just a little bit. Obviously, the WWF show was far superior. Besides the angle, the other highlights were Diesel taking on a new badass babyface image, blaming Vincent Mann on an interview for creating a fake image for him in the past year, again attempting to appeal to the 26 to 34 male audience as a kick-ass, no-apologies babyface, and what was an excellent Michaels Owen Hart match before the angle and a good Hakushi 1-2-3 kid match, which kid won. And again, we'll get more into that when we get to the WWF. All right, let's go to WCW proper now. And Nitro was a weak overall show with Hogan and Sting and a match where Eddie got out open. Brian Pillman with a frost splash in 625, three stars, with Eddie doing an incredible plancha. Pillman was some of Ric Flair, who injured his shoulder in a TV squash match against Joey Maggs in Orlando a week earlier. Although Flair did work his Japan matches after the injury. Of course, he's, he wasn't going to miss that. Flair came out in street clothes with Pillman, and they did an angle where Flair acted as if wrestling Eddie was beneath him. And told Pillman to handle his dirty work. Broken record comment for the week. The match was really hurt by poor announcing. Instead of talking about the match, most of the banter was about the upcoming pay-per-view and Hogan and Sting. Besides Pillman and Eddie and Hogan and Sting, the other match on Nitro saw Scott Norton pin power slam the shark in a, uh, in a minute and 40 seconds. Road Warrior Honk over Big Bubba Rogers in 347 when Rogers put an object in his hand and went to tape it. But before he could use it, he was tripped by Jim Duggan and fell on his loaded hand and knocked himself out. The match was hilarious because the object fell out of his pocket on the first bump for everyone to see, and Mongo even noticed. The highlight of the, of the show, the house show part, yes, this was the house show part of Nitro, was a Jimmy Bad Diamond Dust Page TV title match, which Dave was told was basically a run through for the pavement match on Sunday, and told it was three and three quarter stars. Lots of answers with Diamond Doll, including stomping with her high heel shoe on Page's foot. Yeah, that was a fun match. I mean, that should have been on the fucking TV. Really good stuff. All right, so let's go to the torch, and they had their Nitro run down here. Bischoff, Mongo, and Heenan. I was at the show live, so I'm not, I'm not seeing this. I watched it later on, but I, of course I wasn't watching this live. Bischoff, Mongo, and Heenan introduced your show. Bischoff hyped Hogan and Sting and said, "Whatever you do, do not leave us for one second. You'll probably see what will go down in history as one of the hottest, most exciting wrestling shows of all time. This is without a doubt the Super Bowl of wrestling." Eric Bischoff, not the one not to use the hyperbole. <laughs> so, Mongo told the fans Hogan Sting should have been on pay-per-view, but they're giving the Nitro fans for free. He ain't lying! <laughs> Goddamn, pal, sounds like an antitrust violation. <laughs> and Bobby Heenan said he's cheering for Sting. Of course he is. So wait, did Eric Scott Bischoff no- say that it was the Super Bowl of wrestling, or did he say 
this is the Super Bowl of wrestling. <laughs> I wonder what Jim Cornette thought about that line since he just had the Super Bowl of wrestling in August, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> didn't his Super Bowl of wrestling out draw this one? If, if there was Twitter back then, 1995, you'd think people would have snitch tagged Jim Cornette to death during that, after that statement was made, like they do it all the time now. Yes. Anytime, anytime anything happens. What do you think, Ed Jim Corn D Jim Cornette? <laughs> okay, so wait, what was so this was a thirteen thousand dollar gate, mostly papered six thousand people, right? Yeah, I remember. I, I remember that the ringside tickets that we that we got, if I'm not mistaken, was about fifteen a piece. So Super Bowl in Knoxville in August drew about five thousand fans, you know, allegedly, but thirty-seven thousand five hundred dollar gate. <laughs> so basically, Buddy Landell versus Shawn Michaels, um, almost triple the eight of the first Hogan Sting match. Had better build. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, and, and, and there's other reasons too. All right. Um... Scott Norman pinned Shark after body slam in a minute 43. All out brawl from the beginning, other than that, stop by everything but the match. Shark and Norton showed each other after the match. Yeah, that's fun. While yeah. lasted, two, seeing two big dudes out there um, going off. Oh, nice little Haas battle. Yes, and at least Scott Norton finally got his revenge on Shark weeks later for costing him his match against Randy Savage. Yes. Gino could interview Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan. Hart tried to convince Steen to turn against Hogan. It's the whole thing that Randy Savage is Hogan's new best friend, not him. Bischoff won't allow how much Hogan could trust anyone, including Randy Savage. I hated all this. I hated it. Disco Inferno's music began, and he came out and showed off his new CD. Fans got into disco. They were definitely doing the disco fever, uh, the dances and stuff. I remember that. Eddie passed him on the way to the ring. Ric Flair came out in the street, calls Brian Pillman. Flair stayed so focused on Sting, they decided to let Pillman beat on Eddie and called Eddie his light work. Bischoff talked about commercials over there on Raw and great action right here on Nitra. Out of some great back and forth action, Eddie leaked on the Pillman, hit him with a barrage of punches. Pillman just out the ring. Eddie hit Pillman with a flying body bottle top row to the floor. Eddie scored a pin on the frost splash over Bischoff, and all WC announcers continue to insist is a jackknife in 617. Well, didn't it turn out that was Art's original name for the move or Eddie's preferred name for the move or something like that? I think it was the original name, yeah. Jackknife Slash. But either way, um, that, was not, that was not Bischoff coming up with that on his own, regardless. No. Before the commercial break, Bischoff implored fans not to change channel. They continue to drive that theme home time after time after time. We were disappointed because, we, I mean, Flair and Eddie was on the books. And yes, we were disappointed that we didn't get it. But Pill and Eddie was a pretty damn good match. So, all was not lost. Yeah, I mean, we should know, too, between the dark matches and everything else, early on, Nitro tapings had matches that were advertised weeks out locally. Yeah. Um, Hot pin Bibba Rogers in 346. Heenan mentioned the one-man gang would be in World War Three. In the end, Bubba tied up his fist with tape, bounced off the road, hit Hawk, but Duggan ran the ringside, turret Bubba. Hawk sees the opportunity to quickly cover Bubba and scored a pinfall. Eh. <laughs> Although the object falling was funny. I will have to admit that. Bischoff said they were just minutes from what we're going to end the biggest TV match in 1995. Sting's ring intro came first. After commercial, Hogan's music began. 
Randy Savage came down the aisle first, and he prepped the crowd for Hogan's intro. Hogan, though, came through the crowd. From the, yes, he did, from the other side of the ring. He, he walked in on the other side from where we were sitting, the opposite side. Um, I remember that. It was like a – because people were surprised that he was coming through the fans. They weren't expecting that. Uh, he was heavily booed. He surprised staying from behind. When Hogan won early offense, the booing continued. As this was definitely a pro-Sting crowd. Oh, I'll say. In a minute 20, Sting drug kicked Hogan to the mat and then drug kicked him on the top to the floor. Hogan, though, took over offense outside the ring. Hogan suplexed Sting outside the ring, but back in the ring at 233. Sting surprised Hogan with a body block off the ropes. Savage was at ringside, cheering on Hogan. Hogan worked over Sting's arm as the announcers club World War III. Methodical pacing continued for several minutes with Hogan on offense. At 720, Sting reversed Hogan to the ropes and then kicked his leg. And then he continued to work over Hogan's leg and applied the sharpshooter in 744. Hogan began a Superman comeback and escaped the hole. And I like how uh, Wade put Sting using the sharpshooter, not Scorpion Teflon. Uh, <laughs> Sting began punching Hogan, but Hogan blocked it and gave Sting a boot to the face. Sting, though, moved out of the way of a lead drop. Hogan grabbed his leg in pain as Sting went for the Scorpion again. The Dungeon of Doom entered the ring and attacked Hogan and Sting. Hogan and Sting teamed up to clear the ring of the Giant and the rest of the heels. All right, let's watch this finish, shall we? And uh, let's watch uh, my fellow com- uh, compadres at the main Coliseum and how uh, we all reacted to this uh, situation here. Well, I hadn't queued it up to the finish yet. I thought we were going to want to check out the beginning first to see the reaction there. Well, let's go to the beginning, and we'll, we'll do that then. We'll go to the beginning and see how, uh, how uh, the main Coliseum was sounding for all this. And also, to their credit, unlike the first few big-name Nitro main events, they made a point of blocking off a lot of the show for this. Yes. Because looking on the network, the Sting Hogan chapter starts at 30 minutes of 47.34 without commercial. Yeah. This is it! Hated that song. This is what we've been waiting for! There's not a butt in the seats. Everybody's standing. Here we go, baby. Let me tell you what. Pause. Yes. Circle it back 10 seconds. Got a match here, This is what we've been waiting for. All right. Um, you, you don't see my mouse on the screen. All right. See, go, it's all right. You see down there on the other 10 seconds, the, on, on the right side, go, go, uh, oh, go over your okay, mouse. Yes. Yeah, there. All right. See down there in that, that yellow at, right there, that yellow right there. That's about where I'm sitting at. Okay. <laughs> that's where about where I'm sitting at, right in that general area. Okay. All right. Are you able to see my cursor when we do this? Yes. Okay. I wasn't sure because it's only the one window that's being shared. But, okay. Yeah. All right. So back to the clip. There's not a butt in the seats. Everybody's standing. Here we go, baby. And let me tell you what, baby dogs. We got a match here, Bobby the Brain. Sting Galoo figure. I'm talking about the match of my face. You're Sting wearing the red and yellow, by the way. I just got that all wrong. So let's watch the match. Sting said that because he almost got killed by Pyro. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> he almost got the Michael Jackson Pepsi commercial treatment. Yeah. I don't blame him for thinking that was a little too close. Yeah. Trouble. Big, big trouble. What is going on? I'll tell you 
what's going on here. Sting is trying to bring Hulk Hogan back to where he came from. He's trying to bring him back to center. But I am afraid, I am afraid of what we are going to see here tonight because I have seen a sign of Hulk Hogan that I have never seen before and I've been watching him a long time. This is going to be a match that will go down in history. I just hear Excalibur these days when I hear Bischoff on Nitro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the delivery is very... Excalibur's better at it, but you can see it in the delivery. Man call Sam looks full of shit. Well, uh, I guess Awesome <laughs> Promotions did a good job papering it. <laughs> so what would the average ticket price probably have been? Oh, I mean, if Ringside was like... 15, 20 bucks, something like that. Then you're looking at general admission, it would be 10. Uh, uh, call it 13 to 15, something like that. And I think the upper deck was like five or something like that. So, so this is, no. so this is a thousand paid in that. Facility. Um, I think it's gotta be more than that. I think Dave's wrong about the gate. He's getting it directly from WCW though. I don't know. I, I just got think that's. I just think that's wrong. I mean, I do know there were a lot of freebies, but I just don't. It don't sound right. Because there were a lot. There were. I mean, there was a, a nice walk up. I saw that with my own eyes. Hmm. So I mean, I don't know. I'm looking to see with. Uh, see, history WWE doesn't have any crowd or or gate or paid attendance listed at all. Let's see what let's see the torch hitting thing on that. Just keep playing the clip. Mm -hmm. This is war. This is going to be a war for sure. Stay with us. We will be back. Why well, Hogan have I think he's just trying to weed out Brendan Foe, baby. Shut up. I can't wait. Man, hurry up. We gotta get back to this match. Hate that song. Man. WC declares war. Okay, I'm gonna skip this. Um Alright. Oh, real quick. Yes. Real quick, uh, the other dark matches on Nitro were the American Males over the Barrio Brothers. Uh -huh. And Dave Sullivan over the Gambler. Oh, that sounds like a hoot. <laughs> yeah. Did the Gambler right. try to win Ralph? <laughs> no. Into your chair! This we didn't get a Maxwell Mercer Saved by the Bell ripoff story. <laughs> Where is he? He'll be out. He'll be out. No, wait a minute. That's Savage. That's Macho. And he's got his arm in a sling. That's the Macho Man Randy Savage. We saw the injury earlier. More psychological warfare. But the rag sheets say that he's got a legitimate arm, arm injury. Huh, what a joke. <laughs> yeah. I still can't believe that we're going to see Hulk Hogan and Sting hooking it up live Monday Nitro on TNT. Get on the phone right now. I still can't believe that we're going to see Eddie Kingston and Jen Akiyama <laughs> live on TNT. <laughs> Call anybody you know, have them tune in, because you may never see this again. Oh, what a match. And I was trying to allude to you earlier, I ain't talking about
about to match up your face and my rear end, Mr. Heaton. I'm talking about a match people have never seen before. And there's Hogan. Hogan coming in. He's fighting his way through the crowd. And I told you, I told you this is something. He's got a mask on. It's like the Phantom of WCW. Sting doesn't even know it. championship of the world reputation there he is my friend here we go we are off and running let's see what you're made of no man no, I can't there, somebody I, I you know it's filming see this match i've got to tell you deep down in my soul i wish it would stop right now i don't want to see these two pillars of what is so important to so many kids yeah. around the world go at it but that is accurate Okay, so that brings up something I wanted to mention but held off on from when he was coming to the ring through the crowd and trying to go over the rail. Oh, that was funny, too. This is the worst his knees have ever looked when he was an active wrestler. He looks so old. But no, even even aside from how old he looks from shaving the mustache and the different gear and stuff, he is not moving well. No, I mean, he's just so old. And now, here, though, we get the first example of something he'd do again in, a, what is it, a month and a half in Charlotte. He knows he's going to get booed. Here, he does something to give the crowd a quote-unquote reason to boo him, so it doesn't come off... Blue him? I think I said woo. <laughs> you said, you said, you said, it sounded like blue. <laughs> yeah, the... <laughs> I don't think the crowd wouldn't have blow him. I'll tell you that. No, nobody, it's, like, that, no it's like when Tobias Funke blew himself on a wrestling no, but nobody wouldn't, nobody wouldn't have blow him that night. Um, no, but they, there he has a quote-unquote reason that he's being booed. And in Charlotte, they do the thing where he walks out behind Sting arguing with him so his music doesn't play so he doesn't get the big overwhelming... Excuse me, big overwhelming boos. So he... He seems cognizant at this point of what cities he's going to get booed in. They definitely get booed in Macon. All right, so now I'm going to skip ahead, I guess, towards the finish. Which, all right, went too far ahead. All right, yeah, I'll go back a little bit before this, before Hogan hits the uh, big boot. So he's doing the punches and the you and the blah, blah, blah. That man sold to drive him like that. They're doing the ooze. Well, they're doing the punch here thing. Comes. Because we love doing the punch. Put yeah. him out. Take him out, Hulk. To Hulk Hogan. It is over. It's not over. It's not over. What a match. What a match. He hurt his How about leg. that dude in the fucking awesome TBS satin jacket out there? And he's going for it again. Oh, no. He's going for it again. Oh, 
Hogan's right at the rope. We hated this. Uh, uh, help me, brother. He's going to break my leg. Uh. Meanwhile, the rope is right there if he just reaches his arm. I, I don't know if he was quite close enough to get to the rope. Bullshit. <laughs> okay, let, let's go back then. Uh, call Linda and the kids and tell them I love them. All right. All right. Let's watch. Look how close that rope is. Okay, I didn't real I didn't see how much his arm was parallel to the rope when that happened. Okay. All he's gotta do is stretch. Yes. What is this? What is this? Get those goons out of here! Hogan! Shuddy couldn't take it! And then the dungeon of doom came out! Down over this dude oh, coming no, out. No, 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 no. The giant. Yes, 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 yes. Get the security guards out. Where are they? Oh my goodness. Oh, oh, oh. Double your pleasure, double your fun. This guy's a giant. Crown him with it. What a cheap shot by Savage. As the giant was about to choke slam both Hulk Hogan and Sting. How about Hogan just then, huh? We are Hogan just wore, went out of the ring, not took, didn't say Savage. Okay, this is right. All right. All right, see you go. Watch, watch Hogan. Makes his stage left. Oh, he's getting the chair. That's why. Yeah, but still. Stays away from Hogan and Sting are about to crown him king, all right. Now they're working together as a team. <laughs> and they take this monster. And they get too easy. They use the chair to double close on. Oh, he's trying to get back into the ring, and we've got to go to a break. We'll be right back. He's trying to get back into the ring. Pandemonium. Out of here. You have no right to be up here. Jimmy Hyder, you need to get him out of here. Get him out of here now. Go away. You have no right. You as you guys. You need to be out of here. Be out of here. You need to be out of here now, both of you. Security. Security, get up here. I apologize. I apologize. You better get that thing out of my face. They've stopped. They've stopped. You better get that megaphone out of my face. We are six days away from World War III. What you saw here is an appetizer. That's how the show ended, folks. The main course coming your way on pay-per-view. He is a psycho. <laughs> you know, them three standing right over there, my little dog has got as much brain matter. Let me tell you something. And they like me. What do you think they're going to do with oh, World broke War III? Bobby's headset. They broke his headset. Like, it's completely broken because not it, the mic is yeah. not working and uh, it 
broken to the point it's not fitting on his head anymore. Yeah. Hogan, Sting, Savage, everybody else. Just... I tell you what, anybody that thinks that they can predict what's happening in WCW is twisted. We saw Hulk Hogan, we saw Sting battling it out, Dungeon of Doom comes out, then it's Sting and Hogan fighting off the entire Dungeon of Doom. Who is going to be the new world champion next Sunday? Let me tell you what, folks, what you just saw in that ring between Sting and Hogan and in the Dungeon of Doom, that's just a taste of what you're going to get. That was just one ring with just a few guys in it. I'm sorry, we've, we've run over. I apologize. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week right here on Nitro. We'll see you <laughs> World War Three. So they're your friends, huh? Only on pay-per-view. I need insurance. Man alive. <laughs> we all need insurance. I love it. I love it so. Uh, yes, still the earlier era of Nitro where we have the little closing Nitro slate, too. Yeah. Um... Is it me, or is for something that was very obvious, and knowing Kevin Sullivan was clearly on purpose, is it weird that no one talks about how the Taskmaster is supposed to be like Bizarro Hogan? It's just something I guess you're supposed to just know. But even then, like, no one ever talks about it, ever. Like, not then, not now. Yeah, because he's got the yellow, red, and yellow. And then when Hogan embraces the dark side, he paints the horns on his head, too. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that was uh, quite the uh, ending of Nitro. Yeah. <laughs> Going up against the Michaels angle, too. Yeah. And Torch has uh, their news on the ratings. Those two officials were hoping for a 3.0 or higher, but at the same time, fear with embarrassing ratings loss. They came close to being embarrassed. The film in WCW was that the WF did an overall better job on Monday night, and they may have dropped the ball on Hogan versus Sting by not promoting it long enough and ending it with a lame run-in finish. Gee, you fucking think. <laughs> I don't I even mean, remember what the angle they shot for this was. It was that whole thing where Hogan and Savage were doubt, kind of doubting Sting. Because of Luger. Yes. And because the... Uh, I almost said Nation of Domination. Because the Dungeon of Doom had not been attacking him of late. Yes. Yeah, that's basically what it was. They didn't trust Sting. Such a fucking stupid whole deal. And yeah, I mean, that was quite the quite the uh, ordeal there. But it, I mean, that was the, my first Nitro, and it was uh, it was fun. Definitely fun. Uh, better than, I mean, God, remember, the main Coliseum shows I was going to before this was fucking six-hour pro tapings. So... <laughs> To have a, a nice tidy show like this was a nice change. <laughs> I forget were you were you at the View Never Changes though? Yeah, you were. Okay. Yeah. Have we covered yeah. that week? I'm pretty sure we have. I yeah. think we did. Yeah, I just I, it's been a while since we talked about you be actually being there, so I wasn't sure. Yep. All right. Uh, center stage was taped on the 16th, so a few days before. Uh, Nitro, but this is for the Saturday night tape uh, taping, which was two days later. <laughs> um, in the opener, Lex Luger managed by Jimmy Harpin, Jerry Lynn. Wait, what was two days later? That it aired two Saturday days night. Later? Yeah, it aired two days later. Okay. <laughs> uh, Lex Luger managed by Jimmy Harpin, uh, J- Jerry Lynn, during which Luger was cheered by nearly all the fans. Joy Mags with Teddy Long scouting him beat Diamond Dust Page without Diamond Doll, but with Max Muscle by count out. 
In the end, Muscle tried to pull the ropes down, so Mags fell over the top rope, but Mags reversed Page into the ropes, so Page flew over and was catted out. After the match, Page turned on Max Muscle. I forgot about that. Um, I forget, if I ever said on here what my dad's uh, nickname for the Teddy Long Babyface stable was? No. Teddy's Long Shots. <laughs> How about that? That's like the dad joke of uh, wrestling well, faction he's names. Because guys, yeah. I know. Um, Kevin Sullivan with Jimmy Hart beat 80 Jackie. Mr. JL, Jerry Lamp in the gambler, who bled below his left eye. Match over 10 minutes was too long given the matchup. What the? Scott Norton won a squash. Dean Malenko beat Todd Morton with Achilles heel submission. Todd spelled like Todd Gorton here for some reason. <laughs> American Miss beat the Barrio Brothers by DQ. One man game at his center stage return, not his debut, and beat Scott Turner with a splash. Hacksaw Duggan over VK Wall Street with a schoolboy. After the match, Duggan taped his fist, but Wall Street got the tape and taped Duggan to the bottom rope and beat him up and walked away. Disco came out, dancing, shut off his Suedo CD. The Blue Bloods with Jeeves, their new assistant, Chives, beat Butch Long, or as we like to call him, Long Butch, and Book Quartermain. Yes. And then we have Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit over Dino Casanova, oh, oh. and Frankie, Frankie Lancaster. And then uh, it says Brian well, it says Pillman. Frankie Lane. That's him. Okay. Pillman and Benoit tried hard, but couldn't say this would be in the worst match of the night. No, I think it was... You... Uh... No, wasn't it Dino Casanova and uh, someone else? Well, Frankie Lancaster was working in WCW as a you know job guy. But he wasn't so. working as Frank Lane. No. I... That's a little too close. I mean, that's his real name. Oh, is it Wait, is it Lane or Lang is the real name? <sighs> Is one of them. Hugh Morris over Mark. Valentino was his partner usually, wasn't it? Yeah. Hugh Morris over Mark Thorne. And the Nasty Boys fought with the Super Assassins, a.k.a. Warlord and Barbarian. That's all it says. They fought him. They didn't give him a finish. They fought him. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, whatchamacallit. History of WWE does say Frankie Lancaster and Dino Casanova for this one. See? I know what I'm talking about. And, All right. Uh, uh, yeah. It says the Nasty Boys beat the uh, masked uh, powers of pain. Yeah. They had potential, but they just didn't know how to do it right. Super Assassins, you mean? Yes. They should have put them with the Assassin. Who worked there. Yes. Also, what happened to Warlord after this anyway? He got gone. And then yeah, Barb means... has the best one of his career. Means with Dungeon of Doom by himself at this point in time. So, yeah. all right, Flair will be out of action with a shoulder injury to Chris's break. On preview show, Sting will wrestle either Pillman or Arn Anderson since Benoit is wrestling Kensuke Sasaki. Uh, good luck with that. Savage will work against Luger, and the presumption in this seems to change on a moment's notice is they made the surgery at the preview show and be out after that point. Good luck with that, too. The Page GDP match by the TV Tell versus Bad getting Diamond Dolphy wins. And since Bad had the doll stuff already that was taped, Wade, or excuse me, Dave guesses that clinches that finish. It did. So there's that. Besides Raw, those are setting up with a hot Benoit Eddie match to the 2.3. Well, I guess that, no, I guess that this was for the Saturday after. That's right, because Benoit Eddie was the TV match before. That's right. 
forgot about that. Um, main event did a 1.8, and the pro show with the Japanese did a 1.4. Is this the Benoit uh, Eddie with the double knockout finish? I think so. Ah, yes, the era of pro with New Japan. Yes, where Sonny Ono bought half of WCW Pro from Bobby Heenan for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Yeah. Yeah, and originally they were going to show New Japan matches, but instead they flew them to uh, Orlando. Yeah. Yes, which... I forget, was it one of the pro announcers, or was it... Because, wait, Bischoff never, Bischoff never would have called an Otani match, right? No, it was always pro announcers. Okay, so it would have been someone on pro or maybe worldwide. Well, and I didn't see worldwide in this era. So there's something that happens during those shows where. So who would it have been with Sonny Ono on commentary? Chris Cruz? Uh, yeah. Okay, so if it's Chris Cruz, Chris Cruz keeps calling Otani Sheer Otani, as if that's his name. <laughs> that's Chris Cruz. At least his Twitter display name is no longer Justice. <laughs> Lord. Alright, it's it's Survivor Series. There was a banner on the screen for a long time stating Bring back Teddy Long. I don't know if it's changed policy or nobody in the truck knew who Teddy Long was and he was a WC personality on television. <laughs> Teddy Long's got his fans uh in the Washington DC metro area, I guess, huh? I guess. The Ben Whitey match Saturday night was on November 18th was the best WCW match of the year. If you focus away from the announcing and concentrate on the work, it was four and a half stars. Well above their Nitro matches. Pay attention to the announcers takes a good star away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, WCW announcing for pretty much the entire Nitro era, other than Dusty being an announcer, is, you know horrible in a lot of ways even then though when Tanae doesn't work Starcade and Tony does his research and really tries to be knowledgeable about the New Japan guys Heenan and Dusty just make fun of him for it openly on the broadcast constantly yes yeah it, I mean the best era if you want like the straight announcing really the best era of Saturday Night is Tanae and Hudson of the post-Jim Ross, or well, the post-Nitro. Yeah, the, the, yeah Nitro the, era. the Nitro yeah. era, yeah. Uh, yes. 100%. Yeah. And Dusty's entertaining. Yeah, Dusty's entertaining as shit. I mean, that's, that's the fun. He's but got a as far as like, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but the, the, like, traditional type of announcing structure yeah. is Tanae and, and Scott. Actually, Tony Schiavone tried to put the two over from the beginning as revolutionized for the wrestling, but then Dusty Rose disagreed. Basically, tried to put them back in their place. <laughs> oh me, Torch! I was right; she'll be back in action for next month after sitting out with a kneecap injury. Sister Sherry missed her flight to Japan, and her standing in WCW maybe up in the air as a result of that and other behind-the-scenes problems. That—that's very euphemistic for something, especially now we know this what this is referring to. Um, yeah. Because Harlem Heat went to New Japan and she was supposed to go with him, but she didn't go. Mr. Fly. Yeah. Um, presumably because of personal demons, so to speak. Imagine her in Japan. How that would have went. That meant something. As a manager, especially, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we know she did. Wait a second. She worked, she worked uh, 
the Savage Denver matches. Oh, I mean with Harlem Heat. Oh, well, oh, well. In New Japan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just doing different. doing that whole deal, you know? Yeah. Uh, this also reminds me, too, of how... Is the assumption that the internet bringing attention to it is why Booker T had no problem getting into Japan in the WCW era, but did in the WWE era? Probably. Because it wasn't really a known thing that he... Well, there's also the difference. There's also a big difference, too, if you think about it. WCW was working with New Japan. WWE's on their own. They didn't have that... Securing the work visas and stuff. They didn't have that political capital. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And speaking of New Japan... We close that out. Uh, Dave's thoughts to close out the section. Chris Cruz and Sonny Ono are killing New Japan gimmick better than Kelsey's nuts. Oh, gee, <laughs> I wonder was... who he was just talking to the who on the phone before he wrote that. <laughs> Is it someone who's about to fold his promotion in the next week? <laughs> the fact that he put that in the Observer tripped me out when I read that. <laughs> What is the origin of that anyway? Asbo James. It's all oh, yeah, southern. Wait a second. Fr- Isn't that but it's a cornet thing too, right? It cornet uses it, yeah, but I mean it's a, it's a southern wrestling, old southern colloquialism. Okay, I am I've Googled this. Uh worldwide words investigating the English language across the globe. Uh it's like all right, did, 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 have you ever heard of uh like somebody said they don't know they don't know they're from Adam's house cat. Mm-mm. You ever heard that saying? That's a Southern thing too. Okay. So it was about John Kelsey, one of the pioneers of car manufacturing in the U S. Uh, he set up Kelsey wheel company. Da, 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 da. Okay. So the saying refers to the proverbially secure attachment provided by the nuts and bolts on the wheels that his company made in the view of the public. Nothing could be fixed more tightly. Um, some examples from the 30s became widely known in the 1950s. Early on, it appeared as tighter than Kelsey's nuts to mean a person who was stingy or mean and is recorded in the form as safe as Kelsey's nuts, meaning very safe. In the early 60s, it evolved away from the obvious, these fairly obvious formations to the imaginative and metaphorical phrase still used today. It would appear to have close parallel to perhaps borrowed from the much older, as dead as a door now. Okay, so this does not actually refer to someone's proverbial testicles, which I always figured it did. It's about lug nuts. Yeah. Okay. I'm not somebody's balls. <laughs> no, but I mean, deader than. I mean, I didn't think it referred to at least... It just sounds that way, but it's not. You get my point, though. Yeah, you can't take everything so literal. I mean, deader than... I mean, that doesn't even make sense either, if you take it literally. So, I don't know. But he, I'm, I'm guessing uh, this was not Dave saying deader than Kelsey's nuts on his own. I'm guessing someone else said deader than Kelsey's nuts. <laughs> Probably. All right, let's go to Japan now, Land of the Rising Sun. And uh, not a whole hell of a lot going on this week, but some stuff. All Japan well, for wrestling. We're in the what? middle of the real world tag league. Not the middle, the big, the beginning. Well, it's you know what I show. mean when I say middle. <laughs> I don't mean middle literally. I mean it's going on. It's just started, yeah. Uh, the first show that the Real World Tally Tour on November 18th at Cork and Hall. Mighty Anyway over Monica Mossman. Shows Kikuchi over Kentaro Shiga. 
Haruka Egan and Masafuchi over Rush Kimura, Misawa Momoda. Abdullah Butcher, Kabbalah 2 over Yakako Zamita and Dory Funk Jr. Giant Baba, Timon Honda and Yoshinari Gawa over Satoru Sako, Junakayama and Takawamori. And then we got tournament matches, or real world tag league matches. Stan Hansen and Gary Albright over the Can Ams. Mitsuru Masawa and Kunikabashi over Johnny Smith and Rob Van Dam. And Holy Demon Army went to a 30 minute draw with Johnny Ace and the Patriot. So, uh, there's your tour opener at Corken Hall for the RWTL. Ace and Patriot in a 30 minute draw with Kawada and Tawai. You know, good for them. Yeah, that's notable. So, there you go there. Yeah. I mean, the other thing was I forgot that Albright started on this tour, basically. Yeah, it's Hanson's partner. Yeah. I, for- I forgot that UWFIs technically still existed when he started here. Hell yeah. War. Ultimo Dragon announced it on November 19th at the Super J Cup on December 13th with feature Grand Naniwa and Hanzo Nakajima from Michoka Pro. So no Sasuke, Delphin, and Takamichinoku, which hurts this show. Pussar announced himself, Lionheart, Gato, Jushin Liger, Shinjiro Tani, No Samurai. Remishiro Jean will face the coast in a singles match, but it won't be part of the tournament. Dragon believes that war can make Ray into an attraction and protect it using the right opponents. But in the turn, he'd have to do a job, and he's actually too light even against some of the junior heavyweights like Liger to not be exposed in a sense, and they want to protect him so he gets over first. Well, I mean, I guess in theory, that sounds like a good idea. He should just put his ass in the fucking tournament. Him and Sakosa would have been much better in that tournament. You think he gets over just as well if he beats Sakosa in the first round of the tournament and then... Okay, let me pull yes. that up. Let me see what your options are here. Okay, as I get to Super Jacob, 1995. Do we have an actual bracket here? Okay. So your first round was... And this doesn't include those who are getting buys, which is... It might just be Liger. I know... Uh, yeah, Liger's on the first round. All right, so it's Gran Naniwa over Damian Seisei-Seis. Shinjiro Otani over Masaki Mochizuki. Ultimo Dragon over Shuichi Funaki. Geto over Masayoshi Motegi. Well, let me finish. Uh, Dos Caras over El Samurai. Lionheart over Hanzo Nakajima. And yeah, that, that's your first round. With Liger and uh, Benoit getting the buys to the second round. Okay, so... I think Motegi have... and Damian could have been out of there. Yeah, so you shuffle matches around, so I guess you do Ghetto over Naniwa. Um, Ray over Psychosis and Ghetto over Ray. Yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. We're. I think we have to go with the idea that the rest of the tournament stays the same. Yeah, I don't know. And Ghetto going to the finals is a big part of the booking of this tournament. Yeah, he could have went over Ray. He could like ch- did some cheap finish or something like that. Cheated the win. Yeah. Or what if you replace Hanzo? Well, Hanzo goes out in the first round. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I feel like the only one where you can really replace the whole match is Naniwa to Damian. Uh, Motegi, you know, whatever politics there are there, if he's just 
everyone's friend or whatever aside, like, you obviously have to keep ghetto, so... Hmm. Based on what they were trying to accomplish with this tournament, I think they did make the right call. Yeah. If that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah. All right, Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Actually, wait a second. I just realized. No, you, you shuffle <sighs> it around however, you, however, and you have been... I mean, unless you think that's squashing them, squashing him in a way. But, like, why not just have him lose to Benoit or Liger? In the second round. Eh, I don't know. That is, right, is you know, it's less of a credibility issue, but I think it was the right move based on what they were trying to do. Big Japan Pro Wrestling. They ran on November 17th at Kurishi Central Sports Hall in front of 1,700 fans. Ichiro Yaguchi over Crusher Takahashi. Then we got the Falcon Cup Scramble League. We got a round robin match. Keizo Matsuda over Yosuke, Yosuke Kobayashi. Bruce Okamoto over Daisuke Tawe. Yuji Taniguchi over Seiji Yamakawa. Then non-tournament matches. Shoji Nakamaki over Keisuke Yamada. Yoshiaki Yatsu and Masiko Koji over Iceman King Parsons and Chris Adams. And a barbed death match. Keno Nagasaki over Action Jackson. This one that shows you, you started out, you know, okay, okay, you know, get your Japanese guys here. Here's Iceman King Parsons and Chris Adams. Well, Chris, <laughs> who's presumably booking the foreigners here? Uh, Kendo Nagasaki. Where was Kendo Nagasaki living for several years? In Dallas, of course. As part of that indie scene, too. But still, just hit you like a ton of bricks all of a sudden. Yeah. So there you go. What a list of foreigners Big Japan has had over the years. Yeah, they've, uh, in their incarnations, they definitely, uh, ran the gambit of, uh, foreigners, that's for sure. King Parsons, Chris Adams... Action Jackson, Homicide, Chris Hero, uh, Zandig. What the CZW guys? Tranahasid. I mean, and the Metzgen wrestlers and all the other stuff. I mean, it's just, there's a whole bunch of them that's come through. Yeah. All right, uh, FMW. And a surprise. Guess, well, okay, so wait a second. Who is the greatest British wrestler in the history of Big Japan? Chris Adams or Drew Parker? Oh, Chris Adams. And a surprise, Mr. Pogo, who had been negotiating with New Japan and had done angles on both Tetsumi Fujinami and Takashi Shikawa's indie shows, after quitting FMW, returned to FMW on November 20th at Akata Star Lanes, teamed with Super Leather, beating Mr. Danger, Mr. Masanaga, and Hayabusa. Pogo used a knife to rip apart Hayabusa's mask and ended up pinning him after two power bombs. FMW sold out the 2,500-seat arena and did two title changes, with Koji Nakagawa beating Ricky Fuji for the independent junior heavyweight title. Is Shark Shashuya beat Megumi Kudo the women's title? All right, results here. Bad Boy Hito over Gosaka Goshikawar in your opener. Combat Toyota and Yuka Nabeno over Bad Nurse Nakamura and Miwa Sato. Kastosh Niyama over Makayato. Nakagawa over Fuji for the, light, for the junior heavyweight title. Wayne Kanamura Masato Tadaka over Hideki Asaka and Tetsuya Kuroda. And then Shark Shashuya over Megumi Kudo for the FNW World Women's title and the WWA Independent World Women's title. Daisuke Akeda and Mark Ashford Smith, Mark Starr, over Hiskatsu Oya and Horace Boulder. And then Mr. Pogo and Super Leather over Hayabusa and Mr. Danger. Your main event. So I guess the Fujiwara Gumi presence here is a result of the connections that all these guys had made on the Florida Indies while Hayabusa was over there. 
Well, how long has Horace Boulder been coming to FMW? No, I mean, I mean Mark Starr and Keda. Well, still, but Horace Boulder's Florida. He was there. Hmm. So he's a connection. And Mike Awesome, even though he's not on this tour. Yeah. So I would go with that or anything else. But do you think that's the reason Akeda's there, too? Um, he's just working. Okay. Akeda would work all kinds of little groups at this point in time. Okay. Speaking of little groups. Go Gundan. Remiko's a new promotion at the time. They ran Chofu Green Hall Small Hall on November 17th from 150 fans on the show titled Do My Best Forever. Good luck with that. Where we had Kimura Samio going to a three-round draw with Koichi Tanaka. So that's presumably Shigeo, some kind of different style fight. Yeah, Shigeo Kimura, who's worked more promotions than anybody in the world, went to a 10-minute draw with Takeshi Miyamoto. Hopper King went to a 10-minute draw with Super 7, which is Ultra 7. Doing a uh, soup, doing his uh, Super Seven gimmick, um, and Hiroshimana Rumigo over Fumio Akiyama and Hiroshi Hatanaka. So the names I don't recognize here, are, like, did Fumio Akiyama become someone else? Or I don't did, think so. Does he just toil in Indian security? A lot of these guys just fade away. You know, they work for these. They work for people like Rumigo and stuff like that, and then they just fade away. Michinoku Pro, Miyagi Japan on the Urban 20th, 343. We have Chigaya Nagashima over Toshi Yamatsu. Kotokun Lee over Yoni Genjin. Takamas Horn, Grace Sasuke over Nerushikawa and Hanzo Nakajima. And then a tag lead match, Grand 91 Super Dolphin over Shuichi Naki and Takamichinoku in 28 minutes. So, uh, there you go. All right, Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi. I'm, I'm just also annoyed that you didn't uh, use Funaki and Taka's uh, official team name. Especially his baby. What babies. was that? The Dream Chasers. Uh huh. All right, Pearl Spizuara Gumi officially folded up the November 19th show of Yokama Bunker Gym. The show had PWFG combined with Michinoku Pro. Oh, so that's why Akeda and Star were on the FMW show. Grace Sasuke headline keeping his British junior heavyweight title beating PWFG, Switch Fanaki on top. War, Ultimate Dragon worked a martial arts mixed match, winning by submission against Karate Fighter. And FMW, Hiskasa Oya and Gladiator worked a tag match. However, during the match, Gladiator blew out his knee. And was hospitalized and maybe needing surgery. Almost all the rest of PWG quit the promotion after the show. The exceptions being Daisuke Akeda, Shuichi Fanaki, and of course Fujiwara, and joined Fujiwara's longtime protege, Yuki Shikawa, for a new group called Alpha Japan Promotions, which runs their first show on, November, oh, not, on January 13th at Corkin Hall. It's rumored they will do shows with help from both Rings and FMW, which is a weird combination of promotions to be working together. Alpha Japan. Huh. Which would be Battle Arts. All right, results of the final uh, show here. Takeshi Ono over Satoshi Yoniyama. Minoru Tanaka over Hiroshi Kosubo. Of course, Yoniyama's Yoni Genjin. Kosubo Subo Genjin. Abe over Maze. Not Willie Maze, <laughs> but Miss Maze. Um, Kasumi Yasuda over Oishi. I don't know. Uh, mixed Martial Arts Rules match. Ultimo Dragon over, I guess that'd be Takashi ok- Okamura. President Okamura. Hmm. No first name listed. Yuki Shikawa over Takamichinoku. Hiskatsu Oya and the Gladiator Mark Kossum over Mark Ashford Smith and Daisuke Ikeda. Ryuji Murakami over Yoshiki Fujiwara by disqualification. And Bruce Conway Jr. Waitata, Great Sasuke retained over Shoichi Fanaki. Wait, is Ryuji Murakami Kazunari Murakami? No, I don't think so. 
Okay, because that was not a familiar name to me. Um, okay, as I pull up Cage Match, what date does it say for the first Alpha promotion show? January 13th. That's Battle Arts. That's a Battle Arts show. Because Cage Match doesn't have anything for Battle Arts before April. Uh, I remember seeing that as a Battle Arts show on tape trading sites. I'm checking to see what, if there are other 1996 results for him on here. Okay, Cage Match has it as Alpha Japan Promotions. Hmm. Okay. So, okay, Corican Hall, 2,222 fans. Uh, wrestling Data, my preferred choice of wrestling websites, has it as the Battle Arts debut show. Okay, well... <laughs> and just looking at who's... Okay, so, and yet, does Wrestling Data say who Pequeno Guerrero in the opener is? Yes. Who? I'm um, clicking on it now. Uh, that would be uh, Pequeño Guerrero. Oh, <laughs> Trained okay. by Dr. Carante, Io de Gladiador, and Rambo. Okay. He's the father of Pequeño Guerrero Jr. Well, that's good to know. Um, But yeah, I mean, this was, like I said, this was the first battle art show. So, but it's the same thing, like, you know, same thing. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so as far as help from rings in FMW, I guess they work with FMW a little because they become one of the promotions that recognize the independent junior title, but do they work with rings, or do they just have some eventual ex-rings talent migrate over? Well, you got some people that would go over here and there. But back and forth? Of the, of the, uh, not the main guys. No, but I'm saying, like, Wataru Sakata didn't go back and forth. He just eventually went to Battle Arts, didn't he? Or what? No, he, never he really, go straight to Zero One. He, what am I thinking? Yeah. He never went to Battle Arts. Yeah, I was thinking, who am I there thinking? There were guys uh, that were worked Tyra? shots. Tyra? Was Tyra a rings guy? No. There were guys that were shots. Okay. So it did happen, but it's, it wasn't much. No. Okay. No. Speaking of rings, they held the quarterfinals of the Battle Dimension Tournament on November 16th in the Goya before a 41-28 and 11,000-seat Aichi Professional Gym. With attorney belts having Hans Nyman knocking out Ibrahim Micha, Yoshisha Yamamoto over Mitsui Nagai, Volt Khan over Andre Kopolov, and Akira Maeda over Bitsadze Tariel in 512 with a choke sleeper. So the four winners go to semis on December 19th at Osaka Professional Gym. Uh, results. Willie Peters over Toro Sakata. Shoshi Kasaka over Dennis Raven. Then Nyman over... It says Nyman uh, over Ibrahim Mika, right? As Dave's results. The wrestling results sides, Mikai Adekin. <laughs> Big difference. Uh, Yoshishi Yamamoto over Misuna Guy. Volkan over Andre Kopolov. And Akira Maeda over Besides Toriel. So... There's rings. Now, um, UWFI's Kiyoshi Tamara has resurfaced in a strange place. He was announced for the December 9th K1 martial arts show in the Goya Rainbow Hall against, of all people, Patrick Smith. Being that Smith is doing a match in Japan just one week before the Ultimate Ultimate means he's not taking the UFC seriously enough, which Dave guesses would be considered good news if you're a fan of Dan Severn. That match would be under kickboxing rules, and since Tamara has never done a kickboxing legit, match, and Smith is an experienced kickboxer, Smith should win easily. Kimo will have a match on the same show under Pancras rules against Satori Honma. Well, it ended up being under Valley 2 to rule anyway, and 
Tamara won. So there you go. It wasn't a kickboxing match. No, it was not the sport of the future. He won uh, by heel hook. There you go. Yes. Um, also, just, you know, think about some of this ring stuff, too, going back for a second. I just realized kind of like one of the big indicators of when they go from work to shoot, they didn't keep doing Battle Dimension anymore once they started doing King of Kings, did they? Mm-hmm. Not coincidentally, <laughs> King of Kings tournament era is when all of the future MMA legends start coming in. Mm-hmm. Yep. God, there are way too many pro wrestling matches in rings that are on people's official MMA records. Of course there are. Pride, too. No, but rings when rings was explicitly a pro wrestling promotion. Yeah. All Japan women, their WrestleMarine Pod show on November 18th, your 3,400 fans at Yokohama Boko Gym mm. with Blizzard Yuki, Sakashigawa, and Reina Jibuki, Akira Hokuto over Black Blizzard, Karuhito, and Manami Toyota in 1704 when Yuki pinned Black Blizzard. The semifinals of contenders match where Yumiko Hoto put up her number two contendership. Yeah, not number one, number two. Against Kyoko Inoue with Inoue winning the match and getting her ranking. Also this week, Hokuto announced a compromise in her angle about saying Bull Nakano and Linus Asuka were past their prime and not worthy contenders of the tag title on December 4th Sumo Hall show. Hokuto said that she wouldn't defend the title so against their past, past their prime contenders, but that she would face them in non-title matches. If they lost the match, they would voluntarily relinquish the title. The office then announced that if Nakano and Asuka won their match, then there would be a match to decide the vacant title in January, and they would be in that match. Uh, results of Russell Marine Pad. We have uh, Yoshiko Tamura retaining her All Japan Women Junior title over Masai Watanabe, Biggs in the opener. The Biggs offer match. Then we have Mariki Yoshida and Yumi Fukawa over Nobu Endo and Mina Taniyama. Black Joker, Tomoko Watanabe and Takako Inoue over Toshio Yamada and Chaprito Sari. Mima Shimoda over Etsuko Mita. Bo Nakano and Linus Asuka over Aja Kong and Reggie Bennett. That's was steam, Bennett. Kyoko Inoue over Yumiko Hota. Blizzard Yuki and Rainy Jibuki over Manami Toad and Black Blizzard. Isn't uh, Mina Taniyama the future Tani Mouse? Yes, of course. Of course it is, Biggs. Or as she was referred to early on in the Observer, Tiny Mouth? Yeah, of course. How can you, uh, can you forget that, Biggs? This is one of your fa- all-time favorite wrestlers. So, yes. No Neo Ladies Pro Rest yet. We talked about that last week. Oh, what, a, what a clash that is, too, to have a tag that's the future Arcean standouts versus the future Neo-non-standouts. <laughs> Whatever you say. Ne- they were standouts in Neo. All right, to make this Eurasia, we got the Auto Fonsa CWA. They had a show on November 19th at Stadthalle in Bremen, Germany. We had Fit Finley win the Battle Royal. Franz Schumann over Dan Collins by disqualification. August Schmeisel over Bindun Drew McDonald. Ice Train over Fit Finley by disqualification. Sure. Rambo over Big Titan, Ray Bodner. Fate Razor. And then CWA World Tag Titles. Yo Baby, Yo Baby, Yo, Cannonball Grizzly, and John Hawk, Bradshaw, retained their titles. Go to no contest with Tony St. Clair and Victor Kruger. Soon to be part of Battle Arts. So, so you had a tag team of PN News and JBL. <laughs> sure. A quality tag team. Yes. Also, I like the battle of secret Canadians in the semi. Yes. With uh, Monsieur Rambo against Rick Titan. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's go to other North America now, and we begin with the IWA, Tony Candela's promotion. Yes. In TV Morris, TV. Manitoba. Yeah, TV taping. Morris, Manitoba. Never heard of Morris, Manitoba before, but anyway. Oh, uh, TV taping, yes. We got Lance Storm over Mike Wildside. <laughs> Mike Wildside. Did he have a brother named Brad Worldwide? Jeffro Hogg over Outlaw by Cat Out. Jeffro Hogg. Pharaoh and Eric Freeze over Gama Singh and Champagne Jerry Morrow. In a handicap match where Timothy Flowers beat Paul Apollo and Mike Wildside. Ultimate Dragon over Chris Jericho. <laughs> Chi Chi Cruz over the Outlaw. Thunder Warrior over Mike Wildside. Champagne Jerry Morrow and Gama Singh over Eric Freeze and Pharaoh in a rematch. Timmy Flowers over Joe E. Legend in a street fight. In our main event, Rip Martell over the natural Don Callis by disqualification. Yes, Dragons in Canada with uh, Jericho and Lance. Yes. Have you ever seen this match? No. It's quite good. Um, it's in. It's not in one of their usual TV venues, though. It's a theater, if I remember right. What's in Morris, Manitoba? Wherever that is. Okay, let's map it. Morris, Manitoba to Winnipeg. Maurice, Manitoba. It's about an hour outside of Winnipeg. About an hour south of Winnipeg, it looks like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Looks like there might actually be a highway or something, though, so you're not driving over the ice. Well, that's good. Well, let's hope so, for their sake. Yes. Uh, gee, I wonder who the booker is here. <laughs> Only had to work one match. It's the last one, and he didn't have to do a job. Yeah. He was putting on a good TV show, though. Other issues with him aside. Mm. Triple A. Let's go to Mexico. Dr. Alfonso Morales has been back doing commentary from the reports. The Observer guy, he's been making even more of a joke about doing the show since Payne trying to get him replaced. Morales is a respected sportscaster on television who does many sports sites wrestling, including boxing and auto racing. But it's most famous for Lucha Libre and the most famous one in the country. For whatever reason, he's gone from being one of the most serious announcers in the world to being someone who pays no attention to what's going on in the ring and makes jokes. Pena, among his other complaints to Televisa, was about Morales as an announcer. But appears Pena's recent victories at the Televisa office were short-lived, as CMLL has their TV back. Io Dos Santos been on television every week with CMLL. Morales is doing the AAA shows. And Morales, probably because he's aware of all this, is said to be lowering his attention to what goes on in the ring even more. Dave guess he's getting himself prepared to do WCW. <laughs> okay, let's see. Hmm. Complaints about Televisa announcers cracking too many jokes and not taking calling AAA matches seriously in the Wrestling Observer. Hmm. I wonder who Dave talked to on the phone right before he wrote this. <laughs> Boom. Well, who's not going to be there much longer either? Dr. Alfonso Morales. But seriously, though, like, this is one of those things for decades with Conan. <laughs> Complaining about the television announcers. Yeah. You know? Gonna be t gonna be touring the U.S. soon. Yeah. Things are gonna get better after the next election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. Next Mexican election. God, remember when mm -hmm. every wrestling podcast, he would, he would start to break down Mexican politics? <laughs> So you got the, I remember when he did that. the pan and the pre. Yeah. Yeah. 
I remember that. But yeah, Alfonso Morales did not seem to like doing Triple H shows. Not, I mean, not after a while. Yeah, early early on, he was taking it more. Seriously. He was there from the beginning. I mean, early on, they were still basically doing the same thing as he was doing with CMLL with Arturo Rivera. Yeah. So, there's a lot of similar stuff. When when do did the two promotions start having distinct announcing crews? <clears throat> Um, well, I mean, Alfonso Morales and Arturo Rivera were announcing there from the beginning. They left. They weren't doing similar at the same time as AAA. Morales never did both at the same time? Because I was, I just want, if he did, it wasn't long. I just watched, uh, watched like one of the first AAA, uh, AAA shows and their announcement for the CMLL crew was uh, Miguel Linares and, um, uh, God, I can't remember the other guy's name. Another Rudo announcer, and somebody else, but it wasn't Rivera Morales. And Zuniga and Magadan were not around yet. Not yet, no. No, they come a few years later. Hmm. All right, AAA, Equitado, on November seventeenth. We have Los Dragones de Oriente, one and two over Atomico, Mister Rebelde. Expertritos, one and two, over Baby Rabbit and Super Muñequito. Juventud Guerrera, Pero Silva, and Picudo over Io de Pero Aguayo, Misterioso, and Abolador. Acon Dorado Jr., Evi Metal, and Latin Lover over the Vianos, three, four, and five out of qualification. Chicana Power, Supernetico, and Cien Caras over Conan, Pero Aguayo Sr., and Tedebus Jr. in the main event. And then another TV taping in Toluca, not Tacula. But Toluca, Mexico, on November 19th. We have Baby Rabbit, of course, that's Suki, and Mini Frisbee over Espetritos. Montevideo, both over La Serenita. El Duende, Huito Guerrero, and Mosco de la Merced teamed up with Quarterback and Ravagna to beat Boomerang, Discovery, Frisbee, Luxor, and Venom. Sure, that was a nice little match. Coco Amarillo, Coco Azul, Coco Rojo over El Mexicano, Thunderbird, and Winners. Piso Negro. And Jerry Estrada, Pentagon, Pedro Jr., and Piano 4 over Heavy Metal, La Parca, Mascara Sagrada, and Octagon. So there's your AAA TV tapings for the uh, week there. Some interesting looking undercar matches, that's for sure. Yeah. Dave knows that the Pedro Aguayo Cibernetico title change is a must see tape. The match was so awful, it was like watching three or four Hiroshi Watch Tom McGee matches in succession. Absolutely the worst world title match in recent history. I remember it being bad. I don't remember it being that bad. So I'm going to go back and find this one. <laughs> okay. Oh, and I don't Holy think you, shit. Oh, and as far as identities, also, I realize I don't think you mentioned uh, Boomerang is Kaida. Yeah. Holy shit. A mini Frisbee character debuted this past weekend, which we just talked about. Oh, that's his debut. Thunderbird, Thunderbird from Tijuana also debuted. Said he'd been nervous and didn't do that well. And not that I think anyone would think this anymore, but because he just got mentioned on Dynamite. No, Luchador Thunderbird is not Brett Como. No. That used to be a thing that came up all the time. No. They've heavily been pushing the Tenebus Jr. Chicano Power feud at all the television tapings into a match in Los Angeles. The December night show is easy. The weakest lineup Triple H brought Los Angeles, and most suspect they'll draw the smallest crowd to date. Thus far, Triple H has yet to draw less than 7,000 pain in Los Angeles, but Dave says they'll be lucky to come close to that this time. Hmm. Similar. They ran a remake on November 17th. 
We have Lady Star going to a draw with Yuki Lee. Esther Moreno, Lola Gonzalez, and Soshimano, Rafael Kimura, Chicago Shiratori, and Jaguar Yokota. Hmm. Oro 2, and over Ray Bucanero in an NWA Welterweight title tournament match. Tonino over Onita Jr. in an NWA Welterweight title match. Rocky Santana. Bacano de la Muerte no, 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 over no, no. No, Onita Jr. is fine. Get it, Chihara. That's right. That's right. That's right. Bacano uh, de la Muerte over Atlantico. Io de Santo over Astro Ray Jr. In their quarterfinals, Felino over Oro 2. Uh, Io de Santo over Arcanon de la Muerte. This is block. And then the, the final of the block, excuse me, uh, the quarterfinal. The final of the block was Io de Santo over Felino. So he advances to the next stage. Uh, Best of Savaje Quejos and Satanico over Esta Garza, La Fiera, and Shocker. And they connect those cars in Nismark over Apollo Dantes, the Jr., and Emilio Charles Jr. But wait, there's another tournament. On November 19th, for Rank Sale, there's a women's title tournament, the TWF Women's title. What the hell is that? And that was the one that would be defended in like, JD and shit. We have Bice Camaro over Soshimada, Esther Moreno over La Diabolica, Chicago Shirtor over Princess Blanca, Lola Gonzalez over Bambi. That That's one? Got, that, that, that has to be, I think. Bice Camaro over Esther Moreno, Lola Gonzalez over Chicago Shirtor, and Lola Gonzalez over Bice Camaro. And an Astro Ray Jr. beat Metallico to take his mask in a muscular country muscular match. Hmm. <laughs> That's got to be the Bambi. It's got to be. I'm I'm looking at cage match. Not that I think it matters because they have stuff wrong like that all the time. Although, if, if I search Bambi's profile for Mexico, nothing comes up. Yeah, so who knows? It, Lola Gonzalez versus Bambi. Huh. Yeah. That's a match. I mean, is anyone yeah. else in this as recognizable Luchadoras or Joshi wrestlers? So I feel like it kind of has to be Selena Majors, right? Why not? Did she work Japan at all? Yeah. Okay. Uh, looking at Cage Match, she had only worked for FMW, and she hasn't been there in over a year and a half, for whatever it's worth. Who knows? She was in the uh, FMW Independent Women's and WWA Women's title, Tournament where she defeated Yuki Nubano in the first round and lost to Crusher Metamori in the second round. Well, let's go now to some MMA Extreme Fighting Championships Battlecade. Showtime Entertainment. The Extreme Fighting. Yeah, the Extreme Fighting Championships may be more memorable because of what happened in the days leading up to the show than the show itself. The heat began more than a week before the event when State Senator Roy Goodman of Manhattan out of press conference at City Hall decrying the event which resulted in both the New York Times and the New York Daily News running stories. Now, we talked about that on the show we did a few years ago, all that going on. It came to a head two days before the event was scheduled to take place with a pair of court hearings. The first during the afternoon came when a district court judge wrote a division of military and naval affairs, which leased the Brooklyn Armory to the EFC group, and because of the political, he was attempting to get out the signed contract, had no legal right to do so. The division had leased the 4,000-seat armory to Battlecade Inc. for $8,000, and tried to revoke the lease, claiming it was misled to believe the event was going to be a martial arts tournament rather than a political hot potato. Hot potato, hot potato, hot potato. Also, I just realized Showtime was World Combat Championship. This is uh, Babuccioni, right? Tastely done. After immediate appeal to the Court of Appeals later that day, a second judge gave the Division of Military and Naval Affairs the right to stop the show in this building, saying the rules of the competition violate state laws regarding assault and battery. 
The latter is a questionable ruling because it would mean the government should also stop any boxing, football, hockey, or any other contact sport from taking place for the same reason. While this is going on, Roy Goodman in the Howard Stern Show became the main publicist. Goodman's attempted in succeeding to get the show out of New York gave it untold and local and some national publicity. Goodman first publicly announced the show not taking place in Brooklyn on November 15th, day for the court fight, only to be contradicted by both the promoters in the building. He came back later that day and said it still wasn't going to happen. But that first announcement was truthful but premature, and announced it wasn't going to happen was going to take place the next day. Meanwhile, on the Thursday morning before the court fight, Mr. T, who was doing the announcing on that show, and that was scared in the worst Sonny Ono nightmare, was on the Stern Show, saying that no matter what you read or hear, the show would be taking place in the Brooklyn Armory, and also made the point of saying that this was the real deal, not the whole Kogan Pro Wrestling stuff you see on television, which he was just a part of the year earlier. The next morning, two core fights, promoter Donald Zuckerman was on the Stern Show, assuring listeners that there would be a pay-per-view event on another site, and all ticket money for those who purchased tickets in Brooklyn would be refunded. Probably, despite all the hassles, those involved promotion for the incredible amount of publicity in the days leading up to the show would do wonders for the buy rate, particularly in the New York market. Since one week ahead of time, there appeared to be no interest at all in the event, and all of a sudden, it became major talk, particularly in the market. On Friday, the honor Roger fighters, managers, and promoters, and the rest that was in New York for the show packed up and took a bus to Wilmington, North Carolina, to Carol Co. Movie Studios, a 500-seat site kept so secretive even the bus driver, when he left, wasn't told where his final destination would be. Most competitors weren't told the final destination as well. In fact, things have been kept secretive among the competitors from the start is when they received literature to come to New York even as late as one week before the event, they were told their hotel, but told the site of the event was considered top secret, not to be revealed, despite having been reported here weeks ago. The AP on Friday night broke a story that the group was headed to North Carolina, but didn't know anything more specific than that. When they arrived for the show, besides about 100 hangers-on, they gave tickets to a few hundred locals who had little no idea what it exactly was that they were coming to see. The folks in Wilmington weren't thrilled at hosting a pay-per-view either. It's not a healthy involvement for the community or anyone associated in the community, said Mayor Don Betts in an AP story. It's a free country. There's very little we can do at this point, but it's not something we'd encourage. North Carolina, which hosted a previous USC event in Charlotte, and the inaugural World Combat Championships in Winston-Salem, has enacted a giving the Athletic Commission the power to ban such events. But the statute doesn't go in effect until January. After all that excitement getting the show in the air, it was a pity that the level of excitement didn't carry over to the show itself. It was by far the weakest of all UFC-style events because of poor production and hard announcing. There were no tournament graphics, no introduction of who would win, fight who. It appeared they were doing tournaments in three weight divisions, except they never had a lightweight championship match, despite Mr. T, who probably wasn't included in seeing how secret everything was kept, telling people to stay tuned to see one of the early lightweight winners later on. Equally annoying was the falsifying of records and credentials. Granted, this has gone on to an extent in UFC and WCC, but this was the worst and most transparent to date. Everyone was given undefeated records, at least some of which were fraudulent, if not all of them, to the point they couldn't have even been taken seriously in many cases. The funniest to fans of this genre was when Rudyard Moncayo, who was destroyed in about a minute by Patrick Smith at UFC 6, came out, and announcers talked about his undefeated bare-knuckle record. <laughs> USC, USC was never acknowledged during the show, and the promoters claimed their stream fighting as being an 80-year-old sport developed in Brazil being brought to the United States for the first time. Well, let's talk about that announcement, shall we? The revenue announcement was handled by Dave Bontempo, 
And Caleb Oxing announcer wasn't good, but wasn't awful. And John Peretti, the matchmaker, who knew the subject, but came across as incredibly annoying on television. Speaking of a color commentator comes across incredibly annoying on television, for whatever reason, this was the Let's Put Over Gene LaBelle show. LaBelle, a former wrestler promoter whose mother Eileen Eaton and later brother Mike ran the Los Angeles office until a fall in, in 1982, and announcer, was legit national champion in judo in the early 50s. He later became pro wrestler judo Gene LaBelle. During the pregame show out of nowhere, Joe Lewis, not the boxer Joe Lewis, but Joe Lewis, a famous kickboxer for the 70s, was asked with no rhyme or reason how Gene LaBelle would have done a competition like this. And Lewis put LaBelle over saying there was a famous cauliflower ear club in Southern California. And the guys all say the real pro wrestlers that were the toughest were Carl Gotch, mispronounced, Billy Robinson, and Gene LaBelle. Later when the show was utilized during the show, they called it a Gene LaBelle tactic. But Bell was a shooter in Los Angeles promotion in the days when promotions had such a person, and that from the mid 50s to the mid 70s, whenever a Mart would want to be a wrestler or claim wrestling was fake, they put them in the ring with LaBelle, who would stretch them. Nevertheless, this is the first time Days ever heard LaBelle mentioned in the same breath with Gotch and Robinson, who were considered world class shooters during the same basic period. <laughs> All right, Bix, any thoughts of what I've been reading through so far before we get to the actual show? I've been trying to figure out how there's a venue that can hold 4,000 people for combat sports in Park Slope, and no one's booked it. The Brooklyn Armory, Bix. It's your neck of the woods. I, I'm trying to think, with, like, are there if I've ever heard of anything being held there other than this. Um, okay, so it's officially the 14th Regiment Armory. Um, conversion to okay. We have a spot that the conversion to sports complex and shelter on Wikipedia. Uh, part of the armory became a 70s bed women's homeless shelter. Um, it's been transformed into a recreation center. It's the Bedford Union Armory, and it's a it's the also uh, wait. So it's okay. So they redid it, but there is a sports complex operated by the Prospect. Beck Park YMCA, that's still part of it. So I don't know if it holds as many people now than it would have, or as it would have in 95, but it's there appears to still be a rentable sports venue there. Um, this is such bullshit. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't have no problem with air conditioning. Stop it. Well, that one was technically a community center and drug rehab. <laughs> Um, they're not lying that it's a martial arts competition. As we'll see from, as we get into some of the names on this show, it was not particularly entertaining, but it also has the highest level of fighters fight for fight of any UFC style show so far. I mean, it gets better with the subsequent shows, but the fact that you have other Brazilians and the other Gracies and all that. Like, you have a higher level of fighter here, but sometimes that makes it more bro- boring. But that said, like, it, it's a legit, it, you know, it's, it, and we've talked about this a zillion times with the UFC New York stuff, too, and it's bullshit. They didn't lie to them about yeah. anything. Yeah. You know? Like, just so stupid. Um, you know, there's the New York Times coverage and the like, if we wanted to read this. It was this, you know, with the state canceling the lease and everything. Um, yeah, how long? How long did 
was how many days was this a story for? I'm curious. So the coverage starts on the 14th. Yeah, we did we did a lot of coverage on that um, that other show we did the show before this one. Yeah, it basically went on for four days into the show being moved. Okay. Oh, we have the press release from Battlecade. Extreme fighting will go on. In battled event will air live on pay per view tonight, Saturday, November eighteenth. Uh, uh, Battlecade Inc. promoters results a blow in their efforts to stage their November eighteenth Extreme Fighting Cross Discipline Martial Arts event in New York when the state's upper court refused to hear the matter until next week, making it impossible to stage the event at Brooklyn Armory as originally scheduled. Yet the fight will go on as scheduled in an undisclosed venue in North Carolina. In announcing the change of venue, Battlecade President and CEO Rick Bloom stated, Our First Amendment rights have been trampled by the state of New York, and this, that is outrageous. On Tuesday, the New York Times reporter Ira Barco agreed with us, writing that, quote, Political critics may want to ban extreme fighting, but there are lots of other ills to cure first, from schools to health care. Available to approximately 25 million viewers in the U.S. and Canada throughout, through pay-per-view services, Viewers' Choice and Request TV, as well as satellite distributors, DirecTV, Prime Star, and TVN. Pay-per-view costs will be $19.95. So they issued a press release to make it clear that the show was still happening. They needed to. Yeah, I, I can't say they <laughs> made the wrong move there. Um, well, let's talk about the show. Yeah. I have Gracie put Makoto Muraka Morocco, excuse me, in a choke in 40 seconds, and the ref stopped the match because Morocco either wouldn't or couldn't tap out. It was a total mismatch. It was a lightweight under 160 match, and there was never a of it. There was no lightweight tournament. Morocco was being billed as from being Sapporo Japan and the middleweight champion of the Japanese game shoot fighting promotion with unbeaten record. Actually, it's from Los Angeles, although he was born and raised in Sapporo, and is a kickboxing student of Benny Equitas. He had done a few legit shoots with the game group, Grant, Ameri- Grant Miller's America Shoot Fight Wrestling Promotion, which is both done legit shoots and worse shoots, and a four and three legit record, including losing to people with no actual shoot training. He was still overmatched against a Gracie. Outstanding. Do you remember what game stood for? No. Great American Matt Endeavors. How about that? It kind of makes me wish that a. MMA promotion or a submission grappling promotion ripped off Omega. Yeah. In the middleweight tournament match, 161-199, Igor Zinovev builds a Russian judica, made Harold German, a boxer, submit in 40 seconds by taking him down and pummeling him with 17 punches from the top on him. I love, Another obvious pre- mismatch. I love that you made a point of pronouncing judica correctly. Well, that's what it is. It's judica. All right, Gary Myers, an amateur wrestler who's done some indie pro wrestling in the Muncie, Indiana area, destroyed kickboxer Tom Glanville in 220 when he broke Glanville's guard and hit him with three powerful headbutts, and Glanville tapped out. This was a first-round heavyweight division match. Glanville had studied ground fighting. It was no pushover, like a powerhouse at 6'2", 245, with an Isaac Yankum, David Schultz-type face with the dyed hair. Glanville was not silly, and while the ENTs were in the ring, John Peretti was insisting he was okay. And I think like this happened to him all the time. <laughs> he was a loser. Um, his dyed hair wound up being soaked in blood, though that wasn't evident on television. Myers was billed as having a 150-0-1 record 
which of course another falsification. And she's 30 years old and was an AU national champion in 198 and freestyle in 1988 and Greco Roman 86 87. So, as a top class wrestler, he is the real deal. 150 of them won. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's it. it Look at who If we you're going to fake a record. No, I know. Yeah, if you're going to fake a record, come on. Now, all that's it. I mean, you're still 150? Uh, still, think about this for a second. We are now three fights deep. We've had a legit Gracie against someone who, while not much of a fighter, was someone who had been doing legitimate, you know, shoot martial arts competition. In that was somewhat of a mixed fighting thing. We have Igor Zinoviev, and we have a legit high-level amateur wrestler against a kickboxer who had actually cross-trained and knew submissions and stuff. So far, even without that many big names, but though we have a couple. Seems a lot better than a lot of the UFC field up to this point, you know? Yeah. All right, next match. Mario Sperry. Build as being a ridiculous 272 and oh. Jesus Christ. Caught Rudyard Moncayo with a wrist lock in the middleweight division match at 242. Sperry is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert from the Carlson Gracie School. Carlson Gracie's younger brother uh, of Helio, and on this show, was billed as the greatest fighter of all time. They tried to push Sperry as the toughest man on the planet, which actually did build a lot of excitement in the final match when he ended up losing. The greatest fighter of all time, Carlson Gracie picks. I mean, it's not that terrible an exaggeration. Yeah, but the 272 record? Uh Rudyard Munkayo, though, is one of my favorite early MMA just names. Yeah. Orla- no or- Rudyard Munkayo and Orlando Wheat. Marco, Marcus Silvera, also known as the Brazilian Conan, 6'2", 247, who now lives in Miami and teaches Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, beat Russian Victor Tatarkin in 228 when he got behind him and began throwing punches and elbows to the back of his head before the corner turned a towel. Again, in the UFC at this point, where are you going to get, when are you going to get a first round tournament match, especially with guys this size, as credentialed as Conan Silvera and Victor Tartarkin, who was also legit? I mean, the, the roll into the knee bar that Oleg Takarov was doing in this, era, in this era that Goldberg would do as a pro wrestling spot later and all that, that's called a Tartarkin roll. It's named after him. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. So, like, you can see, like, this is a, you know, it's not making for great fights, but this is a very legit field and really a credit to John Peretti as the matchmaker. Next, we have the best name on the show. Another lightweight match, Alfonso Alcaraz. Love that name. Because it sounds like Alcatraz, but it's Alcaraz. Of Las Vegas beat Robert Loyer of Ottawa in 115 when the match was stopped by the doctor due to blood. These were both kickboxers, but Alcaraz had wrestled in college and immediately took Loyer down with a double leg takedown. Lawyer had a nice cut, but was in the middle of the forehead and didn't look dangerous on television. But they were being overly cautious after all the bad publicity early in the week. And because of what happened to Gladville. Lawyer was furious, the match was stopped. If it was a kickboxing match, it wouldn't have been stopped. But said they were going by the extreme fighting rules. They later showed a shot backstage of them sewing stitches into Lawyer's forehead. Then we have Carlson Gracie Jr. going to a draw with John Lewis. A Las Vegas JSEC martial arts fighter. This is where it turned to a fiasco. Lewis was a LaBelle protege. 
the LaBelles and Gracies have had martial arts magazine awards over the past few years. Anyway, Lewis basically held onto the fence to be kept being taken down. With no judging system, no restart rules in USC when nothing is happening, he pretty well held on for the duration. If there was ever an argument that the restart rule in USC is a bad rule, this match killed the argument stone dead. You know what would be a better rule? Look- Banning fence grabbing. Yeah. For some unknown reason, the match was called a 1446 of a 15-minute time limit, which they explained due to a timekeeper error. They were then supposed to have a five-minute overtime. Lewis went back to holding on to the cage immediately and hung on again. At 3.36, the match was called. No explanation was given as to why immediately a problem with satellite time would come to mind. Because Lord, because Lord knows that the USC fiascos, nobody wants to go overtime, except they did. Then about another 10 minutes worth of interviews before getting to the next match. Gracie, a first cousin of Hoist, didn't get a chance to show a thing. It came off looking bad. Then to make matters worse, from the 10-minute mark of the match on, Peretti kept talking about how great it would be to rematch these two in EFC 2. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, and this is the fight that really comes to mind when you think of people who were legit, but it did not make for a good fight. No. I, I had forgotten that Lewis was a LaBelle guy. I re- for some reason, I remembered him being a Carlson guy that they put against Carlson, because the thing I remember jumping out from this one is when it's over it seemed like a respect thing at the time now i'm not so sure uh, i believe at the end of this carlson kisses him on the forehead <laughs> and also carlson while not old was very balding and looked old and it just didn't help matters yeah all right next match marcus conan severo beat um myers twin head with division gary myers uh, this was a good, good competitive match. Myers, who was about five foot seven, two ten, built like Taz, tackled Silvera, who went into a closed guard. He tried to turn Myers, but Myers went onto the cage to a headbutt or two, which opened both men up. Silvera worse than Myers. The doctor started matching check on Silvera's cut, which was alongside the eye potentially dangerous, but he begged to go on. They let him. As he restarted, Myers again charged in, in the exact same scenario as Ken Showers, Dan Severn. His eagerness left his neck free, and Silvera got a perfect front face off for his submission at 3.33. So there you go. The finale for the middleweight division saw Zinovev beat Sperry at 11.41 and upset. This was one of the best bouts since this genre hit America pay view. Sperry kept getting Zinovev in trouble from the mount position, and somehow Zinovev kept getting out. Zinovev was cut from none of the eye and from the punches. There were a few reversals back and forth for Zinovev. Shockingly got Sperry in a choke for the submission. Despite Sperry tapping out, the announcer should first called it as the ref thought the match called Sperry was bleeding. Great. Oh, that's nice. This group is somebody the same period in March. Kevin McLaren and David Isaacs of USC were at their New York press conference, and the basic word going around is that anyone who works on an opposition pay-per-view show would network a USC event. <laughs> this genre this genre's quickly turned to another world like pro wrestling and pro boxing with both the best and worst elements of both worlds between the fake credentials, the attempts at secrecy to the point sometimes of paranoia, and the real fights in the cage. The New York government's success in getting the preview moved out of the state is only going to make things more secretive and thus more sleazy and deceptive as all three somehow go hand in hand. Well, I mean, in the world of competition, you're going to have shit like this happening, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the way it is. Everybody's not going to be kumbaya and want to work with each other. It's competition. Yep. So, that's the way it is. 
All right, the ESCVN early estimates are just under a 0.3 buy rate, or about 6,000 buys, and estimated $539,000 gross. Because ESC spent so little on production as compared to pro wrestling and even UFC or WCC events, this is probably a profitable figure, even though the live gate was zero since all the tickets were given away last minute in Wilmington. Majority of the buys came from the Northeast, particularly in New York market. So all the controversy caused by politicians would get so much media attention that it apparently proved to be the event saving grace, as there's very little interest for all the political hoopla. Funny how that works, isn't it? Funny how that works. And I mean, here's the thing. That's what social media these days and just anything. People complain about all these bad elements getting uh, all this publicity and stuff like that. You know, whether you're politicians or you're people that have just bad takes and sports, entertainment, whatever. The reason why this shit gets out there so much is because you have people out there spreading it around saying, look at this, what's up, what they're saying. You know, they're, they're virtue signaling all this stuff. And that's what gets it out there to the broader audience. You know, if people would just ignore some of these idiots, <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be nearly as prevalent as it is, all this in- misinformation and shit. I, mean, I, I get it, it to a point, but I mean, something like this is going to benefit much more directly from any publicity is good publicity kind of thing. I know. I know. I'm just, I'm just talking about this in general. Well, I, I just want to talk about this in general. Yeah. As far as like people complaining now about stuff, you know, like your fucking uh, nut jobs, like a uh, Marjorie Taylor Green and people like that. If you just didn't pay attention to them, they they wouldn't. Their message wouldn't be nearly as loud as it is. You know, that's just how it is. But it's it's a tricky balance. It's if it's uncritically being shared. Yeah. Well, the media, the media, the media, and this is, goes to this too with this whole ESC thing. The media will take this hot story like this and run with it like crazy to draw up ratings for them. Mm. Just like these nuts that's in politics and stuff now. So it's all about, you know, getting their business going because they have to report on controversy. Controversy creates cash. Here at Bishop's book. You know, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, you. You can't just have a, a boring newscast or you know this that and the other. You you got to report on controversy like that. Politicians feast on this shit like like this uh, back then with the EFC because it gets them FaceTime in the media. They and that's the thing they love the most, you know. So perfect storm. Yeah. Um, I was looking at some of the trade stuff about this. Um, not going to read this whole thing, but I found something interesting in it. Please don't. No, of course not. No, but I found something very interesting in a uh, R. Thomas Umstead multi-channel news article from right after our week. I don't remember this being in any Observer stuff. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, it says that earlier in 95, Request told UFC that they wouldn't distribute future events if they didn't place additional rules and safety measures on the shows. That doesn't sound familiar to me, does it to you? No. Interesting. But yeah, I wanted to get that in there. I thought that little line was interesting in light of everything we're talking about here with uh, this specific event. But yeah, the shows would get a lot better with starting with the second one, if I remember right. But they're only four, and then they go out of business because right as their their cards start getting really good and they start getting more like Olympic wrestlers and stuff, 
for credibility is when everything goes to hell with Cablevision dropping MMA and all that. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. That's a great 1995 commercials. And we'll come back to the United States and to the indie section where we have the uh, A Day in the Life of Sabu, November to Remember, ECW. Uh, Jim Cornette gets a present from Butch Cassidy and Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And a very different USWA television show. All that and more after the break. The Beatles Anthology is brought to you by The Private Issue Card. What's the card you design? It's a private issue. Kodak. Kodak is proud to bring you these memorable moments that made music history. Pepsid AC Acid Controller. You can be heartburn free with new Pepsid AC. And the all new Ford Taurus. A look you've never seen from a name you know well. Ford introduces the all new Taurus. For those who see life as a journey and want to enjoy the ride. Its speed-sensitive steering and responsive new suspension help you take new roads with confidence. While the powerful new 24-valve Duratec engine can go up to 100,000 miles between recommended tune-ups. Which means you can go as far as your dreams. The all-new Ford Taurus. Oh, I wonder if I can get it framed. Oh, but where will I hang it? Over the fireplace? No, no. I know. In the bedroom. Not the fireplace. Not in the bedroom, no. Ah, oh, but it could go nice in my wallet. Introducing the private issue card. Painted by Ringo Starr. Call 1-800-4PI-CARD. What's the card you design? It's a private issue. Cinderella, Cinderella, the mice made her dress, and then the evil stepsisters tear Cinderella's dress. That's my necklace, that's my bit. And the fairy godmella came, and then she waved her wand in Cinderella's dress, just boom, to a gown, a beautiful white gown. She had some new pair of shoes, she had the dress, she was looking good. Walt Disney's Cinderella. There's no better time to bring home the with new Pepsid AC, the strongest, longest acid controller. goes undercover to expose some dirty cops. I'm a businessman. And gets backup from another U.S. Marshal. What side of the bed do you know my sleep on? Can they survive Southern hospitality? I got this guy right where I want him. What's next? Who wants to know a neck, boy? The Marshal, Monday on ABC. Wednesday, when Rick ignores Grace at Thanksgiving, is his goose cooked? I think she likes me. She likes anything with two drumsticks and a meaty back. Say grace at a special time, 8, 7 central. Then they're making a movie in Ellen's bookstore, and she's an extra. Yeah! Carrie Fisher guest stars on Ellen. It all starts at a special time Wednesday. All right, let's go to the uh, indie scene now. And uh, quite a little bit going on here. Let's start out with uh, New Jersey. NWA New Jersey. Camden, New Jersey on November 18th for 225 fans. This is an afternoon show. 
Garrett Domino and Glenn Osborne over Johnny Gunn, that jobber Tom Brandy, and the Rock and Rubble. What a card this is, too. Virgil over Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Rick Ratchet over the Inferno Kid. Duke the Dumpster Drozzi over Nikolai Volkov by disqualification. Blue Thunder over Jungle Jim McPherson by disqualification. Debbie Combs over the female Robbie Rage. Ghetto Blaster over Twig Ramirez. Street Fight, Brothers of East Los Angeles, a- Angel Vera and Bobby Muniz over one of my favorite PWI 500 uh, tag teams, the Lost Boys, Yarn Wolf. Skip, Chris Candido over Ace Darling, and Sabu over Hakushi by disqualification. What a show. I mean, this is just a New Jersey supercard here, Biggs. This is Pete Car. Cor- I almost said Carluzo, Cortluzo. Peak Coraluzo, yes. Um, I am trying to pull up the thing uh, that Bahu post, tw- posted, well, tweeted a few weeks ago from the, uh, whatchamacallit, the Jinzei Shinzaki WWF diary that ran in, I forget if it was Weekly Pro or Gong. Um, well, I guess we'll have this later for Survivor Series, too. But, all right, here we go. Although, let me double check if does he say anything about this in the previous entries? Okay, no, he does not. And, of course, everyone follow Brett on Twitter at Bahu, B-A-H-U-F-M-W, and also his website, uh, fmwwrestling.us, for an incredible wealth of translated uh, FMW and other deathmatch-related stuff. But Absolutely. Anyway. But anyway, November 18, 1995, in NWA. When I arrived at the venue, Sabu was also there, and the promoter said... It's going to be a duel between the two of you. I'm guessing Dennis did not actually phrase it that way, but... (laughs) A duel to the death. I called the WWF and got the okay from them. So... They didn't know? (laughs) And that's a match that was advertised in advance, wasn't it? Or was it not? (laughs) I don't know about that, but I'm like, they didn't know? Sabu (laughs) seems smaller than the last time I saw him. Maybe it's just because I am always around big wrestlers. The match was nothing special, just a normal match. Sabu botched a Frankensteiner out of the ring and landed on his head. He was a little numb around the neck after the match. We shared the pain. Sounds like a Sabu match. Yeah. Doesn't sound like he botched that one on purpose, brother. (laughs) No, especially... You thought he'd be careful considering what he's about to do in just a, a few hours from then. It's Sabu. I know. Some of these other results, though, we've got Jim McPherson back on Corluzo shows, I guess because it's not like Larry Sharp's really running anymore. We've got Duke Trosi versus Volkoff. Uh, I guess Debbie Combs is there as an Eddie Gilbert thing, and Robbie Rage was her touring opponent at the time, right? Possibly, yeah. Actually, wasn't Debbie Combs also the NWA Women's Champion around this time? Yeah, that's probably what has more to do with it than anything else. <laughs> yes. Uh, Virgil and Jim Neidhart, aren't they already having their feud in Vegas at this point, built around racism? <laughs> yes. Where uh, Jim Neidhart uh, attacked uh, Virgil dressed up as the thug, who was a guy in a Klansman <laughs> outfit, and then he unmasked his Jim Neidhart, and then the actual thug came out and joined him in beating Virgil. Yes. Ah, uh, wrestling. And Skip versus A. Starling, which I'm sure was a fun uh, <laughs> wrestling match. 
Yeah, quite the show here for Dennis Corlusa. Yes, and of course, but anyway, use the yeah. cage match results. It says Lost Boys, Lost Boy Wolf, and Lost Boy Yar. Yes. You know how they are. But anyway, speaking of Sabu... Now, a lot of this may sound familiar to some of you, because uh, we covered all this in the Fuck Sabu Patreon series. Yes. But it's got a lot to do with what we're talking about on this show, so we're going to run it back. That's a good to Extreme Championship Wrestler. Sabu returned to DCW Arena in an unannounced match on November 18th, beating Hat Myers in a move that has a number of political ramifications. Sabu was introduced earlier in the show as Paul Heyman came out saying, a surprise for the fans is going to turn out the lights. It's going to be no fire and no fire extinguishers in this surprise. Playing up the fire situation the last show. When the light came back on, lights came back on, Sabu was in the ring, pointed to the ceiling, and the crowd was chanting, thank you. And Sabu and Heyman hugged in the ring. According to Heyman, Sabu and Heyman reached a deal on November 1st for Sabu to appear on the November 18th show. But Heyman wanted to kept a surprise. The two agreed for Sabu to work only the one show, which at press time is all they had been officially agreed to, although there's obviously a good chance Sabu will be back as a regular. Boy, that's, that's not a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I mean, if you're bringing Sabu back, it's more than just for one fucking show. Especially when you're doing the task, you'll turn the same show. But well, also, as we talked about on the Patreon show, and that was something I don't think either of us remembered until we went through all of it, the newsletters, more so the Torch, if I remember right, had been reporting that Paul and Sabu had basically come to a deal for him to come back months earlier. Pretty much, yes. But anyway, the results of the surprise were numerous. Sabu, the one for WCW, although to the best of the observer's knowledge, never signed the contract offered him. WC have been upset with Sabu for numerous reasons, such as him brawling out of the ring more than they wanted him to and going longer than his schedule of TV batches. In addition, the sheet was supposed to throw fire Halloween Havoc, and it caught everyone in WC by surprise. Sabu was unhappy at being a mid-car performer, and those in WS say he insisted on not having his weight announced because of the belief it would be categorized as junior heavyweight. He couldn't work on top. WCW analysis wrestlers work any shows provided they don't work for WF Smoky Mountain and ECW, which are considered as enemy promotions. There's no secret within the company that wrestlers and booking committee, while admitting to his guts and work ethic, thought he was a poor worker, which is why they kept his matches short. Sabu working the ECW day for Dickinson was kept a secret from WCW management, but it's in a tenuous position. Sabu had left for Japan near press time, who was able to be reached, had told another reporter before leaving that he called her Eric Bischoff on the River 20th, and Bischoff told him he was too busy to talk with him at the time. He said he didn't watch Nitro and heard Bischoff on commentary talk about a wrestler who was no longer with the company and to call the WCW hotline to find out find out who. And he called the Mike today message, and that's how he found out he was fired. Wait, 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 what kind of hotline. attribution is told another reporter? <laughs> Did this person report this? Well, you know. Also, Dave's on a I'm going to check. I just remembered something. I'm going to check the Patreon notes. Didn't we have something in the Patreon shows about someone needing to get a reassurance that Sabu was not with WCW anymore to do the Hakushi match? I vaguely remember that. That's the building. So I'm going to try to find that now. But uh, well, On the hotline, today talked about the Sabu situation. Especially Sabu may be in trouble with the company, but Sabu hadn't been told anything by that point. What had been reported elsewhere, Sabu had quit WCW. Nobody in WCW was aware of the fact, nor was Sabu. Well, the meeting were aware of the tension between the two sides and thought a split was inevitable. By the way, 
He was still built in advertising both the Battle Royal on November 26th and also to face Eddie Guerrero on the December 11th night show in Charlotte. However, he probably wasn't going to make out of the date either way because his three-week tour of Japan began on November 23rd. Okay, wait, we have this in the notes coming up here anyway. But here's the thing. How is Debbie Chevy advertising for these dates when he's booked for New Japan? Didn't we talk about this on the show, too? Yes. Their we sister promotion? Yes. The promotion they're explicitly telling wrestlers is their sister promotion? Yeah. And the promotion that they're doing the most business they've ever done with at this time, with New Japan on, on Pro? And the WCW versus New Japan tour? Yeah. Yeah, weird. Alright, um, even stranger is the situation regarding Sabu and in the NWA promoter Dennis Corluzo. Corluzo had asked Sabu to work an afternoon show on November 18th in Camden, New Jersey, in early October. Well before Sabu and David Storm tore the house down on October 28th. Sabu turned down the date in early October, claiming the booking in San Bernardino, California. There was an indie that night in San Bernardino. According to Corluzo, on November 13th, Sabu called him up and said that either the show itself had been canceled in California or that Sabu had canceled the date because New Japan booked it for the week, but then canceled the shows that week, presuming High Station Gun Tour, since New Japan canceled all High Station Gun shows, and New Japan never had any show scheduled for that week. He told Corlusi he would fly himself in to work to can this show and pay for his hotel room. The two agreed on Sabu to work for less than his usual price because most of the local publicity had been done without Sabu's name. But since Corluzo had gotten clearance in Doe after Yusakushi on the show, he figured he could get the word around in five days of a Sabu versus Sakushi match and it would draw some extra fans. Because Doe initially freaked out by a supposed WCW versus WF matchup and wanted to stop, but they were latest and wanted to keep good relations with all promoters. Corluzo had to work at DQ Finish because Doe insisted Hakushi not do the child to a WCW wrestler, and Sabu was the one Corluzo wanted to push. At the show, they shot an angle lead to a future Sabu Devin Storm match on Corlewis shows in December when Storm interfered for the DQ, and then Sabu put both Storm and his manager to a table after the match. Corlewis said that Sabu had told him all along he knew he would go back to ECW for one day because Todd Gordon would pay him a lot for it, but since he had no plans to do so at that point, and never took Corlewis of his plans to work the evening show to the point where Corlewis found out after the show was over. Corluzo claimed he outright asked Sabu about it, and Sabu denied it, and was really upset about it because he considered Sabu a friend more than a business associate. So he didn't begrudge Sabu the opportunity to make money, but he felt bad because Sabu made an ass out of him, and that Sabu had always told him they were good friends, and he didn't think that kind of move was something friends would do to friends. Okay. Let me go back to the Shinzaki thing now, now that we've read that. So what he said was, as translated by Brett, um... Okay, so he must not have known. Shinzaki must not have known at all, is the issue. And I wonder if Dennis had told WWF at all. I'm guessing not. He had promoted it around town, but that was about it, it seems. And Shinzaki obviously doesn't want to get in trouble, so he calls and gets the okay, I guess, if we put these two stories together. Um, Okay, so as far as the Sabu and travel and the tour side of things do we want to talk about that now or do we want to get to Heyman's side before we get into that i guess we do the Heyman stuff first all right so uh Heyman says sabu asked him after he had already agreed to the dcw arena show if he could work to can this show claiming Coraluza was the one who asked him to work the day Heyman said he had no problem with it, and actually liked the idea because there's been ecw fans who saw sabu at the hotel 
while he was in town that weekend. He said that if any of the fans knew Sabu was on an ECW show, he'd cancel the booking and told Sabu not to tell anyone. However, word of Sabu doing ECW Day started spreading on November 11th, and by midweek it became a strong rumor in wrestling, and was reported on the Observer Hotline that it would most likely happen. And when Heyman talked about the surprise in the ring, there were chances for Sabu before he showed up. However, Corluzo was unaware of any of this, nor had Sabu told anyone while he was in Philadelphia. Sabu later told another publication he hadn't made up his mind until 6 p.m. that night when ECW came through with the money, which he said was the single biggest one-night payoff he'd ever received as a pro wrestler in the United States. He wouldn't say what the figure was, but when the figure of $1,500 was brought up to him, he said it was well in excess of that. Sabu later called Corluzo when to keep his December dates, and according to Corluzo, told him to, uh, he didn't decide until last minute to do ECW show, and did it because he was getting the $3,000 payoff for the night, which was too much turned down. Corluzo claimed Sabu told him that because he felt bad about what happened, he offered to pay Corluzo half his payoff. He said he hadn't told Corluzo about it because he didn't know for sure if they'd come, come up with the money until he got to the hotel, and they gave it to him after the can the show was over. Heyman refused to comment on the size of the payoff, saying he didn't want to give credibility to anything Corluzo said by responding to it. The figure on the surface seems hard to believe from a business standpoint. The argument can be made that business often goes out the window and anything's possible in the wrestling war. Sabu told Corluzo he asked for Heyman. He asked him for two grand a shot for the future, and Heyman agreed to his prize, which Heyman also refused comment on. Honestly, despite the three people involved here, well, Dennis was generally a fairly straight shooter in the newsletters from our experience. It does kind of yeah. seem like everyone is being fairly truthful here. It's yeah. just that things lined up in a way they did, and also, I mean, it... Like I think it's some. I think it's more lies of omission, is what we're looking at. I think yeah. the Japan Hisation Gun tour was scheduled and canceled. Like they said, it fit. There was a show that was in California that Sabu could have worked. Um, the payoff stuff fits Sabu's mindset, and Paul is just refusing to acknowledge it, which is kind of out of character for him. It seems like everyone's kind of telling the truth in what they're saying to the newsletters, but they were also all kind of working. Well, Dennis wasn't really working anyone, but Paul and Sabu were kind of carnying him, but are basically telling the truth now. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I mean... Dennis, we got what? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. If Dennis had any was going to have any kind of issue with it, he's not an idiot. He, what? Why did you think Sabu was flying himself in and putting himself up in the hotel allegedly? Well, Sab Sabu did shit like that. He did. That's not. In I mean, Sab Sabu was known for doing shit. I mean, he would pay for other guys to get be booked on shows. I mean, he would take okay, care of their trains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Sabu's known for that. He, I mean. Luis Piccoli, basically the last few months of his ECW run, Sabu was the one paying him. Because Heyman refused to pay him. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> that's one thing you say about Sabu. Sabu was always one of the most giving wrestlers of all time. Very giving. So I firmly believe he probably did that. But uh, we have more on this on the uh, on the Patreon show. The Fuck Sabu Patreon show, but Patreon.com slash Twin Sheets. So everybody go check that out if you haven't listened to it already. Yes. Um, 
I would say maybe the most underrated shows in our Paul and Eddie canon. Yeah. So, have a listen to that. All right, let's get to the remember to remember. At the DCW Arena before tournament capacity crowd, which saw Bubba Ray Dudley, who got a huge pop through the ring announcement and did the announcement fine until stuttering on the phrase, let's get ready to rumble. I should point out that this was advertised this was in a 60-minute time limit, too. Yeah, he, it, Bubba's extremely entertaining here. He's got tuxedo on and all that shit. He didn't destroy Tony Stetson and Donnie Allen in a handicap match. Paul Lee then came out and introduced Sabu. A great TV moment. Lights going out. Everybody knew kind of what was going on. And then when Sabu hit the, you know, when the lights came back on, Sabu was in the ring doing his pose. Place was going crazy. Sabu and Paul embraced. Place went crazy even more. And it was the it really was time... a great moment. Sorry. First time you did the lights gimmick, too. For Sabu. Very, very, very first time, yes. That's where all that started, folks, was on this on this night right here. Conan and Jason in 30 seconds. Well, special referee Taz laid Jason out. Stevie Richards pinned El Puerto Riqueño. During the match, Richards brought out a new flunky called the Blue Meanie with blue hair and bossed him around and told him the moon saw El Puerto Riqueño, but he missed. So here's Meanie's debut. Yes, and Dave has the Brian Rollins parenthetical because that's the name he had been using on Indies up to that point. Yeah. That's Brian freaking Rollins. <laughs> the Pitbulls beat the Eliminators in the next match. Then we get Rey Mysterio Jr. beating Sakosa in a Mexican death match. Rules where that falls didn't count, although falls could be taking around the building and the bat ended when one wrestler after a fall could be the count get back in the ring. Ray used a Frankenstein on the top of the stage to the bottom of the stage on the Sakosa's for a pin. And Sakosa's had four two and falls, couldn't get back in the ring. Match wasn't as good as usual since Mysterio's ankle was badly swollen. He was limping badly, although he stood an incredible Asai Moonsault. Yeah, it wasn't as good as their first EC Arena match, but it was still a pretty damn good match. Yeah, I guess the best would so, be the two out of three falls match in that series. Yeah. What, the Ray Sakosa ECW? Didn't they have a two out of three falls, too? No, that was Ray and Hoovy. Are you sure there was... So Ray and Sakosa's only had two ECW matches? I'm pretty sure they had two singles match ECW. And their other match attack. It was Ray and uh, Conan. Ray Conan versus like, Park. Sakosa's... Yeah, that was it. Yeah, Ray and Hoovy did two out of three falls. They did two yeah. of them? Yep. Sure did. Are you sure? I could have sworn they had three. Nope. Because it's been two months since the first match. Are you sure they did not have a match? Psychosis had not. Psychosis, no. Psychosis only had those ECW matches. I'm looking. No, they did have two out of three faults on October 17th. Are you sure? I mean, excuse me, October 7th. Okay. It was on the Rise and Fall of ECW DVD. Because I don't think that was on TV. Yeah, I'm not sure if that aired, now that I think about it. I don't think, that's why I don't remember it. <laughs> it was on ECW TV, but I don't think it aired. And then the tag was on the fire show. Yes. Because uh, the first match was on uh, September 16th. At Gangs of Paradise, yes. Yeah, that aired for sure. But yeah, I don't think this this aired. Let me look which, and see here. Which one has Gertner doing the intros in Spanish, though? Uh, no, it did air. It aired on October 17th. Okay. I just don't remember this. Okay. In fact, it was the only match that aired on the show, basically. Hmm. 
other than the clips and everything else. I just have no memory of that. Wow. It shows you how impactful it was, I guess. All right. Uh, so we go from that to, um, oh, this one had memory. Sam Antico Scorpio kept the tag tells me in public enemy in a match with a man who took the fall will get a singles title match later in the show. Fans chanted, please don't go to public enemy. Johnny Grunge juice heavily. Sam ended up getting the pin. The public enemy is obviously being phased down. Yeah, this is a, uh, this has been a really good feud with these, these guys right here at this point. This is where we get dancing Sandman's in this, and this is when the Sandman character starts to change a little bit. But uh, yeah, Sam, Sam and Scorpio becoming the regular tag team. So yeah, good stuff in this feud. But, but yeah, Sandman becoming endearing is what sets up his babyface run, pretty much. Yes, pretty much, yeah. Bill Alfonso beat Todd Gordon in a surprisingly entertaining match. Bill McGillicuddy was the referee, but she was knocked out by Alfonso early and carried out. Alfonso Juice, when Todd Gordon gave a chair shot, Taz then came out and turned on Todd Gordon and counted as Alfonso pinned him. Taz complained after that when the various wrestlers in ECW have gotten hurt. Everyone sends cards and worries about them, but nobody cared when he got hurt. Sam and then came to the ring. Well, let's talk about Taz. This was a... This was an interesting deal here because I don't think anybody saw it coming. But once Sabu showed up, it made sense for the people in the building, I guess. Yes. Although, as we talked about on the Patreon show, I think everyone remembers Sabu-related stuff being given as the reason for the turn. I think it was retroactively was what we figured out. But that's not what he talks about here. No, not immediately, no. It's about the injured being injured. So, important moment he said he should have Taz turning heel. That's for sure, because he's about being for the super push of his life. Sam and it came to the ring first time match, but was jumped by superstar Steve Austin and destroyed. When Sam and unable to wrestle, Austin got the title match, and in a surprise, put Mikey Whipper over clean. Austin looked rusty, but the match was still decent. I'll never forget... I'm being shocked that that happened. That they would use Steve Austin to put Michael Whitbrook over clean. Very weird. What are your thoughts? I think it becomes weirder in hindsight as Mikey starts to get de-emphasized in 96. Yeah, very much so. Like, to a very weird degree, too. Yeah. Like, it happened fast. If you lose the title, he's... Goes down real quick. Well, it, well, he, he has first, a cat this stuff. After, after the cat this stuff, he goes. Like, yes, yeah. that's what I meant. Like he has the cactus team reunion with cactus as the heel, and then the split, and cactus's last ECW match, and then after that, like Mikey gets some opportunities to have good matches and stuff. Like the the chain that one chain Douglas match at the arena is really really good. But he's not really a pushed guy anymore for, what, like a year and a half after that? Very much. I mean, think about it this way. He's one of the guys who gets squashed on the Raw invasion in February 97. Yeah. And he doesn't mm-hmm. even get to wear the Dungeons and Dragon shirt. <laughs> no. Sabu then pinned Hat Myers and was virtually everyone says the best match Myers has ever been in. Sabu, they just had everything under the sun, including leap off a chair into a bat flip over the top row through a table on the floor. And then the main event saw Terry Funk and Tommy Dreamer go over Raven and Cactus Jack in a bloody match with all four using the gimmicks by, given by the fans. 
Jack wore both a Dungeon of Doom t-shirt and later a Forgive Me Uncle Eric t-shirt with Bischoff's face on it. Of course, they pulled the shirt over Jack's face and Drew began punching the Bischoff face on the shirt over and over. After the match, Funk teased a retirement speech without actually saying it, saying he loved wrestling, but his body can't take it anymore. And basically was passing the torch as the king of the hardcores to Tommy Dreamer. And that's what it looked like. You know? Um, and, you know, Terry Funk does it. Well, he doesn't wrestle ECW again until 97. He doesn't wrestle ECW in 1996 at all. What was the deal with that? Is that Paul bringing him in to have a big name on the pay per view? <sighs> Terry Funk did wrestle 96. Excuse me, I forgot. He comes back in November, November 96. But still, he's gone he for wrestles, the year. He wrestles with Tommy. Wrestles with Tommy and beats Shane and Brian Lee. Yeah. Yeah. So he's gone for a year. When he beats Brian, when he pins Brian Lee. So yeah. Um, I guess. I guess that's the reason. Yeah, because November is when all that stuff's really starting to percolate, and then there, there's the mass transit thing, and blah blah blah. So that has to be it, right? Because if they're back on good terms and everything. Where is he? Especially when he's a big name that you know is willing to put over your guys. Just work in Japan, basically. You know? Yeah. Oh, I just realized something, too. I know he, I don't, he hasn't gone back since the few dates in the spring. Could Paul be worried about Terry having done business with New Japan because of all the WCW stuff? Um, maybe. He hasn't been there in six months, though, right? Well, Terry, he was there, you know, he was there at uh, September, no, uh, October. Japan, period, or New Japan? I was talking about, oh, you talking about New Japan? Oh, yeah, yeah, it'd been a minute. Yeah. It was early 95, yeah. But he was working in FNW, or whatever he was working. Was it IWA no, or IWA. I can't IWA. IWA at that time, yeah. So, but yeah, a very memorable show. To remember '95, which would uh, set the wheels in motion for what 1996 would become. So, uh, one of the biggest years in ECW history. And Sabu coming back is definitely uh, a key to all that. Key piece to the puzzle. Just like Taz has turned. Any other thoughts on November to remember? Not really, other than I love the November Rain videos. Oh, this is a great one, too. This was a great one. One of the best they ever did. All right. Uh, Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, on November 17th at the Flagstaff, a packed house. We had the bad crew, managed by Damian Kane, over, winning a squash match. Pat Myers went to a time limit draw with Axel Rotten. The Eliminators beat Bubba Ray and D.W. Dudley after an illegal double team. Probably did it to elimination. J.T. Smith of Puerto Rico, Mikey Whipwreck of a Rey Mysterio Jr. to retain the ECW heavyweight title. In a good match where both men gelled well and hit most of their moves. And then Sandman, Cactus Jack, Raven and, Rich, Tom, Raven and Richards beat Public Enemy, Pitbull 2, Tommy Dreamer in the Rumble Games. The Rumble, Rumble Games? Rumble Games when it's... Yeah. And uh, I forgot to mention Scorpio was in this, too. Rumble Games, this is from the torch. Rumble Games went as follows. Scorpio faced Tommy Dreamer at the start. Then the coin toss was won by Scorpio, so Steve Richards joined the match. Bill Alfonso didn't demand the referee to match along with the regular referee, John Finnegan. Another coin toss, this one by Alfonso, led to the heels winning. Although Alfonso wouldn't let anyone see the coin toss, Raven then came out, making it three-on-one. Oh, it's Warrior. I don't know too many. Yeah. But, but with Rumble Rules. 
Oh, oh, it's, oh, it's a team know. match with a random draw, but but why is there a coin flip? I don't know. We got we keep going. After another two minutes, Alfonso was going to do the coin flip again, but Ty Gordon came out and pounded on him, and Alfonso fled. Dreamer won the coin toss and was joined by Pitbull 2. Next, Sandman came out and split the cane over Pitbull 2's head. Then Johnny Grunge joined the match, followed by Pitbull 1, Rocco Rock, Captain Jack. And then when this was eliminated, came out with Pitbull 2 and Sandman, where Sandman won with the help from Woman. Why would you, I mean, why would you want to just mix up Royal Rumble War Games? That's crazy. I guess to make it look like their own idea or something. I don't know. But didn't they have Ultimate Jeopardy for that? Kind of sortish. But it's different, though. Yeah. I, I just don't understand what the rules are here. <laughs> Neither day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did they. We can make them up as we go along. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Shane Douglas is backstage at the show. Hmm. Let's continue. Uh, sources indicate that Dean Douglas asked for, this is Torch, asked for a lease from his new contract as a result of being unhappy with his payoffs and push. As a result, his in-your-house match against, on December 17th against Ahmed Johnson maybe his final match for WWF. In exchange for a lease for his contract, he may go out by doing a decisive job to Johnson. Not so fast. <laughs> well, he was hurt. Yeah. So he's replaced by Nature Boy Buddy Rydell. <laughs> Stand with the torch. The public enemy wrestled the dark match Survivor Series and lost to the smoking guns. Most of the counts of the match say it was very good, and public enemy got over with the fans, even though they came to the ring without interest music. Public enemy's appearance of WF is no indication that they're necessarily signed with WF. WCW is still in the race, and suspect to offer a very competitive bid for their services. They may still remain UCW indefinitely, also. <laughs> they, well, I love the vagueness of all that wage reporting here. But, Lord. Yeah, I'm not crazy about that kind of thing. Is Triple H very high on them, too? <laughs> what did WrestleVotes have to say about this? <laughs> Ed's on, if it's from underneath last season of car where the fire accident took place, is no longer affiliated with ECW. Because his license got suspended over. That may be why. And I mean, that's, it, that's you, such a weird thing to leave out there. Isn't it funny that Ed's on, loses his license, and then Damian Kane starts showing up with Bakra? Amazing. <laughs> also, why did Ed Zahn have a Pennsylvania license in the first place? Didn't he mainly run in Maryland? Hey, why not? The Connecticut Post ran a front page story on November 20th on ECW about being a politically incorrect wrestling promotion. The story was built around the Damary Connecticut show where Thomas Rodriguez brought them in as part of a grand opening of his Sub-Zero nightclub. According to the story, they had nearly sold out the 500 seat venue days in advance. The article was huge with both pros and cons. Among those interviewed for the piece was Greg Serb of the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. Serb said that ECW pushes the line and has given him more than one headache. But since Pennsylvania deregulated wrestling, there's little he could do beyond lifting the license of the promoter, but that would do no good because they would use, just use another license. <laughs> well, what that's what they did. did. Yes. Um, <laughs> also, is this Dave misspelling Greg Serb's name or the Connecticut Post? I don't know. Either and or. S I R B. He has it here as C Z E R B. Yeah. Kudos. Still the head of the commission. Yeah. 
woman was upset with the report that she was in for WCW here last week and was denied it backstage over the weekend. I believe <laughs> deny, you. deny, deny. Deny, deny, deny. What the fuck? <laughs> what? Your husband's the booker of WCW, of course. That's going to be out there. And she's there six weeks later. Yeah. Less, actually, a little less. Because she's there on the New Year's Night show, right? No. Oh, it's the night show, the, the week of the clash is where she debuts? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, about eight weeks. Conan did officially give notice. He tried out for the Nitro announcer job, too. Conan did officially give notice that it would be his last show since he's going to WCW. Heyman talked with him about the idea of going to WWF because he'd be able to wear ECW house show days if he went to WWF. Huh. Now, think about that statement. All right. Here's a clear sign of relationship right here at this point. Heyman talked with Conan about the idea of going to WWF. Because he'd be able to work ECW house show dates if he went to WWF. So Hamish trying to push wrestlers to the WWF. I mean, we knew that, but here it is in plain English at the time. But yeah, everybody acts so surprised or denies there's any type of relationship between ECW and WWF for years. It's right here in front of your face in 1995. I just thought it would be better in Conan, for Conan than us. <laughs> but Conan pretty well committed to going to WCW in January. Conan did promise to continue to work with Heyman in regards to booking AAA talent for future ECW dates. Although with the Summer Night Los Angeles show, Ray and Sakosa won't be available for the next ECW Arena show. <laughs> it's right here in front of your face in the Wrestling Observer that Paul Heyman is trying to steer wrestlers to WWF instead of WCW. Trying to use the lure of still be able to work ECW house show dates. Insane. Because Paul's paying so much. Yeah. <sighs> the fact that people just let this shit go for so long, it's insane. I mean... <sighs> it's so obvious. It's right there in front of your face. It's just hitting you right in the face. Lord. All right. ECWA. Yes, the family-friendly ECW. Oh, I'll say. Uh, the same Matthews Parish Hall in Wilmington, Delaware on November 17th. We have the Inferno Kid, Johnny Blades, and Ronnie Roberts over Mike Mayhem, the Commando, and the Superstar. Glenn Osborne over Bobby Piper. What is that, body Bobby Piper? <laughs> Bobby Piper and Dave Patera. Yeah. E7 Tag titles. Lance Diamond and Steve Carino with Devin Storm and Humphrey J. DuPont over Ace Darling and Kid Flash. Kidman to win the championships. That's a match. Simon Diamond and Steve Carino raised Darling and Billy Kidman. That's a match. With Devin Storm then, and Free J.C. DuPont in, in Simon Diamond and Steve Carino's corner. And then there's this, this match. Bob Holly or Mr. Ooh-la-la with Barry Casino. <laughs> sure. This means we wish that we had a hardcore Holly Mr. Ooh-la-la match in the 2000s. Imagine how that would have went. Oh, boy. And then he said we had a match. The Cheetah Master. Retainer of Blue Thunder. Janakiyama? No. Okay. Um, I believe this would be the Mike Mayhem who shows up again years later in ECWA, who was billed as 610 Mike Mayhem, not to be confused with the uh, doghouse guy in New York who... Uh, was not 610. 
No, but was a really good worker, just barely ever showed up on tape. Yeah. Smoking about wrestling, no, all the shows, house shows for the week got canceled. Oh, that's a good not time. good time. Not yeah, well, not yet. Well, we're this is the next to last TV show in the history of smoking about wrestling too. That's what we're about to go to. So we do have a clip from TV building up Thanksgiving Thunder. The TV is pretty dire at this point in time. This is a highlight from it. The week before, Jim Cornette and uh, had a president. It was Butch Cassidy. The midget wrestler. Well, Bush Cassidy appeared, and he's got another little confrontation with Jim Cornette. So let's go to the clip, shall we? Thanksgiving Thunder, you go lock horns with the general, Jim Cornette. How do you feel about it, Bush? Well, I, I really don't know. I, this present is for Mr. Cornette. Your present? Yes, it is. A present for Mr. Cornette because, you see, Mr. Cornette is a much bigger man than me. And he got much more bigger muscles than me, a lot stronger than me. But you got so, such a big heart. Oh, but Mr. Cornette's got a much bigger heart than me, you see. Are you trying to smooth this thing over? Well, yeah, I'm trying to smooth it over, and I'm trying to give uh, Mr. Cornette an early Christmas present. You see, because like I said before, he's a much bigger man than me, and he got the militia behind him, and uh, I want to kind of smooth things out, you know, because I don't want no trouble with Mr. Cornette, you see. So you want to give a present to Jim Cornette? Exactly. I have a present for you, Mr. Cornette. Well, if we can get him out here, I'm sure uh, he would be actually... Any- well, I hope he likes it. I, I went through a lot to get this present, and I sure hope Mr. Cornette likes it. But you're still planning on wrestling this man in this upcoming... things to talk about there the most pressing because i don't want to forget it is that towards the end um it looks like they cut to a crowd shot in post because uh, butch got a bit too excited with the bag <laughs> and uh and it, maybe it is a, it's, being, it's being it's being used a comedy angle 
Well, that's the other thing, and Les is just standing there and like, and, uh, Witch Cassidy, this, uh, fine midget wrestler here is trying to murder Jim Cornette. <laughs> well, Jim Cornette's a heel, so, yeah, that's why it's going to be treated that way. Yeah, okay, but <laughs> holy shit is Cornette not, I mean, he's talked about this, this is not me smearing him or anything. Holy shit, is he, is he clearly uh, past due with production companies at this point? Oh, it's bad. Because, okay, just that segment alone, the picture is washed out because it's not professionally lit. Mm-hmm. There's no uh, banner or sign or anything. It's just a plain back, black backdrop. And Sound. Uh, that's the other thing I was going to say. Before, promos were clearly mic'd both for TV and the house. Here, it's just for the house. So whoever they have producing this either doesn't know how to or is unable to or doesn't have the equipment for or whatever to do a proper kind of wrestling PA promo setup. Which, I mean, geez, Continental did it by just having Gordon or Freddie Miller hold two microphones. So Yeah, it's just, it's just really bad. I mean, even now when they came back and cut to this shot of the ring, like... I don't know if there are people there, but the crowd's barely lit. The whole thing's washed out. It's they were sliding those last few months. Like I said, this is the last. This is the second last TV. It's the last TV taping. Yep. This is the last TV taping right here. So, anyway, all right. Yeah, um, one thing we can say for Cornette, though. Okay, there are people there. Just the lighting is terrible. There are people there, but it's just it's not what it once was. Yeah. But um, one thing we can say for Cornette, though, is he said that the houses weren't, like, at least, what was it, the same or up compared to last year's Thanksgiving. He'd shut down. He had wrestlers getting people who could back the promotion with new money and stuff. And he didn't want to do it. He wanted to shut down before he went into more debt and owed people more money. And, you know, to his credit, he did pay back everyone over time. But it did take some time. Yeah, it's sad. The Smoky Mountain was such a fun, good-looking promotion. They just it died. It died a slow death, you know. Yeah, that's Look the at thing. How washed out the picture is on this taping. I know, I know. It's don't look right. All right, so we go from Smoky Mountain wrestling to MWCW. Midwest Championship Wrestling. They ran a show in Inkster, Michigan on November 17th. We have Blacksmith going to no contest with Mike Legacy. Johnny Swinger over El Fuego. Killer Counterack over Mickey Doyle by disqualification. Irish Mickey Doyle. Yeah. The Bug. Which, if that if that's really the Bug, that's uh, Mr. JR from Championship Wrestling from Georgia over Cuckoo to Samoan. It's Michigan, so I would think so. There you go. How about that, folks? Tex Monroe over Tommy Starr. Malcolm Monroe over Bill Scullion. Bobby and Bobby Lee and Woody Lee over Chichi Cruz and Christian Cage. So we have a show where Christian Cage worked with Mr. JR. How about that? And uh, MWCW heavyweight title match. Axel Butchery retained over Greg Valentine by disqualification. So, okay, we've got... Okay, so would, would Chichi Cruz have been in with the Toronto crew at that time, or would he be coming here from Winnipeg? I don't know. Because clearly we have a Canadian car of Johnny Swinger, Chi Chi Cruz, Christian Cage. 
Yeah. What a lineup. And they're here with Mr. JR. Oh, no. And I, I knew I left one out. And Rob Fuego as the other Canadian. Um, but them, Irish Mickey Doyle, Mr. JR. Butch Reed versus Greg Valentine. What a weird show. Any idea who promoted this? MWCW. I don't know who that was. Okay. Praise that. We'll probably know. But now let's go to the USWA. With the figures disastrous every Monday since Monday Night Wars again on television, combined with Louisville and Nashville continuing to do business at the regular level, it's led everyone to believe that it's impossible to run against two free television shows, particularly since Jerry Law is on Raw every week. When November 20th being the toughest competition of data, both groups came out with all guns blades, and they moved their show as an experiment to Wednesday, November 22nd, which is why we're not missing our Coliseum show during, during this uh, week. Wednesday's now over the SWA since they lost their Wednesday night town Evansville to Burt Brennan's Ozark Mountain. Uh, Chris, Wednesday. Not Mid South Coliseum, Big One Expo Center. No, Mid South Coliseum. At this point, it's still. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's absolutely. 95 picks. No, I'm saying 96 is when they switch. It's late 96, too. Yeah. I, Summer. I, I did not remember it only being the last year. Okay. Oh, absolutely, Miss Alcalcia. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I you're, you're, you're about... <laughs> yeah, oh, no, it's, I mean... It's, it's, it's June 96. It's a little closer. Summer 96. Yeah. yeah, summer 96. Okay. All right. Um, Wednesday would also allow them to have Lawler on almost every show. However, this week's only an experiment, not part of being planned, at least to move from Memphis to a tradition, from a traditional Monday night slot. I mean, it's what, you know, it said, and it says it again here, Louisville and Nashville... We're doing business at regular levels, higher than regular levels, but Memphis just was not doing no business. And maybe Monday had a part of it, but there are way other mitigating factors involved in this too. Yeah, namely the let's just say it: white fans and fans from the suburbs in large numbers did not want to come to the Coliseum in that part of town at this point. Yeah. That's a massive part of why their attendance goes down in Memphis. You know, there was the whole thing about how, you know, the parking lot wasn't being lit a few years before this. And people, uh, I want to say it was like, oh no, it's, it's when they moved to the Expo Center, I think. Talking about how fans were put off by the metal detectors, which sounds weird 27 years later when that's standard at live events. But... That was a thing. Yeah. And when they w- went to the Expo Center, they had Lawler and the announcers dress on TV. No metal detectors at the Big One Expo Center. <laughs> so it's, you know, our friend, you know, Charles from Pro Wrestling Only has brought this up before. If it's out there, you need to remember to keep in mind context like this when you're looking at how things drew. You know, it's not like they're going to pay to rent the pyramid, they can't afford that on their scale. No, and they weren't going to run Convention Center anymore. So, Fairgrounds was in a better part of town. I or don't what really was know. Has a better part of town, I guess. I don't know. You know, I just, I, I don't know. Just it just Memphis just for some reason just fell flat. Kind of, you know. I mean, the same way as like Atlanta fell flat for also, for quite a few years there. You know. A lot of folks wouldn't go to uh, wouldn't go to uh, center stage for TV tapings because of those same reasons. 
Oh no, no. Okay, yeah, they weren't they weren't going to run the the convention center either because the fairgrounds are like a quarter mile away. Yeah. So if it's you know if it's the neighborhood that's the issue, you know, they're not just going to go somewhere else in the same neighborhood. Yeah. All right. So um, the other tradition, the Channel Five TV studios had to take a break as they are being remodeled. This past Saturday, next week's television consisted of all tape features. Which is funny, they remodeled the studio because it looks exactly the same when they come back in. Uh, I think they did fl- the floors were different. Yes. They redid the floors, basically. But the the, re- the rest of the studio looks exactly the same. So, but yeah, the floors were totally different. Maybe they were just, right. maybe they were renovating the new set, you know, where they where the I mean, rest was and it was noisy. With all it's those. possible. Well, we have the opening for our TV show for the week. So let's look at how this uh, TV show started off outside the studio, shall we? And this is the syndicated version, but the date we have here is the date it was recorded, right? It's the date of our week, yeah, yeah. pretty much, yeah. It's the right, it's the right set. Well, I tell you what, buddy, a couple hours, we'll be ready. This is where <laughs> the old blood gets flowing and everything starts <laughs> going when those matches hit that ring. So just to set the scene, we are at the Coliseum. Um, we are... A good at least several feet behind Lance and Dave as they are at a desk by one of the corners of the ring. And they're sitting on a piece, excuse me, their, their chairs and table are on a piece of AstroTurf for some reason. Anyway. Ooh, got that right, eh? Yeah, I know oh, Lord, not Lance and Dave, Lance and Corey. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, we got some visitors. I guess we better get ready uh-huh. for the show. Huh? Right, sounds good to me. Okay. Keep it going. Okay, play it through or just skip ahead? Yeah, keep going because they're coming back. Everybody, Lance Russell with Corey Macklin right alongside, ready to go with another USWA Championship Wrestling. The first of two special shows, Corey, that we're going to be doing on the road. They're doing some construction in our regular USWA studios, and it's a good thing it gets us out and into the atmosphere and lets you have an opportunity to take a look at some different scenery and all. I'm tickled to death. Sorry, oh. Dave couldn't be with us. I am too, but hey, I know he's on watching because this is one of those must-see shows, fans. Let me tell you what a day we got today Lance we'll take a look at Ahmed Johnson's first defense of that unified yes. world title yeah he defended against Tracy Smothers we'll take a look at that USW heavyweight title highlights Brian Christopher Tex Slazinger what about that was we'll take a look at some highlights from that one and we'll go back in time to Louisville Kentucky one of those bouts man I love to tell you Lance one of the greatest bouts I've ever seen Rock and Roll Express and PG-13 and hey also we're going to have uh, some more information on the Armstrong the deal that's going on and a big surprise double j jeff jerry i want to tell you when he came popping out last week i gotta tell you it was a thrill and a half oh, and i know okay. it's one that you're going to want to see that isn't all that we've got we've got plenty of other things to cover for you we'll be going back and taking a look at a classic match that jeff had there's lots of them but this mm-hmm. is going to be a dandy that i know the folks are going to enjoy so guess what we'd better do get what? ready Take on off. We'll take a break. We'll be back with Ahmed Johnson, the unified world heavyweight champion in a moment. It's nice a father and son to get together there for the opening of the TV show, isn't it? 
Also, of course, because it's Corey with Lance, he's not doing his Lance voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, any guess on which Jeff Jarrett match they play? And do not even try to look. Is it a Memphis match or a Dallas match? Neither. So that would be uh, the Vegas match that they used in the music video. Against Chris Curtis. Yes. <laughs> A classic match indeed. All right, speaking of Jeff, Lance Russell interviews Jeff uh, at his home. This is the week after Jeff made his return, popping out of the box on live television, which we talked about on this show when we did that week, one of my favorite Memphis studio moments. So Lance is now sitting with Jeff, and uh, they're talking about what's going on here in the Jarrett Armstrong Smoky Mountain USWA rivalry here. So let's go to Lance Russell and Jeff Jarrett. Gotta tell you, there were a lot of smiles around when that box came up and Double J comes out, fist flying in there, no bigger smile than mine. It is so great to see you back. Uh, Lance, you don't know how good it was to be back. And, and I wanted to make it special because the USWA, this area, really is special. WMC TV in Memphis is really a place I, I hold real close to my heart because I've been around this place. I remember you knee-high to a grasshopper, and I've grown up in this area. You, Dave, uh, a lot of the people, the USW fans, are real special to me, and it was I, I was I was really tickled to death to come back home, and uh, it was a great occasion. Well, you have been everywhere, <laughs> all over the world since that time, gotten big, and I want to tell you this, Jeff, this is an honest fact. A lot of guys have said to me, "What's this Jeff Jarrett like?" You know, and that's because there are promoters who have had boys that have gotten into the business and all. They say, "What's he like?" And we know what some of them are like, and I tell them everyone, and I meant it exactly. Here's a guy that deserves everything that he got. Hardest working guy, first one in the gym, always studying tapes and films, looking at how people wrestle. Jeff, I mean it. You deserve everything you've earned. Well, Lance, I, I really appreciate that because uh, I'm pretty proud of myself because, like you said, I have worked hard and I've been in the gym every day and, and I pride myself on uh, being the biggest USWA fan because I, I go way back. Great wrestlers have come out of this area. Jackie Fargo, the fabulous ones, uh, uh, Bill Dundee, Jerry Lawler, my dad, Tojo Yamamoto, the list goes on and on, and I've studied those guys. And then uh, when, it, when it's got my chance, everybody said, oh, boy, he was lucky. He became the Intercontinental Champion, you know, and, and he's made it to the big time. That guy sure has gotten lucky. Well, Lance, my definition of lucky is like the old saying, when preparation meets opportunity, then you become lucky. And I prepared myself, I got the opportunities, and I worked hard, and I think I've uh, achieved pretty good success. By golly, you have done that. And I'll tell you one thing, you had to be ready because all of a sudden you came back in, not just a match, but everything. I mean the USWA promotion against the Smoky Mountain promotion all on your back when you met Jesse James Armstrong. Mm -hmm. You know, Lance, that match was real special to me for a number of reasons. And I talked, touched on it last week. When I made the commitment to sign with the WWF, I gave up, you know, we've talked about it, uh, you know, at length since over the last week. I gave up a lot. I gave up my family. I wasn't around for Jason and wasn't around for Jennifer. And, and when Norma went in the hospital, you know, it was tough on all of us. And I gave up a lot of things and I sacrificed a lot of things. And I felt that this match was something that I felt that I could make up for a little bit of lost time. And, and a lot was riding on my shoulders. And then we get 
to Brian Jesse James Armstrong. And me and him were real close at one time, and, and, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. I handpicked him, Lance, out of hundreds of guys to be by my side. And then he wants to come in here and he wants to take over what you, what Dave Brown, what Jerry Lawler, what my dad, what a lot of guys have sweat and blood and tears. And, and, and my grandmother, Christine Jarrett, we've all worked so hard for the USWA, and he wants to come in and try to take it over in one night. Well, I'm just happy that the, the, the way things came out, because I would have, uh, he'd had to kill me before I'd give up this That area. preparation was there, and you made it pay off. Well, as you can well imagine, Jesse James Armstrong wasn't too happy about the whole <laughs> affair. Sit right here with me a minute, and let's take a listen and hear what he has to say, if you can understand his ranting. Take a listen. Double J, Jeff Jarrett, you robbed me. Everybody here knows it, and everybody there knows it. Double J, you and all your USWA cronies robbed me and my father of the Smoky Mountain Organization. Well, it's not going to stand, and you're not going to stand for long, Double J. Yeah, the road dog is talking to you now. Remember when I used to talk to you? I used to help you. I carried you from the slums of the World Wrestling Federation and put you on top of the mountain. I did it. I, Jesse James, that new age outlaw, robbed Ray's Ramon and gave the title to you. I felt like Robin Hood stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Well, now it's all coming down this week. Organization and organization versus my hair. USWA and Smoky Mountain versus this head full of hair. Double J, Jeff Jarrett, you got another thing coming. This week, I'm going through you like a runaway freight train and nothing short of a brick wall or a nine millimeter is going to stop me. You are going down. <laughs> I know there's more, but Road Dog and New Age Outlaw, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I knew he had used Road Dog in promos before, although I think this may very well be the first. I did not realize he had used New Age Outlaw before. Mm-hmm. Well, I mm-hmm. guess that's where those names came from. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you got his attention, Jeff, to say the least, Lance. And, you know, I know Brian Armstrong better than anybody in this area. Because in the WWF, when things wouldn't go his way, I saw him rant and rave and cry. And then on the personal side, I saw how Brian reacted when things didn't go his way. And he hadn't got a lot of heart because he cries and always blames somebody else. It's always the other guy's fault. Well, Brian, it was your fault in this match. It's your fault that you lost the Smoky Mountain, you lost control of the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Organization. Well, this week, yeah, there was a clause, and you know about it, Lance, there's a clause in the contract where both titles to the company, control of Smoky Mountain and control of the USWA, are on the line this week. But, I love this other stipulation. I know you would, and nobody loves it better than Double J, Jeff Jarrett, because, Brian, I know how much your hair means to you. Those silly-looking braids, and you think you get a lot of attention. You think that people walk around and say, oh, you walk in a McDonald's, or you walk up and down the street, or walk in the matches, and Lance, what's he say? Oh, everybody's talking about my hair. Well, Brian, everybody's laughing at you because you're a big goof. You've messed up everything you've ever done in your entire life. (laughs) And now this week... Oh, boy. You're going to be so humiliated, and I'm going to enjoy it. Because it is the holiday season. And, Lance, oh, what a present it's going to be. Because I'm going to pin your shoulders to the mat. No, I might not pin him. I might put him in the figure four and make him give up. Then he's going to have to sit in that chair, Lance. And you've seen it done several times. A lot of times, a lot of hair matches in the USW over the years. But this is going to be real special. 
because I've shaved some heads in the past. But this one, Brian, I have to admit, you're the closest guy that I've ever shaved because <laughs> I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to get the, I'm going to do it myself, and you're going to be so humiliated. <laughs> Brian, you just wait till match, big boy, because old double J, that's right. <laughs> it's J-E, double L, <laughs> J-E, double R-E, double T. That's double J, Jeff Jarrett, the world's greatest singer, the world's greatest wrestler, and Brian, when I get through with you, the world's greatest barber. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff Jarrett. Back in just a moment. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> J-E-double-F, Jeff. Yes. It was interesting to watch him do his double J gimmick in, in Memphis as a babyface at this point in time. But he's not really doing the gimmick other than being called double J and doing the spiel at the end. Yeah, he's doing the yeah the stick. Yeah, you're right. But uh, yeah, good stuff. Now, since we have the syndicated TV, we don't have this. This man did a healing review on the TV show, teasing Jerry Lawler about no longer being so popular in his hometown. Because Ahmed Johnson got a lot of cheers, and he beat Lawler for the title, and putting over Ahmed as a WF superstar, and is trying to make him the heel going against a local hero. He brought up how Lawler wrestles differently in Memphis than WF, and said he should wrestle in Memphis like in the WF. And Lawler's explanation for being a babyface on one show and a heel on the other show is that he hates everyone in WF. We're still doing this? <laughs> We're still doing this? Yep. Oh, God. He's been WF almost three years at this point. Just those damn Yankees. <laughs> All right. The um, show that we uh, we talked about on another show in the, in the when we did it before, um, the Missile Costume Show had Armstrong put his hair up against Jarrett and the companies. So Bob Armstrong will probably control USWA, which happens. They really did nothing until the angle that Jarrett and USWA now control Smoky Mountain. Because it doesn't matter. And then it goes down the rest of the car, blah, blah, blah. So we got a massacre. Neither Mantar nor one of the Kongs is a guy named Bill Stapleton from Louisville who was trained by Bobby Blaze. Yeah, he didn't last very long. No, he didn't. This is interesting here from the torch. Well, Lawler was asked for the SWA, and Brian Christmas was injured a couple months back before Jeff Jarrett and Jesse James Armstrong returned. Doug Gilbert was established himself as a legitimate USWA main eventer. Since then, he's been pushed down the cards and has lost all of his momentum. The reaction to him a couple months back at the Missile Coliseum showed signs of him becoming the most popular USWA wrestler, and now that's all but gone. Oh, yeah. Very noticeable that Doug got real red hot after turning babyface, and then things happen. The USWA took him out if he really gets going, and Doug's not a part of that for you know much. And he gets phased down real quick. But Tom Rich is coming back. They're going to reunite their tag team, and then he'll turn heel, and then you'll have that. So he'll be back on the top again. But definitely interesting watching the trajectory of Doug Gilbert here. Doug Gilbert, who uh, by the time the show comes out, will have made his Jersey Championship Wrestling debut. Hey, there you go. All right, Ozark about wrestling. The competition at this point in time. They ran Evansville, Indiana on November 15th for 165 fans. As we have Mike Samples over Justin St. John, uh, the American Riders over Gator McAllister, and, and Chad Austin. Friend of the show, Chad Austin. We really need yep. to get him on, finally. 
Bull Payne over Flash Flanagan. Rick Burton over Jerry Faith. And the Colorado Kid Bill Dundee went to no contest with Brickhouse Brown and the Giant Warrior. Well, I'm sure Bull Payne and Bill Dundee working together is going to end well. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, what yeah. did Bert do to rest uh, Evansville away? I mean, Bert has those magical powers, Dix. Are we leaving it at that? I mean, that's all I'll say. And now we have this. The International Wrestling Council, Ron Scholar, filed a $5.2 million lawsuit on November 20th against Fiesta Associates, Steve Gold, Bob Millman, Adolfo Perez, and the Grand Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles Superior Court. The suit is based on the defendants advertising of similar wrestlers for the December 2nd house show, and the complaint believes it's false advertising with the claim that it was hurt, they were hurt attendance when in IWC would run with many of the same wrestlers with higher price tickets one week earlier in the same market. According to the suit, on July 4th, 1995, IWC and CMLL entered a five-year contract giving IWC exclusive rights to promote shows with CMLL wrestlers in the United States. By advertising Io de Santo, these mark negro costs, such as appearing on the December 2nd show, the suit claims the defendants knew those two sides have previously talked about co-promoting a show in San Jose on November 26th. There's a violation of IWC's exclusive deal. The suit claimed the defendants only knew about the IWC contract, but they had no written or oral deals made other than CMLO to wrestle to put the wrestlers on the show. The suit claims that Fiesta Associates never intended to have a show on the date and the site advertised with the wrestlers in, in the ad. The suit claims the ad was placed attention to confuse potential customers to the November 25th show and interfere with their business. The suit also claims the defendants have refused both oral and written demands to cease and desist from continuous advertising. IWC is claiming both a $200,000 in lost revenue and asking for punitive damages of $5 million. In even more news of the Mexican wrestling war spread in Los Angeles, this time apparently of a less actionable nature, Triple A began advertising their December 9th show at the sports arena in Los Angeles on local Spanish language radio this past week. Offering seven off cents off regular price for receipt provided tickets for purchase before November 25th, which is the day of the CMLL show. So the lawsuit is against the Olympic and local promoters for advertising a show with CMLL guys that they did not actually plan on executing? <laughs> so he's saying not only is it... well, Okay, but wait a second, though. Why isn't he trying to sue CMLL? Guess because no guess one what, here broke a contract. Well, guess what? Guess what took place on December second, nineteen ninety-five, at the Olympic Auditorium? That show. <laughs> that show. Uh, which um, you know we don't have a main event finish because uh, it just it said those cars and these markings put out to Morgan and question mark. It says mentioned as appearing. But uh, there was a show. So, what the hell is Ron trying to do? <sighs> He's pissed that they're doing stuff without him being involved. But that's not the fault of these people. Well, he's trying to sue everything, so he's pissed. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's just basically what it is. We covered this. We covered this on the, the other show we did. You know, later on, because uh, I remember us talking about this. Um, again, it's been so long. I don't remember everything that was uh, the finalized part of it. But um, let me see if I can find it real quick. 
Because it's got dropped or whatever, you mean? All right, uh, they drew... F- okay, they drew 4,446. 2,958 were paid. This is the November 25th show at the Forum. Uh, it was promoted by IWC. So that's the thing there. Um, Scholar's trying to send... He said Fiddler's about to try to get back with Triple A again. Because he was upset that Paco Alonso didn't attend the show. Now, Alonzo had done newspaper interviews saying he had nothing to do with the Olympic Auditorium show on December 2nd, which featured many of the same headliners. He had stalled and had not yet signed a legal statement committed to the same thing as it pertains to Scholar's lawsuit against the promoters of that show. Okay. All right, now I'm skipping ahead to see what anything says. All right, the Fiesta Association show on December 2nd went on despite a lawsuit by Ron Scholar. During the week, Scholar reportedly had reached an agreement with Steve Needleman, who runs the Olympic, to drop him from the lawsuit in exchange for his lawyer. Bob Barnett getting into the building to serve the Fiesta promoters. However, when Barnett came to the building, Needleman asked him for the dismissal papers, which Barnett didn't have, and he wouldn't let him in and let fly some expletives directed at Scholar. The show drew 1,200 fans, and despite Scholar's exclusive contract with CMLL, a few top stars like Dos Cotas and Niesmark and numerous mid-level wrestlers worked the show. They talked about how Scholder a year earlier got Pena, Antonio Pena to suspend Ray Mysterio Jr. Sarkosis for two months because they worked a small-time indie show in the Los Angeles area. I think that was one of the MWF shows in Compton, right? Yeah. Casa, Santo, and Brazos, who were in the, the uh, original lineup, were replaced in subsequent ads, although Perotta Morgan, who worked for Scholder on the November 25th, worked this show as well. It looks from this in that Scholar's B should not be the Fiesta group for running their show one week after him using similar talent. But Paco Alonso, who could control his wrestlers, had to sign an exclusive deal for either misrepresenting that he had control of his wrestlers or for allowing them to work a show in the same market. So the show is said to be the worst major lucha show in the Los Angeles market in years, starting an hour late. And then they switched the main event to a short single fall match so they can get, get them out of there without paying security overtime. Yeesh. Well, Let me see if there's any, anything else on this after that. At least Bob and Ron are friends. <laughs> Doesn't look like there's anything else in the observers after this. Yeah, so I guess the lawsuit just goes away. I don't know. What a cluster. Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. So everybody wanted to run Los Angeles. And now let's close that with the World Wrestling Federation. There's a lot going on. Regarding Survivor Series, the day of talent change meant the group's top position was no longer in the hands of one of the click. Although it's only time will tell if that's temporary or not. The show also left the question in the fans' eyes regarding Diesel, who strongly teals the heel turn by giving Bret Hart two jackknives after the match was over and attacking several referees. Diesel appeared to have been booed by 65-70% of the fans after the match, and announcers Vincent Man Jim Ross played it up as if it was a turn. The new character, the new attitude of the promotion was set up by Diesel's mouthing motherfucker when he lost the title. So it appears they believe the ECW approach, or at least a toned-down version, is now the most marketable approach in this country, which is funny on a lot of levels. He apparently also wrestled the babe faces. As he did an interview where he complained that he was being he was being packaged by Titan as something that he wasn't for the past year. Whether this winds up being a successful approach or not, faced with a conclusion based on all available figures the direction they were going had run its course, and the increased popularity of USC pay-per-view events to have surpassed WF events is the most widely viewed regularly scheduled events on pay-per-view, that it's time to take the big step and go in a rougher and more violent direction. Well, I mean, it had been brewing 
in 95. And then when it comes to basically, you know, after the summer, and basically when Bill Watts is involved, that's when you start seeing the, the, the more violent approach. In ring, yes. In ring, yeah. And with ECW starting to, you know, become a thing, and they're working with ECW, obviously, as we mm. just talked about, that it's time to go in that next level. And, you know, <laughs> times are changing. And WF was way behind the times in regards to the pro, pro, you know presentation of a lot of their, their wrestlers. I mean, look, we still have all these fucking gimmicks. And we're and gonna it still continues. Yeah, it we're gonna get more. Like half in, half out. Yeah. But um at least they're trying to do stuff differently here. Yes. Bret Hart, thirty eight, catch the title for the third time, making him only the second person recorded in in house WF history. Hulk Hogan be the other one to do so. Technically Bob Backlund's also a three time champion because of nineteen seventy nine back and forth switch in Japan involving Antonio Noki. But this was never recognized in the United States and has been ignored in all WF title histories. The show was generally well received. Four of the suspensions were good. They put far more clean finishes than in traditional shows of this type, where they usually, in the quest to protect the top stars, have a multitude of DQ and count-out finishes. The weakness was that none of the heels came out of the show looking strong, which has been a major complaint among the wrestlers for some time, with the belief that none of the heels are being over is responsible for the company's weakened position on pay-per-view in the arenas. The heels on top of the next pay-per-view on December 17th in Hershey, Pennsylvania, are Dave Wisniew, Mabel, and Goldust. They weren't hurt on the show by doing jobs. At the same time, none came out of the show looking strong in the least. Well, maybe things would be better if you didn't just uh, give reason for the guy who was booking the heel stronger to quit. Yeah, because he was trying. But that's a major problem. Yes, the heels in WF were not strong for quite a while. I mean, just not an inspiring group, you know? Davy Boy could have been something... But it didn't click the way it could have. Well, you look, you got Mabel. It just wasn't, you know, he, he's done run his course. Goldust. Goldust yes. isn't really Goldust yet, though, either. No, but still. Um, Davey's just, just turned recently, and he's just now, you know, about to get a big program. Owen's still the same guy that he's been. Yeah. Um, Yokozuna in the tag team with Owen. I mean, your strongest characters are all babyfaces. Sean, Razor, Diesel, Brett, Undertaker. I mean, your babyface side is stacked. And you don't have the heels to uh, counter them. Isaac Yankum, Dean Douglas. You know? It's just not there. And now you got Ahmed Johnson starting to, to rise up the scene. So you got a lot of babyfaces. Which is why stuff like this Diesel thing had to happen. The only heel who has, like, really anything going at this... Okay, we did forget one heel. Um, Or is he gone? Well, no, he's working the next pay-per-view. Sid Sid is... He's not... um, He's not gone yet, but he's not being pushed in a big way. They still have Sid. Sid's got something, but he hasn't been booked well. The only like decent fresh heel they have is one two three kid, but he's not going to be pushed as a main eventer. Yeah. Well, Sid's Sid's part of the, the DiBiase thing, and DiBiase's factions kind of 
Yeah. Blah. You know? Alright, um... The biggest surprise on the show, which apparently had been rebooked late in the week leading to the show, was the return of Mr. Perfect, who announced the show along with Vincent Man Jim Ross. Perfect was introduced for the opening credits on the show as the return of a major player in the company's history, but unfortunately, like many other similar returns, he appeared to not have been following what had been going on closely, and seemed to have little knowledge of current storylines, and overall did a poor job. Particularly in the women's match, where he mainly made jokes about what it would be like to date the different Japanese women. <laughs> it appeared from television next night that Perfect's role, at least at this point, would be doing the heel commentary on Superstars, leaving Jerry Lawler only for Raw, which is exactly what happens. All right, well, let's look at how this played out. So this is how Mr. Perfect was reintroduced to the WF fans after being away for a year and a half. After he had been away for several months before that. Yeah. And this is how the show opens, by the way. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Perfect! Where are we? Uh, Landover. That's right. And he was last to babyface. No, he's last to heel. Luger turned. That's right. You're right. He was only back for one night, but... Didn't get that big a reaction. the most honored athlete uh, in Federation history. I love that he inherited Bobby Heenan's jacket. You know, the sparkly stuff on, on the back. I mean, that's the Mr. Perfect executive consultant jacket, too. I know, but, it, but Heenan had his jacket, you know? Yeah. Same way. Alright, so there's the big return of Mr. Perfect. In a first, the show was not announced on the as being a sellout. The crowd was estimated 14,000 or a little more than three fourths full. But him and my paper reports about 8,000 paid. As far as Dave's opinion of the show goes, he had very high expectations for the show. It was a good show, but perhaps for that reason, only one match. The opener was as good as expected. Bret Hart and Diesel had a very good psychology, but he thought both their prior matches were better. Well, that's not the consensus anymore. The wild card match and the opener were both good matches, but neither was memorable. Women's match would be a disappointment, although it probably impressed the majority of fans who had never seen those women before. Undertaker's match was effective because of the storyline of Undertaker tagging in and destroying everybody, and he wore a great face mask. But as far as work went, it wasn't a good match. Goldust still isn't over, which is amplified by the mega push he's getting. His new costume was almost lewd, and his match with Bam Bam Bigelow was another disappointment. What was the difference between this costume and the one he debuted in, though? I think this one, he showed more, more of his dick. So it was, it was just tighter his, fitting in the groin. His there. dick print. Yeah. Well, what can you do? <laughs> it was an honor of Eric Embry. What can you say? Uh, and no surprise well, lied, Public Enemy. In under Booker Eric Embry. So. <laughs> yeah. And the no surprise lied, the Public Enemy worked the dark match against Smoking Guns, losing, not taught a match. Call Public Enemy. They want to use that handle, had the match been televised. It was described to us as unimpressive, almost squash-like warm-up match. 
They got a great reaction by the ECW fans at the show, but most of the fans didn't react to them, nor knew who they were. The reports we have are that this deal was put together at almost the last minute. It was a one-shot deal and not a sign they made the decision to go to WF. From what we're told, they are strongly leaning towards WCW, and the final decision should be made this week. Paul Heyman still is trying to keep them with ECW. Heyman, who was involved in putting the deal together for them to work at the WF show, said he believed they weren't going to WF and that they were either going to WCW or stay with ECW. But until they made a decision, they would have the focus taken off of them in ECW, as evidenced by them doing the job for Sam and Scorpio at the ECW Arena the night before a Survivor Series and having nothing done later in the show to put steam back on them. Oh, so there it is in the Observer at the time that Heyman put the deal together. Yeah, but still. That's for this match, Bex. Right. It's not in the context of Paul has a deal with them where he's going to try to steal, excuse me, steer guys who are leaving to WWE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is what is actually going on. Yes. WSX Pay show another In Your House, goes for December 17th in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And he goes over the lineup there. It says, I met Johnson Dean Douglas supposed to be King Kong Bundy, but with Douglas wanting out, this would be his pay-per-view job on the way out. And uh, he says that in your house will probably do a similar buy rate to the previous in your house event because it's the least compelling lineup to date, if not worse, because the UFC Ultimate Ultimate coming the night before. Although Brett and Davies should be an excellent match, the rest of the show doesn't look either impressive or compelling. Davies' previous WF title shots the headline didn't do well on pay per view, and has nothing's been done since that time on television or Survivor Series to establish him as anything more than just a heel stooge in the company mix in a company dominated by babyfaces. The original plan for World Rumble. January 21st of Fresno was for Brett defending the title against Undertaker. Begin with having the pay-per-view even the finish. Dave suspects Brett versus Diesel as that main event. Well, that is Brett Undertaker. Um, and the In Your House card ends up being more marketable than what's here because... So, what Dave has here is Brett Davey, which happens, Undertaker Mabel, which happens, Razor Goldust, which does not, not happen, and Gu- uh, Guns Kid and Sid, which was not happening. You know, like we talked about a little earlier, Ahmed Douglas is scheduled and then doesn't happen. But it ends up being, what else? Diesel Owen, right? Yeah. As part of the Sean storyline. I think it's Caden Sid versus Razor and Janetti with Goldust at ringside starting that storyline. So you have more storyline hooks and stuff up and down the card. And it still does the worst pay-per-view buy rate ever up to that point. Mm-hmm. To the point they aired, what, 60% of the card on free TV in the next few weeks? Mm-hmm. Because it was, what, a main event and hog pen match on Raw and casket match on Superstar, something like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to see this. many pay-per-view matches show up on regular television. Mm-hmm. All right, so we talk about the dark match of public abuse with guts. All right, the pre-show. Skip, Rad Radford, Dr. Tom Pritchard, and the one, two, three kid beat Marty Janani, Barry Horowitz, Bob Holly, and Hakushi in 1845. There were two late changes in the match. Kid replaced Jean-Pierre Lafitte, who had hernia surgery earlier in the week from a stomach injury suffered at the Nassau Coliseum show on November 10th. It was announced on the show that Teddy Biasi had paid for Pierre to stay at home. And had bought the spot on the show for the kid. Bob Holly replaced Avatar. This change wasn't even acknowledged on the show with a storyline reason. What happened was that Holly was one of the wrestlers unhappy and ready to leave last week, complaining about not getting enough dates. And as a perk to keep him, since pay-per-view payoffs are several thousand dollars, they put him on the show. 
They called Al Snow up to tell him he was off the show because Bob Holly had been with the company longer. <laughs> well, so How about that? They would say here if uh, Snow got a payoff for this, right? Which I, I I'm guessing he did not get a full pay-per-view payoff. So imagine you're Al Snow. You're one of the hottest free agents of the summer. Mm-hmm. Go to WWF. Uh-huh. You get this weird dead-end fake bootleg Hayabusa gimmick. Mm-hmm. Where he doesn't wear the mask to the ring for some reason, but then he puts on the mask to wrestle. Mm-hmm. You get booked on Survivor Series. You're going to get a pay-per-view payoff. And then, oh, sorry, Bob Holly threatened to leave. And he's got more tenure. <laughs> so he gets on the show you don't. Sorry. And imagine Snow hearing that, having been in the business since 1982. Yeah. <laughs> well, some people have re- reasons and, to get and, better. And then they're going to repackage him as Leaf Cassidy. Well, at least so. that made better use of his talents. Well, he went to WCW. So Dave thought this was the best match on the show. Razor Ramon came out at the start to go out to Kid, but it was held back by numerous officials. Kid was over strong as a heel. He looked good in some spots, and other spots looked rusty since he had worked as a heel in years. First, that was Dr. Tom, and Mr. Moonsong was pinned by Bob Hollywood across by off the top rope in 5.17. Skip won the second fall in six seconds with me at Schoolboy and Holly using the trunks. Next fall contained lots of great work from Hakushi and Skip in particular. Ending with Rad Rafford pinning Hakushi after Kid kicked him in the back of the head in 2.47. Radford, built as a wannabe body Donna, was out next. He had Horowitz beaten with a Northern Lights suplex, but instead did weak looking push ups, and Horowitz pinned him with an Oklahoma side roll in 316. Horowitz was out next in 59 seconds. We were supposed to whiplash himself off top rope as Kid moved away, but the spot came off sloppy, and Kid pinned him after a leg drop. This left Kid and Skip against Gennetti. Even more great action here with lots of near falls by Gennetti. When he was on, on top rope, Sonny shut the ropes and he crossed himself. Skip put on top for a superplex, but Gennady blocked it and came down with a move of the night. A powerbomb off the top rope for a pin and 237. This left Kid with Gennady. After Kid missed somersault ledger off top rope, Sid came out. Gennady used a rocker dropper, which Kurt Henning cleverly said could break someone's neck, as if Vincent Mann actually won down in knowledge, given the Chuck Austin case. But Kid got his foot on the ropes. Behind the rest back, as DiBiase to shred the rest, Sid snapped Gennady's neck on the top rope. Kid scored the pin. After the match, they went backstage where Razor went crazy, throwing a television monitor against the wall a few times, destroying it. Three and three quarter stars. Okay. Uh, I'll see if the rocker dropper is shortly thereafter, but let, let's see what uh, Skip and Janetti did here. I'm not easily impressed. That's for certain. Off the rope now. No, 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 no. Telegraph maneuver to pull oh, Skip. Look at this. Rocker dropper first. Yeah. Well, that'll break your neck. Let <laughs> <laughs> me finish off Skip. He's going up. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Sonny just pulled the rope. How's that not a DQ? How's that not a DQ at Survivor Series where everything is more of a DQ than usual? Because it wasn't, it wasn't the planned fin- thing, Bex. Right Come on. in front of the ref, too. He lost his balance. What was this, AW? He hasn't anyone to tag. It's one on two here. He was just climbing up on the wall. Oh, no, 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 look at this. Skip on the top rope, setting up Gennady for a pain body drop. What is... Oh, my God! What a maneuver! That should come Yes, yes, yes! What a maneuver indeed, man. In a 1995 WWF ring, 
No less. And Candida would, of course, adopt that as his big move in ECW. He had done it in Smokey a little, too, until Cornette. Yeah, he done too. it. Yeah, he done it in Smokey, too. That was one of his moves. Watch so I'm, pretty sure Can, Can, I'm pretty sure Candido called the spot. Yeah, no, that was the story. I think it's in the Meltzer obituary for Candido that he yeah. badly wanted to do it on pay-per-view but couldn't find anyone willing to take it, so he offered to take it from Genetic. Yeah, it, it looked good. Yeah, but imagine in that ring. I mean, again, look at look at Kid and Genetti here. That that ring doesn't budge when people bump on it. Yeah. All right, Bertha Faye, Aja Kong, Linus Asuka, and Tomoko Watanabe being Alundra Blaze, Kyoko Inoue, Sakashigawa, and Chaprito Sari in 1001. This match was a disappointment because it came off as a total rush job and because the referee counted two pinfalls that were supposed to be near falls. Oops. The Japanese women flew in on an 18-hour flight after doing the WrestleMania patch show, which we talked about earlier, the day before, and obviously were tired. Eek. Anyway, must have been injured or held back since with the decision of Michaels and possibly Brett, she was the best all-around work on the car. But did absolutely nothing. Well, guesses they were, Sean and what? Brett are definitely better trainers than her. <laughs> That's not true. Oh, you're saying Kyoko Ishiki and Masai Genki and Tanny Mouse yes. are better workers than uh, Danielson or Kendrick or Landscape? That's what you're saying because you you're, you love Neo Lay's pro um, Dave's guess they were told the whole batch of spotlight was supposed to be on Aja and folks getting her ready for a singles match with Blaze the Royal Rumble. Blaze pinned Asuka with a German suplex in just 142. Kong pinned Hashigawa with a back suplex 216, which Dave believes is the first of the two mistake pinfalls. Hashigawa looked the best of the Japanese women in their brief period in match. Aja pinned Asari in 27 seconds with a splash off the middle rope. Asari did try her sky twist to press earlier, but didn't hit it perfectly, but got a good pop. Kong pinned in a way in with a splash in 37 seconds. That was supposed to be a near fall, but the ref counted three. At this point, nearly everyone looked real confused. Actually, this was the second pin that wasn't supposed to happen at that point, and it kept Inoue from doing all her signature moves for going out. This left Blaze against three. Blaze pinned Watanabe in 128 with a pile driver. Pinned Bertha Faye in 41 seconds with a German suplex. Or at least a good effort at doing one. Perfect got really embarrassed on commentary since the idea here was to get Kong over as a monster heel threat to Blaze's title. And Perfect kept trying to tell Joseph Vincent Man, almost forcing himself to laugh as a response. You could tell Perfect and Jim Ross were on each other's nerves in the booth from this point forward in the show. Kong went up hitting the backhand punch for the pin 250 and made a hand motion about challenging for the women's title, although it really wasn't emphasized in commentary. This all Japan women as a group, the all Japan women as a group is remarkably consistent, and Dave does think he's seen a match involving this level of talent be as bad as this one in years. And it wasn't as if it was Bertha Faye's fault. Two and three quarter stars. So I have some of this playing with the sound off. And you can really tell how jet lagged they are. Because have you ever seen a match where Linus Asuka was just mistiming stuff like this? And yeah, it was just a total, total mess. In every way. And thankfully, uh, sorry, hitting the Sky Twister on Asuka. Um, at least her... A, she's a small woman. B, at least only her feet hit Asuka right in the face, coming down. Yeah. That could have been worse. She could have scorpioed her. Yeah. Hasegawa also yeah, looks missed. like the only one who's trying to get over with an American audience, too. Other than Kong. Because, like, she does stuff that you know will get over with, like, you know, like when she does the repeated butterfly suplexes and stuff. 
We know they should have brought in the commentate this match, right? Uh, that would be Lee Marshall, women's wrestling expert. No. Oh. No, Lanny Poffo. Uh, wait, I don't why, is, why, would he, why would he do that, Big? And look at those pretty Japanese girls. Thank you, Lanny. Goldust Bam 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 Bigelow in 818 with a bulldog. Goldust ring interest is supposed to be a heel equivalent of Undertaker's, but it came off for so long it was boring. Two of them work well together, although not from a lack of effort. One star. Yeesh. Oh, nothing about, uh, not that we're going to play at the interview with President Clinton. Oh, no. Dave didn't want to touch on that. Let's oh, see Goldust's outfit. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Okay. Well, he's still got all this stuff going on here. Yeah, I'm trying to skip ahead. Yeah, they really did drag this entrance out. All right. All right. Yes. You can see his dick right there. <laughs> from, the from the watch. <laughs> it's just tighter fitting in general because you can see it riding up his ass crack, too. Well, at least he didn't get excited like some wrestlers do in Ring of Honor. He's doing Ring of Honor. Some wrestlers. <laughs> or when some wrestlers have wrestled women on well, in intergender matches. We're talking about the same wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> Look at I mean, that is Eric Embry ass right there. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. Also, he's not looking very good either. He, his punches are not looking like they usually do. Perhaps he's less aerodynamic because of how much he's being squeezed. I don't know. My mom used to be embarrassed by Jimmy Garvin's tights. Like anytime Jimmy Garvin would wrestle in the, in the yeah. white tights, she says, "Look at him! He's got all this stuff hanging." Out. I wonder what Kurt Hennig of all people thought of Goldust's gear on commentary. Maybe he had some interesting insight. Oh man. I wish I remembered who it was that there was a thread <laughs> on message board. There was so this was a long time ago, but it, somehow how wrestler dick imprints came up in a message board thread, <laughs> and I saw someone sarcastically saying, "Yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure it's that all these wrestlers just happen to have giant penises. There could be no other explanation for this." <laughs> Well, at least Robert Fuller didn't have an uh, outfit like this. Could you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, The Undertaker. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It, it's like, it, how do you even describe this? It's protruding. <laughs> I, 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 he, it's hard to take him seriously. <laughs> Not just this, but until he gets the um, the black and gold like suit that looks just nicer and more professional, but also was probably even worse to wrestle in because it looked like it was a lot hotter and had more volume yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Oh, now he does the pose, and his hand started down there. <laughs> it's a good thing that Les Luger didn't have an outfit like this. Oh, my God. <laughs> that would have been X-rated, folks. <laughs> I mean, all right, after uh, all, touching himself is one of the... Oh, damn it, I pressed the wrong thing. Touching himself... 
<laughs> Touching himself is one of his allocates in the ring. Yeah. So. All right, next we get the uh, BSK, Undertaker fought to Henry Gavin and Savio Vega. <laughs> Being Jerry Lawler, Hunter Selvesley, King Mabel, and Isaac Yank, I'm at 1421. I'm trying to concentrate and figure out if Dustin's circumcised. <laughs> He's not Jewish, picks. All right, they tease, to <laughs> they, they tease Helmsley not wanting to work with Godwin. First 11 minutes consisted of lifeless action involving all but Undertaker. Finally, Lawler Powell drove Savio, but instead of being in the end of a fall, Savio attacked Undertaker. Undertaker's wearing that cool looking face mask as a result of his recent surgery. Undertaker appeared to have gotten the biggest pop of the show, then hit Tombstone on Lawler for a pin in 1219. He hit Tombstone on Yankum at 31 seconds. Helmsley tried to run. He was thrown back in, choke slam to 45 seconds. There was some Mabel against all four baby faces, hit a ability on leg drop on Undertaker, and then sat up. Mabel then took off and was did the walkout cannot finish in 46 seconds. After the match, Undertaker gave Mo, who's a ringside choke slam. Not much for wrestling, but the booking was good, a star and a half. Is Dustin wearing any undertights? <laughs> no. That's got to be part of it, too, right? Yes. I mean, you it's so tight that you can see it from when from his <laughs> side when he's in profile. I don't know you'd be this obsessed with Dustin Rose Dick, but there we I are. Mean, it came up. You, you, you watched it. It came up. It sure did, I guess, didn't <laughs> it? I mean, that is, even by the standards of this kind of thing, though, that is, that is, I get why Dave made that comment. That is pretty egregious. Butch Cassidy wearing a suit like this in Smoky Mountain Wrestling would have been quite the experience, too. Also, uh, Bam Bam is sandbagging him. Well, and that Dustin appears to be doing as many let me put my dick on you moves as possible. <laughs> Ho- hopefully only in a working way. <laughs> All right. Uh, next we get the wild card, Matt. I mean, he, we're only a few months away from him in storyline sexually assaulting The Undertaker. So, Yeah. Uh, wild card, Matt. Shawn Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, Dayboy Smith, and Sid. Yoko Zuna, Owen Hart, Dean Douglas, and Razor Ramon in 27-24. Good match, particularly when Owen was in there with either Sean or a brief spot with Davey. Ahmed's pretty green, but they're going to push him to the moon. He wasn't over as much as you'd think, given his recent push on TV. But this match was part of a process to get him over. Yokozuna's a great worker for his time, so he's got to drop some weight because he's got no stamina. When he was in, he immediately went to a nerve hold. Sid tried, but also was pretty bad. But when Shane and Razor had words, Michaels hit Dean with a schoolboy at 7.30. Razor pinned Sid in 8.48 with a Michael super kick on Razor. Hit. When Razor ducked, Sid took the brunt of it. Sid powerbombed Sean on his way out. But when Razor tried to pin him, Sean kicked out. After Owen destroyed Sean, Sean made the hot tag to Ahmed, who pinned Owen with what is being called a Tiger Bomb. Tiger Driver or Lager Bomb in Japan in 5.31. Both Sid and Kid came out as Razor had Davey pinned. Kid tripped Razor and Razor punched Kid. This gave Davey a chance to get Razor from behind. He had to run a power slam for the pin 219. This left Sean, Ahmed, and Davey all with Yokozuna, which is weird booking on the surface. Ahmed body slammed Yokozuna to the expected big pop, but Davey broke up the pin, saving his opponent. Ahmed and Sean then double teamed Davey, knocking him out of the ring. Sean gave Yokozuna a super kick. Ahmed pinned him with a splash to win the match. Three and a half stars. And no, it was never explained what this match was or how it happened. Or um, you know, we've seen that Goldust match. No wonder uh, Ray's Ramon didn't want to work with Goldust, huh? <laughs> Honestly, I get it a little more now. 
Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? I don't know. Let's just keep going. Uh, Goldust Dick has broke you. Sure. <laughs> Goldust Dick broke you. You sure did. All right. Um, Bret Hart pin Diesel in 2454 to win the title. Both men uncovered one turnbuckle at the start of the match. Diesel dominated this first seven th- minutes, 30 seconds, destroying Brett. Brett made a comeback working on Diesel's knee and using a figure four, but Diesel made the ropes. As Brett went for the sharpshooter, Diesel kicked him into an unprotected turnbuckle to regain a short advantage. But Brett came back ramming Diesel's knee into the post twice and tied his boot to the ring post. Foot, boot, whatever. Brett destroyed Diesel for the next few minutes as Diesel couldn't untie the foot. Doesn't tie the knot, excuse me. Finally, Diesel broke free and did a great job of selling the knee for the remainder of the match. Jim Ross had a Vinny Vegas hallucination when Diesel dropped Brett's face on the top turnbuckle, called the Snake Eyes. Well, that's what it was. He kept the name Brett, of that name, yeah. Yeah. Brett made a comeback by ramming Diesel into the number 10 turnbuckle and used a flying clothesline. Bull off top, sweat, leg sweep for the near falls. However, Brett missed the plancha and began selling his own knee. While on the apron, Diesel shoulder blocked Brett off the apron where he flew through a table. That the Spanish language announcers were sitting. And Hugo Savinovich, a longtime former wrestler manager of Puerto Rico, began selling his knee as well. This is the first time that happened, folks. Mm-hmm. The, the very first. Diesel threw Brett into the ring, sent him for a giant knife. He stalled for a second. It appeared the storyline was, or didn't appear to be the case, that he was asking the ref to stop it rather than giant knife Brett. And the ref said no. As he went to do the move, Brett small packaging for the title. Diesel then giant knife Brett twice at the bill and beat up several referees. Three and a half stars. All right. Well, let's see the table spot first, and then we'll skip to the finish. Yes. Again, first Spanish announcer's table spot. And, uh, yeah. And, probably, and I mean, first pay-per-view table spot, I think, too, right? Yeah, this, I mean, I was, uh, when I remember watching this, you know, for the first time and just go, wow, <laughs> how about that? WWF. Well, it's All nice right. and organic, too. So. Yeah, you weren't expecting it. And Brett is wearing the rare all-pink tights. That he did not really right. wear in this era. He's having a real hard time standing, holding that knee, and Brett galloping out, trying to enter the ring once again. Diesel, sweep. Oh, my God, unbelievable. Diesel went down. Did you see that? And that's not a particle board table either. Oh, no. I mean, that is no, a wooden not. table with a metal frame. Yeah, you see the frame there. That's not yeah, that's not particle. I'm assuming they gimmicked it, but it's not your usual yeah. wrestling table. No. Okay, how many times should I have Brett falling down before I pick it up? Well, you didn't went past. Let's do it right now. All right, here we go. All right. Well, I'll start with... Go back a few seconds. Right. Don't go to... Don't fool over too much. I'm going to be losing connection. No, I'm not. I'm not. We've seen here. Thus far, this has been all that we thought it was going to be, and here we go now. You got to hand it to Hart. He's a tough competitor. He's down and out. Diesel, as Bret Hart slumps down, he's turning him over and pinning. I don't think Bret can defend himself any longer. What's he waiting for? Well, the official, the official wants Diesel to continue to wrestle. I, I don't know. That's a wise decision. Who won? Come on. 
close. He struck an official. Diesel has, Diesel has lost it. Diesel in complete control. Oh, no, not again. Diesel now. Fisher will stop the match, but now look what's happening. Diesel! Look at the look on his face. I'm back. A poor display of sportsmanship, if you can call it that. gentlemen has become the world wrestling federation champion as we look at the carnage in the ring somehow Bret Hart was able the small package big daddy cool diesel diesel unbelievable but he's being booed by this capacity crowd he didn't have to do what he did ladies and gentlemen Mr. and they just cut to the closing video which, oh, Mr. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, from Brett's book. Let me go back to that. Uh, the, the table, which was nowhere near gimmicked enough, it didn't break <laughs> the way it was supposed to and it was a loud, bruising crash. Yeah, I could tell that. On what was, and then later, on what was my 41st pay-per-view? Won the WWF title for the third time, blah, 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 blah. Um... Oh, I forgot about this. In an unscripted moment, he, Diesel, stood over top of me, dropped the world title belt across my chest, stared down, and snarled, Don't forget who did you the fucking favor. This was the same guy who, two years earlier, did nothing but suck up to me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this match... As you hear at the time, Dave was not as high on this match, but it's definitely received more praise as time has went along. Yeah, and I would say in like the past eh, 20 years or so, it, this has gone on to be considered one of probably the classic WWF matches of the 90s. Yeah. Which makes you wonder, why wasn't it praised higher at the time? It's Brett. It's the Brett Renaissance that's done this? To a degree, I think. Yeah, I mean, was there not just enough hot moves in this match, maybe? That's why I didn't get uh, more love at the time? Not enough hot moves or work rates. Yeah. But, it was, I mean, it was a pretty damn good match. I, I thought it was better than King, their King of the Ring match in 94. Thought it was better than Royal Rumble 95. Yep. It had much so. more of a story to it than the other two matches did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then you had the angle at the end. All right, preliminary estimates are that the show did a 0.57 buy rate or about 130,000 buys, 1.47 million gross. That would compare with an estimated 0.9 buy rate and 2.32 million from last year's event or staggering a 37% drop. We haven't been able to get the actual game for the live show in USA Arena, but the number in the building was between 14,500 and 15,000. But more of it was paid than we initially heard. Don't know a figure, but it was a lot more than eight thousand, and probably closer to twelve thousand when we get in excess of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. 
So not as good as year four, which is interesting. You know, I guess with the Undertaker and then Chuck Norris and that being the hook and stuff like that may have done that more business or I don't know. What do you think? Is it just that they're colder overall because they're coming off that really bad week of house shows? I don't I don't know, because this is overall a much more appealing card. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Monday Night Raw. Taped in Richmond, Virginia the next night in front of 4,500 fans. The show started Matt Hardy beating Jason Arndt in a warm-up match. The young uh, Joey Abs there when met young Matt Hardy. Mm-hmm. Sid be marginated by DQ. One, two, three kids attacked Janani behind the ref's back. This brought Razor Moon for the save, but the ref saw him and called for the DQ. Razor chased the kid into the bleachers through the stands and finally out the exit of the building. After the match, Sid gave Marty a power bomb. Ahmed Johnson beat Rad Rafford in five minutes, semi-squash. Law interviewed Ahmed and Dean Douglas came out challenged to match it in your house. Aja Kong and Tomoko Watanabe beat Kyoko Inoue in a larger blaze when Aja pinned Inoue with a backhand punch. Told us it was the best match on the card. Brother Love, Bruce Pritchard, who by both the looks and sounds things appear to gain a lot of power when it comes to booking, returned. In the interview with Bret Hart, who thought about winning the title. Wait, this Bob back on the... li- Wait, did they tape this before the live Raw? I guess so. Um, yeah, they did, because I'm reading in order. Okay. Wait, so how far yep. down here is the live Raw? It's coming. It's coming. Uh, Bob Backlund then came out, put Brett in the chicken wing, left him laying. Hart later challenged Matt Backlund to a match on Raw, which wasn't taped on this event. The renewed Backlund push seems to have put the rest of concern about the influence of the click and booking. For unfortunately, we received the clip, met with Vincent Mann on the road a few times, and one of the conversations regarding going through some roster, person by person, and evaluated whether they belong or should be moved up and down. Think about that, folks. Vincent Mann is meeting with the click, and they're evaluating the roster. Getting he's getting their opinions on who should be moved up and down the card. After the meeting, guys, Clinton wanted to see given a bigger push. Skip was one noted to Dave. We're still in the same position doing jobs, and the ones they thought were useless and they should have been around, Backlund, were now getting a new push. Backlund threatened to come out of nowhere and put guys to chicken wings any time. Okay. And the next what? Go ahead. This is clearly Sean trying to hide the affair, right? <laughs> Looks like it, doesn't it? And Vince is like, eh, I ain't covering for your affairs, pal. I got my own to deal with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, but we're on Vince's affairs later, too. Oh, yes. Yes, we will. <laughs> All right. Uh, in the next week's Raw main event, Undertaker was to wrestle Kama. Kama came out on crutches and Mo subbed. Undertaker won the match, got necklace, neck necklace, necklace back from Kama and gave it to Paul Bear. But Mabel Yokozuna came out, and Mabel stole the necklace from Bear. It's not wearing around his neck. That is the urn Kama- that was melted down into the gold chain, which was then eventually remelted back down into a new urn. Yes. Kama and Bela did officially give notice. While Bob Holly is now staying at to being put on pay per show, and Jean Pierre defeats at home, recovering from hernia surgery, and no one seems to know for sure if he's going to come back or not. The problem is, even if guys aren't happy, if they want to remain in the business and make any kind of living, they have no place else to go unless they're Bigelow, who has New Japan ties. Davey Boy Smith pinned Bob Holly clean. Back in the Maniacal interview, then came the live Raw. <laughs> Where Fakushi pinned one, two, three, kid in the good match. Diesel doing the interview. Um, 
the starters the badass character walking out in the middle of the Savio Vega skip match that abruptly ended it, and then the Shawn Michaels Rowan Hart match which was fantastic for the finish three and three quarter stars alright um, let's go ahead and do the diesel thing shall we so let's let's go to Diesel just showing up during the middle of this match and uh, doing his thing here. His yeah, new this, badass character. Yeah, is this in the middle of Savio Skip? It, uh, okay. Obviously with something to say, he left the arena at the Survivor Series. A lot of people are probably wondering where Big Daddy Cool's head's at right now. I'd like to know. You know, I thought about it. And I thought maybe I'd come out here and apologize. For what I did to Brett. And for what I did to all my dear fans. Who needs them? I don't think so. Oh. Last night when I went back to my hotel room, I wondered if I'd be able to get any sleep. For the first time in a year, I slept like a baby. When I woke up this morning and I looked in the mirror, you know what I saw? A small smile on my face. It's the first time I saw myself smile in a year. He, he gained his smile. Because I saw myself. Not some corporate puppet that you decided to create, Vince. No. Oh. <laughs> you missed the ball on this one, baby. You missed the ball. After I won the title, 24 hours later, I'm up in Titan Tower with the marketing suits, the merchandising suits. Hey, Diesel, we need you to smile a little bit. We need you to be a little bit more politically correct, a little bit more corporate. Well, baby, what you saw last night was the tip of the iceberg. Cools back. That same guy you saw in Providence at the Royal Rumble a couple of years ago. The only thing that matters to me right now is my family, my friends. That clue too, Shawn Michaels. And I, I'm not saying something. I'm not saying I'm not going to smack hands. But it better have a black glove on it, baby. Because I know you're with me. Whether you like me, love me, or hate me, hey, that's the way it's going to be. I'm back.
Big Daddy Cool Diesel. With a rather candid interruption, I think you would have to say. Cool Diesel, an extraordinary match last night, losing the WWF Championship to Bret the Hitman Hart. And after he did, losing his school. And I think he has still lost his school. Big Daddy Cool Diesel on his way out of the building. Tomorrow night. And they show him greeting Sean too to hammer that home. So you know that's about to change too. But go ahead. I mean, that's he's months away from turning on Sean. <laughs> yeah, I know. Remember, they are still friends throughout the first what three months of this run for Diesel. So yeah. Um, say what you will about Bruce Pritchard, I feel like the way he went over this a long time ago on his podcast is putting it best. Fans wanted Diesel to turn babyface. Instead of turning Diesel babyface, they gave the fans Kevin Nash. Yeah. You know, when we did the Survivor Series week the year before. Yeah, we played those initial promos he does the weekend after Survivor Series going into and coming out of the match with Backlund at the Garden. Yeah. Those are Diesel cutting babyface promos. Mm-hmm. Those are not the promos we see from him starting on the following Raw. Clearly would have been capable of pulling it off, and the way he handles this run here shows he was capable of pulling it off. And this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. This run also shows that he could have been a draw on top if they pulled it off correctly. <clears throat> yeah. Because this turn and the three-way feud with Taker and Brett on the house shows is what causes house show business to pick up. Yeah. And they do a great job with making it clear he's not a heel. I'm still slapping hands, but it's basically, you know, it's not with every fan, it's with my fans. Yeah. I mean, it's very well done, and... <clears throat> Look, yeah, there are some quality promos he cuts in the NWO run, but I think overall, from in-ring work, to promos, to drawing money, you can make a strong argument that these last eh, five months of his W... I guess it's close to six months of his WWF run are the best work of his career. As far as total stuff, yeah. Because he never was the worker in NWO. But he was no. way, way, more, way more entertaining. But this... I, this run is probably the best run of in-ring he ever has, right? Well, that's what I'm saying, in-ring, but I'm saying as far as being an entertaining character. Right, but... The NWO run is... The, I know, but the NWO run is what everybody remembers more than anything else. Yes, but, you know, in-ring, he's got the Brent match here. He's got the... You know, the one match the following <laughs> month is fun. You know, the... He's good in the, rum, in the Rumble match in January. He, you know, the cage match with Brett isn't 
very good, but has the really good WrestleMania match with Taker? Has the classic with Sean on pay-per-view? You know, he's capable at this point, and he seems in, into it and invested in the new gimmick. And makes you wonder what happens if WCW doesn't come calling, too. Eh, possible. I mean, who knows what would have happened? I mean, what you probably get is probably a longer feud with Sean, at least. Oh, yeah. You know, they don't go straight to the blow-off. But that definitely would have happened. And then we had the, uh, like I said, Owen and uh, Sean deal, which we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, most fans left the building at 10 p.m. Afterwards, Brother Love interviewed Mabel and Moe, came out with a present for him, which was a custom a coffin. And a dark match, Ray just kept the IC title pitting Dean Douglason in dead five minutes clean. The only match on the car with less heat was Hunter Hearst Humbly Squash earlier. Gold does beat Aldo Montoya, which may have also been a dark match. Then it takes Superstars for the weekend, gives them an extra day to get things out. Kid does squash with Sid and DiBiase at ringside while back around around the crowd. Swung guns pin skip and rap rap from what Dave was so surprisingly good. Sonny was more over than all but the top faces as far as getting cheers, although Skip and Raffer were booed. Diesel and Davey lasted 30 seconds for Diesel the ref for the DQ, and then Jack knifed Davey after the match. Then the finale was Brett and Undertaker in a dark match. Undertaker broke the sharpshooter, had Brett up a tombstone when Diesel interfered, attacked Brett. Undertaker was DQ'd and got upset about it and had to stare down with Diesel to end the show. All right. So let's watch Bret Hart, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, and Shawn Michaels. In the controversial angle, which we talked about all throughout the show, and uh, it's first time I've it's been a, first time I've watched this in a long time. So let's uh, let's yeah. see how, how how this plays out. Ruling matchup. <clears throat> Michaels now needs to do something. He's a man in offense, but missing. It's Owen Hart. Oh, it's Shawn Michaels from behind driving. Owen Hart hanging on. Michaels counting on another clothesline. Nice play by. First thing I'll say here, he doesn't overact nearly as much as he does in that Randy Orton match years later. No. You can you can tell he's working if you're really looking at it. But you can also kind of see why people are buying into it, especially since they just lay out for the rest of the show. Michaels is just... Sean Michaels! So here's actually the biggest giveaway that it's a work. Hemner is just kicking at him to see if he's awake. Like he's a, like a dead body or something. <laughs> he, he's not going down to talk to him and squeezing his hand or anything. Yeah. That, that's the most obvious part of it being a work. Michaels is down on the canvas. In the official... Uh... Go to black. 
They don't though. Yes. There's Vince. Now, okay, they go to black one thing. after he does his pose. That's the thing. That's the weird part about it, too. Hmm. And then we have a replay of the double feature, so that, to tell you right there, this angle. Well, also, that they're in the ring with the camera right on top of it. Yeah. JJ. Vince looking uh, concerned. Dr. Rene Delay helping out the paramedics. <laughs> Excuse me, Dr. Robert Bedard. <laughs> yeah, he's getting oxygen. Doctor looks a lot like Dr. Paul Taylor, doesn't he? Paul Worth and Taylor. Expected, but all right, we have two breaks. So Sean, can you hear me? Another right in the table. Sean, can you hear me? It's Pat. Pat, Pat is. He's nodding. Yeah. Gorilla's in there. Dave Hebner's in there. Yeah, they're just lingering close showing him being given oxygen. But they've also made they're it clear not... at this point that he's conscious. Yeah, he, he nodded his head. They're not giving him, they're not giving him uh, resuscitation. His eyes are open. Now, you'll note that they just had someone say, he's okay, he's coming too. Yeah. Which I believe is mentioned in the torch as something they did deliberately to make sure that people heard that before they went off. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> it wasn't uh, very can... loud, but I mean, we got 13 seconds, seconds left. Yeah. Yeah, remember, we went through two breaks there. So in real time, that was. What did what did it say in the newsletters? About fifteen minutes. Yeah. All right, we'll read Wade Keller. Yeah. His thoughts on this. Wade was not offended by the angle. The only argument that sways Wade is whether those should have changed their plans after the ice skater collapsed and died just hours earlier. To some, that Michael's angle seemed to be a cheap attempt to capitalize on the unfortunate death of another star athlete around his age. He was not their intent, as the angle was planned for that night as well for over a week. 
the WF looked, took precautions to make sure the incident didn't leave people thinking Michaels had literally died, as was the case with college basketball player Hank Gathers. Michaels was conscious and coughing, and his eyes were open at times. Near the end of the program, Pat Patterson said to a paramedic, let's do something. Come on, guys. And the paramedic responded, he's okay, sir. He's okay. The while this was a very well-kept secret in wrestling, it was well-known in advance about in some circles a week earlier and had been planned between the click and WF bookers for longer. The WF was playing as close to the best as possible. Satchel possible that no one outside of a small circle of people were told about it being an angle. The paramedics may not have known since Michael was actually taken to a hospital. Their personnel may not have been outright told. Okay. That's interesting. Um, earlier when we were recording the beginning of the show, I could try to pull it up again now. Um, I went looking on Google Groups to see if there was anything interesting on RSPW from this. Um, because I kind of remembered there being like an AOL update about it and the, thinking that might have gotten copied and pasted and posted there. There was a post from someone, I forget the name, I'm trying to find it now, with a 900 number about how it was legit. And they knew it was legit because they had called the hospital. Well, they legit took him to the hospital. Yeah. So now I'm starting to think that guy was not, uh, was not making it up. Hmm. At first I was thinking he made it up. Well, let's continue. Major New York newspapers received calls wondering why they didn't report on that wrestler dying in the ring last night. Wade called WF and without identifying himself, asked about the condition of Michaels. We may get so many calls, said the woman who answered the phone at Titan Towers. He's suffering from post-concussion syndrome. He was hospitalized last night, and now he's home in the care of his own position. He's doing better, but that's all we have right now. I said, so everything there was real? It wasn't for fun and to make money? She said, absolutely no. It was real. It was a result of some previous injuries that he suffered. And Wade said, but you don't know if he's going to be all right or if he's going to wrestle again. He's at home, so I guess that's good news. She said, well, he's at home. I don't know how long before doctors say he can go back in the ring. But he was legitimately hurt and had been beat up, beat up by a group of people. I guess when he got in the ring, it was totally legit. Wade said, that's pretty scary. She says, it was. <laughs> so do we think this is Wade calling the switchboard or fan services? He didn't specify, so I don't know. And for the record, uh, since it's clear Wade recorded this, Minnesota is a one-party consent state. So he's free to do that without getting the consent of the other party on the phone. Um, okay, so I did find it. It was sharing an email from the publisher of some email newsletter. And because it's Google Groups these days, they cut off the email address to be able to tell who it is. Um after contacting University of Richmond Medical Center, this at about 2.30 a.m., I have learned Shawn Michaels was released from the ER, learned this about 2 a.m. After contacting Richmond Memorial, he was not there. It, this may mean he didn't have surgery, although the Associated Press out of Richmond reports otherwise. As soon as I have information, I'll pass it along. I know this is a serious case. It is for real. And it's... um. Oh, it's whoever had the 900-786-RING hotline that did that newsletter. So, do you think the AP really did a story, though, or do you think that's bullshit? Uh, they may have done something. I didn't see anything about none. All right, for a second there, Wade almost believed it was real, and the woman answering the phone may have genuinely not known any better. Depending on who you're talking to, Michaels may still have legitimate medical complications and was planning on taking some time off. 
The incident where Michaels, Davey, and Sean Waltman were involved in a fight in a nightclub was legitimate, although now there will be doubters. WF telling their 900 line callers it was real is fair game. Their 900 line is part of the work, part of the storyline. The way they handle people calling the headquarters is also reasonable. They didn't say it was in critical conditions, such as when Fritz von Eric had a fake heart attack in Dallas about 10 years ago. They also deliberately made sure before going off the air that paramedics said aloud when they hearing range to the microphone that Michaels was going to be okay. WF took many precautions to temper the situation while still making it realistic, dramatic, and emotional. While H.G. Wells wore the world's men who believed their lives were in danger, this incident didn't do that. While the patrols started slaughtering General Adnan as a wrecking sympathizer in the Mississippi Gulf War was exploiting the tensions in the country at the time over young men fighting overseas, this incident did not originate with the idea of exploiting anyone's misfortune other than Michael's. He obviously is comfortable with it. Assuming Doya falls up on this incident tastefully, this angle was not out of line and falls within re- reasonable promoting tactics. Well, I mean, basically, I mean, this happens and they do stuff for Michael's. But he comes back at the Royal Rumble, like, and and that's it. You know, there's nothing off of this, really. This doesn't make it. This doesn't become a big deal. <laughs> they they just use it to give Sean more time off and build him up as sympathetic, and maybe get Owen over with a little bit of a harder edge once they blame him for it. Even though it wasn't to blame. Well, in storyline, it becomes the Enziguri. Even then, when they were crediting the Enziguri, or at least Owen is taking credit with the Enziguri in storyline, they did a bunch of video packages that made it clear the idea was he also got dropped on his head a bunch the night before. Yeah. All in all, just a little weird. And yeah. All, all the hot shot of ratings, what it was. Yeah. And also, people forget, this is the origin of Tell Me A Lot. Yes. Well, you know, I was at Nitro. I come back home, and I got school the next morning, but I have a tape raw, so I got back home. It was around 11 o'clock, so I made sure I, you know, watched raw before I went to bed. And I remember watching and seeing this angle, I'm like, what? What just happened? <laughs> what is this? <clears throat> and uh, I remember calling uh, 511. Joe Pettacino's hotline. Joe Pettacino's line. And Joe ran down the report and ba- and all and Joe said it was on angle. <clears throat> and so I was like, okay. I didn't, I mean, I, I I didn't not think it was a good uh, I mean, I didn't think it was a shoot, but I just thought it was ah, it was different. Just something that you didn't see, you know, at that time. This was di- this was not something that was a common thing on wrestling television. So it was a different presentation. But, uh, yeah, it definitely was, uh, it was interesting for sure. You know, like, wow. It's a, you you could see where people would believe it was real because, like I said, they hadn't done this stuff like this. No. So. But anyway, the reason the first Star Superstars was taped on Raw, the night of Raw, unless it's our Raw on Superstars night, was because they need to get Superstars done one day early because of Thanksgiving moving deadlines up. So there you go. Besides Raw, the other weekend ratings were Mania 1.3, Action Zone at 1.4. So, uh, About the same level they were always at in this era. All right, so let's go to the New York Post and the Pro Wrestling Torch. The November 22nd New York Post reports federal investigators are looking into improprieties related to the 1994 steroid trial of Vincent Man Titan Sports. Federal investigations are focusing on Mar- Marty Bergman, freelance TV producer and husband of Titan attorney in the case, Laura Brevetti. 
The Post also reports that Emily Feinberg, Man's former top assistant who government prosecutors built much of their case around, has told investigators that Berman offered her between two hundred fifty and four hundred thousand dollars. The headline in the page eight store the post reads Tampering Cloud over Wrestling's Big Trial. A subheadline read, Feds want to know the TV producer paid witnesses to alter their testimony. A photo of Brevetti and Bergman shared space with photos of Vincent Mann, Feinberg, and federal investigator Anthony Valenti on the story that filled the entire page. Besides the Post story, two other major New York Daily Papers were spending their own articles on the investigation on Wednesday. WOR-TV News wrote the story first in their 10 p.m. report Tuesday night. These reports will surely lead to more reports focusing on the most sellable, sexy aspect of the investigation, that being the WS involvement. WF has been nearly crippled in the past five years by millions of dollars spent in legal fees and even more on lost revenue with advertisers, lost goodwill with fans, and opportunity costs related to the Dr. George Zaharian steroid trial and Vincent Mann's 1994 high-profile trial. Zaharian was convicted and served time in jail for distribution of steroids without just medical cause at WF events. McMahon was found not guilty of charges conspiring to distribute in legal possession of steroids. Says the Post story written by Jack Newman and Phil Musnick. Two FBI agents working with the assistant attorney of the U.S., Jonathan Sack, have been interviewing witnesses about Bergman's conduct leading up to the trial, sources said. Investigators are trying to determine if Bergman pursued witnesses and potential witnesses against McMahon in an effort to change, taint, or discredit their testimony by inducing them to accept TV consultant money, sources said. Bergman contacted witnesses, their lawyers, and journalists seeking information and access to McMahon's accusers, ostensibly to produce a TV piece on the trial, sources said. The Post also reports that Berman was responsible for three articles smearing both members of the McMahon trial prosecution team. Articles that appear in New York Observer and Post. And real quick, it's Jack Newfield, not Jack Newman. Well, whatever. Reports the Post, federal probers are trying to establish whether there were financial connections among Berman, McMahon, and the lawyers who filed the baseless misconduct complaints, the sources said. Brevetti responded in a written statement to the Post. I have been advised of no investigation and have never been contacted by anyone in the government about the existence of one. In any event, there's absolutely no basis for any claim of wrongdoing by me. It's clear to me this story is being waived and by certain individuals within the government who have a personal vendetta against me. A sidebar story chronicled Brevetti's story career as an attorney, which began as a government prosecutor. As prosecutor, she was named the first female member of the Organized Crime Strike Force in 1983. In 1986, she led the prosecution that crippled the hierarchy of the Bonanno crime family and Teamsters Local 814. She was once named the New York Magazine's Prosecutor of the Year. She received much publicity in 1992 as a defense attorney for winning a surprising acquittal of Westchester nanny Olivia Reiner, who was accused of murdering the three-month-old she was hired to care for. The gist of the post-sidebar story was that friends of Brevetti were surprised when she married Bergman, who was referred to as someone who always opened and operated in the shadows by current affair producer John Johnson. He always talked tough like he was going to deliver the goods on the day of bad guys, but he never delivered, Johnson told the Post. He was tight with Vincent Mann and his attorney, Jerry McDevitt, he was always leaking conspiracy theories and seemed to be coming directly out of McDevitt's office. The Post reported that sources said Bergman got Geraldo Rivera's now defunct, now can be told, dedicated an entire program to attacking the motivations and integrity of police and prosecutors in the Westchester nanny murder case. Newfeld, co-writer of the Post article, reports that he met with Bergman in 1991 regarding a story on Senator Alphonse D'Amato. Bergman reportedly asked for $5,000 to provide research. Newfeld and his colleague turned Bergman down. As of deadline late Tuesday night, no comment was available from Titan Sports or Vincent Mann. The media publicity alone will set the WF back in their ongoing attempts to shed the image of being a corrupt, sleazy organization, an image that was amplified during the steroid and set sandals, and now may reach new heights. Hmm. All right. All right, Vic. We start with this. 
Uh, this is your wheelhouse, so you go ahead. Okay. Um, as we've covered in the past, there ends up being a much more detailed story by Bill Bastone and the Village Voice a few weeks later. Um, both of those, I know I have on my document cloud account. Maybe I'll just link them in the show description if I remember. Uh, and, you know, as much as they deny this, and we'll get to how Vince handles it in a minute, uh, I ended up eventually requesting the FBI file on Marty Bergman, and there's a lot of redactions, but it still makes it pretty clear they investigated and it seemed like there was something to this. Now, we don't know why they didn't charge him, because, as happens sometimes with FOIA requests, they did not include the, uh, whatever it's called, I think, Declination of Prosecution Memo. But I'll read this, which is early in the file I have. So this is from August 15th, 94. A memo to the uh, criminal division from a special agent whose name is redacted. Subject, Marty Bergman. Then a redaction that I presume is Vince McMahon, because you can't technically say Vince McMahon because he's a living person in a... You know, so you have to redact his name out in FOIA stuff, even though you can put Titan Sports because that's not a person. Obstruction of justice. So it suggests they're open a full investigation. Um, based upon, And then it's based on facts and or circumstances reasonably indicating that a federal violation has occurred. It's occurring in a world involving public officials elected or appointed to position of trust in governmental activity or alleged to abuse such trust in violation of federal criminal law. I guess that's for Vetti being a former prosecutor that they're saying that. So then the actual notes here, and I'll indicate when things are redacted, just to give you an idea of some of what it says. Uh, this matter involves an obstruction of justice allegation arising from the case of United States of America v. It says redacted in Titan Sports, but obviously Vince, Vince McMahon, defendants. Uh, redacted was represented by attorney redacted Martin Bergman, a freelance journalist. It's like a WCW a court case of all these redacteds in there. Yeah. Martin Bergman. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, you're talking about how Taron Bostic likes to call them redacted. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, Martin Bergman, a freelance journalist and producer. Um, okay, Titan Sports Inc. was represented by the firm Kilpatrick and Lockhart. Information to date indicates that Bergman acting on behalf of redacted slash Titan, <laughs> influence third parties to submit formal complaint letters against, and then about three lines are redacted. This appears to be about, uh, I forget if it was Sean O'Shea and Anthony Valenti, or just Anthony Valenti, the investigator. Uh, the allegations contained in the complaint letter, which are submitted to the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility, concerned alleged activities which took place approximately one year earlier and were unrelated to the redacted case. Bergman went to Madrid, Spain, to take the statement of redacted, which I believe was, uh, oh, what's his face, the mob guy Lugo's, like, some female relative of her or something, of his or something. That And there was, like, allegedly an affair between her and O'Shea that turned out to be nonsense, something like that. The complaint letters were used by Bergman as the basis of an article which he co-authored for the New York Observer newspaper, attacking the character and integrity of Redacted. Bergman has attempted to hide his involvement in writing the article and has lied about it to an FBI agent during an interview on the Redacted case. <laughs> the complaint letters and article, as well as at least one additional article in attempts to gain wider media coverage of the allegation, 
were timed to coincide with the start of the redacted trial. <laughs> it's just so stupid because you're saying, I mean, there's only one case you prosecuted as the federal government against Titan Sports. So I can kind of tell who his co-defendant is. Excuse me, who their co-defendant is. Um, to say, okay, it, uh, where was I? Oh, we're time to redacted, 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 redacted. An appear to be a deliberate attempt uh, to corruptly influence the jury in that case. And it is further alleged that Bergman attempted to discredit a witness against redacted by <laughs> attempting to get the witness to sell her story to a ta television tabloid show. Moreover, and then from there, be that as it may, notwithstanding, perhaps indeed, it appears that this may have been a fraudulent offer designed solely to lead the witness into seeking such a deal and thereby making her less, a less credible witness at trial. Also appears that Bergman may have coordinated these efforts with... Redacted? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> it also appears that there may have been an attempt by persons at, and then the rest of the paragraph is redacted. It is suspected that, it is. that Bergman coordinated his efforts through redacted, and that he was financed <laughs> by redacted slash Titan Sports. <laughs> and there's over 100 pages of this. Redacted, uh, redacted, 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 redacted. Yeah, there's handwritten notes with redactions and stuff. There's a lot here. But, I mean, look. They were secretly engaged. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think it's pretty clear what was going on here. And then, you know, it turns out, you know, he was... He tried to mislead people, making... The, he would never say, I'm Lowell Bergman. But he would make people kind of think he was his brother. It's a, who was, you know, the famous 60 Minutes producer that's played by Al Pacino in The Insider. So, just a... I mean, you read all this, I, I really want to know why they didn't prosecute, because you go through what they have here, and what's in the Bill Bastone article, it seems like people are very lucky, Every, everyone that might have been involved here is lucky they didn't get prosecuted. Yeah... Although Bergman did have his history as an FBI informant, which is mysteriously not mentioned once in this file. Hmm. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, I guess it was redacted. Yeah, and there's more detail. You know, more details we could get into at another time, like interview that either with Emily Feinberg or Michael Feinberg, but you know, redacted, talking about Marty Bergman saying he's in a current affair producer and. Uh, that uh, the husband, uh, Michael Feinberg, was trying to pitch a... Oh, no, excuse me. Bergman said that ABC was interested in having redacted writer proposal for a one-hour television show about wrestling, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Um, now, we've played what we're about to play before. It's not in our week. It airs on December 2nd. But it's been a long time since we've played it, and we've never played it, obviously, in con concert with actually talking about the Post article. Vince addressed this on Superstars in New York that weekend. I mean, you know, two weeks later, whatever. Er, and it is trippy. So let's go to that, because we got to do it here. You know, it's been years since we've played this, and this is the actual article that he's talking about. So let's go to Vince. And... I'd be curious to see what actually got cut out of the show for this, unless they just used local promo spots. Actually, that's probably awesome. it, right. Probably it was live event news. Face to face. Or whatever they Ladies and gentlemen, anything can happen here in the WWF. Here's a first. Some pre-recorded editorial comments from Vince McMahon. 
This is Vince McMahon of the World Wrestling Federation. I've always made it a point to refrain from personal commentary during WWF programming, but please permit me this one exception. As many of you know, several years ago, the World Wrestling Federation and I came under a vicious attack by the tabloid media led by one Phil Mushnick of the New York Post. <laughs> it's been the equivalent, in my view, of journalistic, journalistic stalking. stalking. As we found out, these stalkers apparently are not interested in the truth, as they have been heard to say in the tabloid newsroom, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Wait, who's they? Are you saying these specific <laughs> reporters say that, or are you just saying that's a saying at New York tabloids? <laughs> It is a saying. Uh, no, I, I know that, but he's saying they. Anyway. Mr. Mushnick attempted to give credibility to this type of tabloid investigation by telling his readers the feds don't waste money on witch hunts. Now, most people, myself included, naively believe that government prosecutors and their investigators are the good guys. Unfortunately, I found this to not always hold true. I was constantly amazed at the utter lack of ethics of some of the good guys involved in my case, all of whom had demonstrable ties to Mr. Phil Mushnick. What? I watched the good guys lie to the media, <laughs> lie to the judge, lie to the jury. I watched the good guys get caught because they tried to pressure my alleged co-conspirator into changing his prior sworn testimony. I watched as the good guys were forced to admit that they had destroyed evidence. What? <laughs> and I saw the ultimate impact of the truth when the jury acquitted me and the World Wrestling Federation without us even having to put on a defense or call even one witness. Now that's true. Although I had a great deal to say about this unique life experience at the time after the trial, I did not. However, recent events... You did an interview on Fox 5 that night. <laughs> the station you are airing this on. Oh, and by the way, Chris, who owns yes. both uh, the New York Post at this time and Fox uh, 5? Rupert Murdoch. Ding, ding, ding. Compel me now to speak. The day before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve, Mr. Mushnick in the New York Post wrote two new articles. One article was entitled, Tampering Cloud Over Rustling Biggs <laughs> Trial. It cites unnamed federal sources as suggesting that Marty Bergman, the husband of one of my attorneys, Laura Bavetti, tampered with... This is She's surreal lawyer, to watch Marty. again. It is, but also... She's a lawyer, and you're getting her last name wrong. Who's Laura Bavetti? <laughs> it is just so weird to watch this. He devoted over five minutes to this. <laughs> Witnesses obstructed justice. Wait, let me go back a little. And caused a ba the husband of one of my attorneys, Laura Bavetti, Bavetti. tampered with witnesses, <laughs> obstructed justice and caused a baseless complaint to be filed against the good guys who were Phil Mushnick's cronies with the Justice Department. Oh, okay, that explains everything. You know who controls the Justice Department, Chris? The federal government. No, 
the cranky, often racist sports columnist at the New York Post. <laughs> the article says that the good guys were exonerated, however, by the Justice Department, even though it's a known fact that one of the case agents is leaving the government, and the prosecutor, Sean O'Shea, is also rumored to be leaving public service. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I mean, it's over a year later. Now, the WWF and I were exonerated by a jury of my peers. None of these good guys have ever been, nor in my view, ever would be exonerated in any fair public hearing as the WWF and I were. Of what? <laughs> what are you talking about? What would they the be court charged of public opinion. with that they would have to be exonerated from? Trying to screw with Vince. The second article actually goes to the absurd depth of quoting the ever-present unnamed sources as questioning the marriage of Laura Brevetti and Marty Bergman. Well, he almost said Brevetti. Now, on a personal level, I wish to state that my heart goes out to my attorney, Laura Brevetti, and her husband, Brevetti. Marty Bergman. <laughs> Laura was an integral part of our defense team, and she defends people with a passion and a vigor that is ennobling to see and experience. I also deeply resent any innuendo or accusation that my acquittal on the charges brought against me by the federal government was in any way tainted by any illegality by me or by my legal representation. These same keystone cops who wasted <laughs> taxpayer dollars, these same yellow journalists who had to eat crow yeah. telling lies, are once again incestuously joining forces. Wait, 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 how, how does that even make sense? <laughs> what does he think that Incestuous. word means? Incestuously. <laughs> but that means... I don't know. I really don't get what he thinks that means. From up support for their own personal agenda, trying to manufacture some reason to save face, attempting to perpetuate some theory of witness tampering. Gentlemen, is that the best you can do? That postulation of witness tampering is about as far-fetched as the charges originally brought against me in the first place. The jury did not believe you then. Why should the public believe you now? Or should yellow journalists conspiring with vengeful <laughs> federal officials be above reproach or even above the law? I don't think so. We're back at Bob Backer, not campaigning. Trying to <laughs> Bosnia, perhaps. Who knows why he's there? Next on Superstar, this heart finds true love. Yeah, that must have been in the live event news slot. Um, yeah. It was a hell of a promo. <laughs> it's just so damn surreal. Yeah. Okay, I have the that article. Th that this yeah. aired on, on a wrestling program. Okay, I am curious if the sidebar, act or even the main article, actually calls the marriage into question or not. Because um, I'm looking at the sidebar, which is, you know, marriage puzzled their pals. Uh, okay, nothing like that yet. Um, Bergman and the Westchester County nanny murder case. Something about Aldamado in 60 Minutes. 
Um, okay, yeah, there's nothing here questioning the marriage. Now if I go back to the article proper, let's see. Okay. Okay, TV producer Martin Bergman and wife. It, it, by the way, I don't think he was ever actually a TV producer <laughs> in any real way. So, okay, I'm trying to see. Okay, when is tampering? Okay, stuff that was in the Observer thing. Uh, Emily Feinberg. Da, 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 da. Post investigation established that he was responsible for three articles. Da, 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 da. Um, oh, it was complaints against. Uh, O'Shea, Valenti, and FBI agent Warren Flagg, who are exonerated. Uh, so far, I'm not seeing anything here that's questioning their marriage. Bergman and Brevetti declined through their lawyer, Joel Cohn, to be interviewed. Um, separate statement to the Post, Brevetti. Was this statement in the, in the torch coverage? I gave you what they had. But, I mean, because I'm looking at the article right now and not the notes. This is not in there, is it? Oh, no, wait, it was. I remember personal vendetta. Okay. Uh, Joel Connison and the Observer talking to the Post. Yeah, there's nothing... The, the only thing here that questions the marriage in any way is the headline, Marriage Puzzled Their Pals. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, okay, and it was... Yeah, and then the line, lawyers, prosecutors, and friends profess total mystification by the union. I mean, they should have fleshed that out more to make it clear it's because they kept it secret. So I, I get a little bit where Vince is coming from on that, but it's, come on. <laughs> Which, by the way, when I've told, like, mainstream reporter people about this who had never heard of it, their mind is blown that, as one of them put it to me, America's greatest living investigative journalist had a ne'er-do-well brother who worked as a fixer trading on his brother's name. <laughs> Just like Gallagher. <laughs> Rest in peace, Gallagher. Wait, so does that make Marty Bergman Lowell Bergman too? <laughs> Rest in peace, Gallagher. Oh my god. Well, yeah. we do have something apropos to uh, end on. Yes, as Dave Melser knows, there was a bomb scare at Titan Towers on November 16th, which caused a temporary evacuation of the building. That was Phil Mosnick. <laughs> oh. So anyway, <laughs> that's this week's show. What a show it was. Next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1990. Ooh. Yes, where Ole Anderson is dumped as the booker of the, of the NWA slash WCW, or excuse me, allowed to resign. <laughs> and we have conflicting stories on whether or not Dusty Rhodes will be taking his job. Plus, we have news on the Nasty Boys and their contract status with uh, WCW. We have uh, Michael Wall Street making his uh, vignette debut on uh, World Championship Wrestling and some other stuff going on and in quite the section for the NWA slash WCW. We got, uh, let's see what else we got here. We got AWA getting done with ESPN. We'll talk about that. We have Thanksgiving in the Metroplex. 
including the end of World Class Wrestling. We got uh, Joseph Magliano joining the Memphis Mafia. Yes. We got news. No clip, unfortunately. We got news on Joe Petticino and uh, what's going on with his upcoming Global Wrestling Federation. So we'll have news on that. Stuff you remember from the Patreon show. Then we'll have uh, some interesting other indie news. We got Mexico, of course. We got some stuff there. A little bit of Japan. As uh, we have some interesting shows there. But we have the World Wrestling Federation as well. And that is Survivor Series 90. So we'll be talking about, yes, the gobbledygooker. And our third Survivor Series in three weeks. And what people forget, the NBC special aired the next night. So we'll have all that more on Between the Sheets. Oh, right. The one that was going to be a regular Saturday night's main event and got cut to a being a primetime main event, which was one of the reasons that uh, our Foundation Rockers title changed in there. That's right. Do we so, have a uh, no? Possible. Possible. They have not committed yet, but I will say this. If this person does not commit fully, because it is Thanksgiving week recording, then we will not have a guess. So there's that. All right, so... We'll have more on that later. But anyway, that's next week on Between the Sheets. Gobbledygooker, folks. Should be interesting. All right. Bix, thank you as always to The Rockless Show. Thanks, Sean Doherty, for requesting this show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. I'm just a little crazy. It's alright, it's alright, it's alright, I'm just a little crazy.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, Patreon Special Edition number 73. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan and Bix. It's time to start year seven of the Patreon, and yes, we're finally tackling the big one. Which one? No, this is the big one. This is the one that, uh, this is one of the ones that, you know, we kind we, we kind of avoided on the on the main show. Well, we had uh, to. Yeah, because I mean, it, it had to be for Patreon. I mean, the two the two big ones. This is one, and the other one's a trial, the bench trial, and Ben, which to a degree. Well, that's a whole different big one, but um, yeah, this one is um, yeah, this one was this was definitely made for the Patreon show. Um, the trial the same way, and Benoit as well. Um, so yeah, so we've, uh, we've avoided long enough. It's been 25 years, which is crazy to think it's been that long. God almighty. So yes, it's now time to go to Montreal. Now this is going to be a three part series here. It's going to cover the rest of the year, October, November, December. So we're going to start in October of 1997. All right. So. Now, let's go back to the Observer. Just a few days before Brett made his final decision to leave, he wrote a column in the Calgary Sun. Obviously, much of the column's typical pro wrestling attempting to hide his next big hype, his next big match on the, in the new, in vogue, more realistic insider fashion. But in hindsight, you can see where his head was at in other ways just before making his decision. This column was written as a letter to Shawn Michaels. Now, there's a caveat to this now. We know that Bruce Hart ghostwrites some breast columns. Well, there's going to so, be a lot more caveats to that, but we'll get to that in a couple minutes. So anyway, we'll read this and then see what happens. Shawn Michaels, you're a disgrace to professional wrestling. It amazed me that there was an, a time I actually thought you'd be the guy who'd come up behind me and carry the ball when my time comes to retire. Now when you're behind me, I have to make sure I don't bend over. I'm a second-generation wrestler. Like a lot of second-generation wrestlers, I pay my dues. The way you're degrading the business makes me sick and breaks my heart. That's not what the heartbreak kid was supposed to mean. I told you, Vince told you to leave our families out of this. So you got on Raw and said my father was dead? This time you're so far over the line there's no coming back. Every so often after you shoot off your mouth, you come to me backstage with a lame apology and a limp handshake. Oh, Brett, my mouth always gets me in trouble when I get going out there. You know I didn't mean nothing by it. Don't bother this time. I'm not buying it. I would not embarrass my father, who's not only very much alive, but is still tougher today at 83 and more of a man than you will ever be, as you have embarrassed your father with your de degenerate behavior. How humiliating for your poor father to have to explain your lewd gestures to your her friend. Hers is her friends? <laughs> I guess that means he's supposed to be a mother. Uh, you don't respect anybody, do you? What does Jose Lothario think of how you've made pornography out of what he taught you? Sean Michaels, you're nothing more than a whore for this business. You call me a paper champion because it bothers you that my contracts worth more than you and the whole Degeneration X put together. You said I wrestle because I need the money, but you wrestle because this business needs you. You are a festering cancerous tumor in this business. After WrestleMania 11, I went home for a while to give you the chance to become the man. Because as long as I'm around, you'll never be the man. You were so bad at being the man that WWE had the biggest bidding war in wrestling history to get me to come back. You had the world championship belt, but you don't. What do you have besides a big mouth and a bad attitude? Shawn Michaels, you said it'd be an undertaker makes you an icon. Not taking anything away from Taker, 
that you weren't the first guy to beat him. You just did it too late. You said you're the only icon that could still go, not like the fossils. You're so BF for taking completely overdone bumps like a Mexican jumping bean that you can't work a full schedule like the older guys. You only wrestle about once a month, and you're proud of that? Then people who think they know more about this business than they actually do, right? What a hard worker you are. Anyone can work hard once a month. You bareback your way to main event matches, and they give you the best guys in the business to make you look good. So you and your boyfriend, Hunter, think I'm told. Think I'm old, I guess. Hunter says he's bigger than me in more ways than one, and, and then you point at Hunter's crotch and say he could put an eye out with that thing. Thanks for admitting that you know what Hunter has in his pants. So how come I have four kids and all you two have is each other? I'm not the one shooting blanks. By the way, you both look very comfortable eating bananas together on Raw. Lots of parents tell me they won't let their kids watch the shows anymore because of you, and they don't watch either because you're such an asshole. People are shutting the show off because of you. It took so long to make wrestling and family entertainment. Thanks for setting the business back 50 years. You're the one who's confusing expansion and destruction, not me. You, Sean, are the destruction of this business. You made me sick. You said you're the best sports entertainer in the world. Don't even think about saying you're a wrestler. What I do is an art form. What you do is well, what you do. Anyway, because it's not pro wrestling anymore. You call the WF World Championship a 10 title. But you're only saying it because you don't have the belt. When you did have it, it you treated it like garbage and threw it away. So now you want to try winning the title Survivor Series? You better reconsider that because when I get my hands on you, it's going to make take the, it's going to make the meeting I gave you in the locker room last June like a warm up. After that little scuffle, you went running the vents, complaining that the work conditions in WF were unsafe. The only thing I say about the work conditions in WF is you, Sean. You've gotten the ring so pilled up lately that you can't even talk straight on television. You better shake the cobwebs free because before you get in the ring with me at Survivor Series, this business has been my mistress for my whole life, and I love her. You are raping her and taking her dignity away. Don't count on my reputation for professionalism, saving your ass Survivor Series. You're the one who threw the rulebook out the window. The 17 stitches you got a hell in a cell, nothing compared to what's coming at Misery in Montreal. Well, we're going to break chronology here and skip ahead to the Survivor Series week, Observer, for a moment, because all this coverage is so long, otherwise this correction will be stupidly far removed from the column we just read. In last week's Observer, in the lead story, the article listed as being a letter by Bret Hart to Shawn Michaels and Conqueror's son was unbeknownst to us, not exactly as was, as was stated. Bret wrote the column that appeared in The Sun, which is very similar. In fact, for the most part, word for word was what, what was listed here. However, the most inflammatory remarks were not in the newspaper, and how we got them is somewhat of a mystery to begin with. The version here was circulating online as this song column and sent to me and printed earlier that week in another, another newsletter. Due to so much shocking nature of what Brett had originally had, literally had written that week in the newspaper, Brett's actual column was very critical of Michael's, but far less inflammatory. All right, before we get into that, how, did, how do you think that got to Dave? Bruce sent it to him like, hey, check, check this out. <laughs> so that column never actually ran. No, and as you'll see, the column that does run as the Free Survivor Series column is not that similar to it. I'm pulling up the column archive just to make absolutely sure there's nothing that's even close. But you want to get into the actual column first? Or should we... Talk about this. Well, might, well, I might as well read it. So, okay, so what is the date I said this one was? This is... I mean, it's from this week, so... 
Um, this one, okay, so this one is, is claimed to be November 8th. The, the ones from the previous couple weeks are not this. I mean, there's one about how he hates the, the race angle. That's November 1st. And then the week before was a Spillman tribute. So the only thing this could be, I would think, would be what we're about to read, which is very much not at all like what we just read. So I guess it's time to read it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. This is what the comment actually ran in the Calgary Sun. Michael's Never Be the Man by Bret Hart. It's hard to believe it's been a year since I came back to WF and kicked Stone Cold Steve Austin's butt of Survivor Series. There are two reasons I came back. The first was the millions of fans around the world who stuck me through thick and thin. The other was because I didn't like the direction WF was going, and I want to put things back on the right track. About a year ago, in this space, I wrote, it just may be my toughest fight ahead of me. I'm going to try and prove the one guy can make a difference when it comes to restoring the dignity that professional wrestling has lost. I have no delusions by single-handedly changing things overnight, but maybe wrestling fans will see my point, and together we can row the boat upstream and change time. I had no idea that while I was away for seven months at the WrestleMania 12, the stream was that was flowing the wrong way had grown to a tidal wave. While I was home, Shawn Michaels and other degenerates gained a stronghold in WF. Is it too arrogant of me to think that it was my absence opened the door for them? The strange thing was only to happen in America. Wherever else I went, South Africa, England, Germany, Middle East, especially in Canada, the rest of the fans still cheer for the heroes and boo for the bad guys. But in America, they cheer for scum like Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. When I told the truth, I said American morals seem to have gotten all twisted. U.S. fans may be their villain. It disturbed me greatly because the point a lot of people were missing is that I love America. My mother's American. In what must be the longest time in wrestling history, not the WrestleMania 12, I explained everything I thought was wrong in wrestling in America. Every grievance I brought up was true in fact. I was cheated out of the title not once or four times. No one ever rallied in my defense. Even when I lost about the psycho sin Chattanooga because Stone Cold hit me in the back of the head with a chair, no one spoke up for me all, at all. I have few, very few letters from my American fans, but a ton of Canadians and Europeans who were furious at what a travesty of justice it was. I got tired of being the only guy who wrestled by the rules, but I still try to simplify the ideals that my fans in Canada and the rest of the world had come to respect and respect. Then came the day that Stone Cold Steve Austin bashed my knee in with a chair. The fans of being up to New York were cheering Austin on to bash it again and again. That's the coldest day for me in the history of wrestling. Wasn't so much the pain of having my kneecap crushed. When I looked around the audience and they were screaming like a pack of wild animals, yelling for him to hurt me more. This a disturbing vision that still haunts me. I try to be the hero the fans want me to be, and I've always been proud of that. It's disheartening when I think of the years of working at dedication I gave these fans. These same fans who were cheering for Austin that crippled me in, in my career. On TV last weekend, they said that I dislike Shawn Michaels because he openly mocks my celebrity status. They missed the point. I don't like Shawn Michaels because he openly mocks everything that's good and decent about wrestling. Shawn had the ability to help put wrestling back on the right track and say so he derailed it. What a pathetic waste. I can't wait to get my hands on Survivor Series in Montreal. Survivor Series tomorrow on Viewer's Choice Pay-Per-View. Owens recovered from the NXT concussion game from Ahmed Johnson, and in the Survivor Series, he'll defend the IC title against Stone Cold Steve Austin. Team USA of Vader, Goldust, Mero, and Patriot will take take on Team Cannon, the Bulldog, Anvil, the Fauna Furnace. Patriot got a torn tricep in the match, and Anvil last week 
with Amber last week, but maybe it's all even because Gold just broke his hand and it's in a cast. Bill Russell's match anyway. LOD Ahmed Johnson King Shamrock took on the NOD. Headbangers and Blackjacks are going against the New Age Outlaws and Goblins. And Mankind with Russell Kane. Well, no, it was uh, Bart Gunn. Or no, where was it? Oh, no, they are heels. Yeah, it's New Age Outlaws and Goblins. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I admit sometimes there are days that I wonder if I'm, what I'm trying to prove. The bones of my knees are grinding to a halt. Bones of my wrists are turning to powder. My tragic hips. God knows what kind of price I extract exactly my body of the last 21 years to prove what. Tomorrow, Survivor Series, my mission is the same as it was a year ago. To prove that one guy can make a difference to putting identity back in pro wrestling. Prove that as long as the hitman's around, Shawn Michaels never beat the man, the showstopper, or the icon that he arrogantly claims to be. Well, maybe he's an icon, an icon that stands for the cancer that's killing professional wrestling. The hitman's the antidote. Oh, yeah, by the way. I've exercised a 30-day clause of my contract, which allows me to explore my options with WCW. Officially, I'm on the contract review, and my situation is yet to be determined. <laughs> nice to throw that in there. Uh, the entire Hart family seems to get well with the President Gorilla Monsoon. Gorilla suffering from serious heart disease and is a prime candidate for a heart transplant when he regains enough strength for surgery. Our thoughts and prayers are with Gorilla in this toughest fight ever. I'm very disappointed in you for not saying the WCW, like it said here. <laughs> yes, with the WCW, but... Okay. Uh, how about that? Just, just right there. Yes. So, I think there's what two a market options. difference in columns yes. here. I think there are two options. One is that the first one was just completely fake. Which yes, I don't that's what I think. And it's just Dave not understanding the internet. But and I'm assuming what he's trying to say is someone that he trusts to know if these things are real. Sent it to him. Yeah. It's either that or it's Bruce came up with a draft like that and sent it in and and maybe sent it to some people and somehow it got out and that got scratched. But what is Dave talking about saying that the actual column was very similar? Because it's not. There's no column no, that's very similar not. to that one. No, it's not. It's a huge difference. Do you think this is just Dave wanting to admit in early internet, not wanting to admit in early internet times that he got tricked? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's got to – that, that that column was no way the real column, obviously. I mean, we just read the real column, you know? There's no way. It was, that was that was Brett or he, Brett's even – I don't think that's Brett's thinking, you know? Now, do you think – do you see a fan at the time, especially a newsletter reading fan, making the pilled up comments, or do you think that would be yes. to be Bruce? I think I, I more 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 thing about. It, I think it's a fan. I think so. There are parts of it that sound like Bruce's voice, but it's not overwhelming. I don't think Bruce would ever say pilled up. You know, he probably hated Shawn Michaels. I don't think he would. I don't think he would have said that. Hmm. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably the simplest explanation is early internet, Dave doesn't know what he's dealing with. Someone who he would expect to normally send in legitimate stuff got duped themselves, and that was that. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month.
Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.